Now the show starts. Almost. Here we go. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinell, who will be joining us later on in the show with new, new music. I had a decadent Christmas. Hope you did, too. Uh, I've moved beyond Zillow porn. Uh, this is what happens with pornography. It, it's a gateway to the really sick stuff, pornography. It, it You see, pornography dulls your senses, and you always need something darker to get you off. And this is what has happened to me, I noticed, with uh, Zillow porn, right? You, uh, it's a gateway to the sick stuff. You start off uh, looking at sweet, innocent homes on Zillow. Then, of course, you get bored because everyone is doing it. There's no, no taboo. So you stretch the boundaries. You take your Zillow porn to that next level of depravity. And you think, hey, the doors are shut. This is private. If I erase my cookies, nobody will find out what I'm into. And instead of fantasizing about something I might be able to afford, something that's reasonable on Zillow, I think I'm feeling dirty. Why not look at Alpine, New Jersey? Because I'm a lefty. So yeah, I like going for the disgusting shit. So I look at Alpine, New Jersey, it's just a fantasy. I'm not hurting anybody. Why wouldn't it turn me on Alpine, New Jersey? It's everything my parents told me I couldn't lust after. It's their forbidden fruit, Alpine, New Jersey. So I'm alone on the web looking at Alpine, New Jersey, and it is so effing hot, 5,000 square feet, unfinished basement overlooking a state park. There's a swimming pool and a wolf custom stove. That's right, mother. That's right, mother. This is who your son is. I'm a dirty, dirty man. 
I want a three-car garage and my own screening room, mother. That's my truth. And then, as the day wears on, uh, Alpine no longer does it for me. I need the sicker shit, the dark stuff, like the Hamptons. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm living next door to Lord Michaels. I got the Mercer family on the other side. Helicopter landing pad right outside my cherry wood panel library. I can see the helicopter landing pad for my cherry wood panel library filled with wall-to-wall -wall books that I never read, Mother. All those books, Mommy, they're just there for show. I haven't cracked one of them. And I got a dock for my speedboat. Property taxes? I don't give a shit about property taxes. That's who I am, Mother. That's my truth. And then, as Christmas wears on, and the sun sets, it starts getting darker and abusive. It gets really ugly. The Zillow porn stops turning me on completely because my brain plays tricks on me. You know, it's this is what happens with porn. And it dawns on me that this is just a fantasy. It's never going to happen. Is, there's no light-filled great room with soaring ceilings in my future or a duck pond. I'm not going to get that. So I start getting into the nasty stuff. And that's how I spent the remainder of my Christmas. I moved on to Airbnb porn. Airbnb porn. I, Yeah, I'm ashamed. Airbnb porn. Airbnb porn, that's the peep show booth of real estate porn. That's the dark and seedy side of a man's psyche. Airbnb porn. You see, the moment a man like me switches from Zillow porn to Airbnb porn, that is the same exact moment when, as a young boy, I transitioned from Playboy magazine to Hustler. Playboy is Zillow, right? It's white picket fences, wholesome. Zillow is Playboy. It's the house next door. It's uh, unattainable, yet aspirational. Zillow, like Playboy, convinces me you don't need to care what the truth is about the house that you're looking at. You know if you think hard enough that it's all been airbrushed. I know. I know the tits aren't real. I know the home is an idiot. I know that. I know her Netflix queue is nothing but the housewives. I get that. But who cares? Homes don't look like that in real life. Who leaves all the lights on in winter? Playboy, Zillow. It appeals to what an adolescent virgin thinks a home is. If you've never been with a home, Zillow is great. It's, you know, it's soft focus porn. Every room has been painted, no pubic hair. But a, 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 a site like Airbnb, that's, uh, that kind of porn is like Hustler magazine. You know this is going to happen.
this is not a fantasy. This is this is real. Airbnb porn is hustler. It's this is going to happen. Ninety dollars a night. Yeah, that's right. You need me, you filthy little house. You want me inside of you. Say it. And then when I'm done with you, uh, I'll put my pack, my pants back on and leave the little cottage in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey that cost me $90. And then uh, I think, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I come back to my house, my apartment feeling dirty, and I promise never again. But it starts all over again. And uh, I'm hooked on Airbnb porn for a couple of weeks until that stops working. And now the only real estate porn that gets me off is the sick stuff, the really sick stuff, snuff videos. This is where it all leads to. This is, I'm telling you, it starts with Zillow and now I'm looking at snuff video porn, the sick shit, demolition of homes, right? You know what I'm talking about. Don't, don't admit that you don't know what I'm talking about. My libido has gotten so twisted and constricted. The only real estate porn that gets me off now is watching a house in the death grips of mutilation. The only thing that gets me off now is vintage urban renewal, renewal footage from the 60s. I can only get hard seeing entire blocks of tenements mowed down to make room for luxury office buildings. Video of the Sands Hotel being demolished. That's what gets me hard. Windsor Castle on fire. And now I'm, I've gone over to the other side and people know that. There's a look in my eye whenever I visit someone's home. You know, they can't put their finger on it, but they know something is seriously wrong with me and I'm not to be left alone inside their house because I will set fire to it. Anyway, that's how I spent Christmas, dealing with my truth, splayed on my bed, creaming my pants, staring at home demolition videos, the nasty shit. Welcome to the mop up. And there was a lot of mopping up this Christmas. Welcome to the mop up for December 27th, 2021. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 35 degrees and moist, moist, not dry, not wet, moist. Horrible word, moist. Nobody looks forward to saying the word moist. Nobody in a conversation ever said, gee, I can't wait to drop moist on everybody. Moist is a word you put up with. Moist is the pretty girl's ugly best friend who you must be nice to in order to prove to the pretty girl who you want to sleep with that you're safe. That's what moist is. Nice to meet you, moist. Oh, you're a financial analyst at J.P. Morgan Chase. That must be interesting work. Well, let me just say something uh, loud, moist, so your prettier friend who I want to go home with can hear this and she'll think I'm safe. Okay, moist? My favorite movie, moist, is 101 Dalmatians. I have three disabled cats and a pot-bellied pig with one eye. I'm gentle and nurturing. 
Moist, I guess you could say I'm not a serial killer. Okay, Moist? Now, run along, Moist, so I can hit on your much hotter friend, Tsunami. Tsunami, that's a word you can blow your entire salary on, Tsunami. I could, I could marry Tsunami. Uh, anyway, now there are some people who think that was sexist, what I just said. The idea that there is such a thing as a hotter girl than another, the idea that I think that one girl could be hotter than another makes me some sort of ignoble beast worthy of cancellation. Well, you're a moron. I'm going to explain to you why you're a moron for thinking that I'm insensitive. Uh, beauty is subjective, okay? Beauty comes from the inside and it's up to, of course, the beholder. So you have no right to call me sexist if I happen to think one woman is prettier than the other. Because when it comes to one's sexual appetite, there are incalculable spices and you have no right to judge which spices I prefer. Some like turmeric, others prefer to go heavy on the arrowroot, while some prefer small boobs with plump lips, which means some girls or men are hotter than others. It's up to you to decide how that works. But some women and men are hotter than other women and men. It all depends on your appetite. Plus, there are odors and pheromones that decide how it all works for you. That doesn't make you a sexist if you prefer one person to another. Pheromones, they determine it. Pheromones are the boyfriend who orders for you at a restaurant. And she'll have the skinny one who looks like a young Rick Ocasek, light on the nicotine she wants to smell them so everyone's definition of what constitutes sexy and beautiful is different so that doesn't make me a sexist because i don't want to sleep with moist but i do want to sleep with tsunami everybody's definition of what constitutes sexy and beautiful is different a lot of time it's inexplicable. Like, how do you explain Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard? How do you explain that marriage? Now, they say ugly guys like Dax Shepard can get a beautiful woman if she thinks he's funny, right? So if Dax Shepard can keep Kristen Bell from ever hearing his podcast, she'll think he's funny. The point is, what I find beautiful others find unattractive. Beauty is subjective. Sex and romance, sorry, my leftist friends, but sex and romance are not some egalitarian marketplace where everyone's supposed to strip off their Mao jumpsuit and lay bare their government-issued Mao lingerie. What makes one person turned on turns off another person. Some of my guy friends are turned on by a white strapless bustier. I prefer, and I'm not ashamed to say this, I prefer a black nylon spit hood and a ball gag. For some reason, I always feel my sexiest 
when I'm wearing that. I just, I have some kind of, I strut like a peacock wearing a black nylon spit hood and a ball gag. And whether you like it or not, the truth is men in private argue over women. They argue over who they think is hotter and you can't change that. And women, when they're alone with other women, they have the same conversation about which women are hotter. They don't talk about men, which they, women don't care if men are hot. Women argue over which women are hotter. I don't, women don't care what men look like. They argue over what other women look like because women couldn't care less about our taste and clothing, our style. I don't, I wouldn't even presume to understand what's going through their fevered minds. All I know is that when men disagree over who is hotter, we reveal more about ourselves than the women we are objectifying. The conversation really isn't about the woman being objectified. It's about who the man is. The objectification of women or men is not always wrong. I'm sorry to tell you that, but it's not. As long as you're not gaslighting someone, you're not hurting anyone. If you're playful, there's nothing wrong with objectifying another person. If you're being playful when it's consensual, there's nothing wrong. There are many, many people who say that objectifying someone is dehumanizing to which I say, make it so. Dehumanize me, dehumanize yourself. When I rent a car, the first thing I wanna make sure is that it's been dehumanized. When I stay at a hotel or when I start dating someone, the first thing I wanna make sure is that it or she has been dehumanized. I want no trace of humanity there. If I can so much as smell another human being, I'm going home. I go to a restaurant. I want you to convince me that I'm the only person this evening who ever leaned his elbows on that tablecloth. Dehumanize the place. Public restrooms, I use a public toilet. You better convince me I'm the only person on earth. When I walk into a public toilet, you better convince me that I am alone on this planet. Dehumanize away. We dehumanize others. We just do. And not to blame the victims of dehumanization here, because I don't necessarily think there are victims if it's done for the right reasons. If you dehumanize for the right reasons, there are not victims. Not to blame anybody, but what is it about humans that makes dehumanization feel so good. Humans must be doing something wrong if even humans want to dehumanize other humans. So people talk about dehumanization like it's a bad thing. Stop flattering yourselves, humans. You suck. You suck. Dehumanization, getting the human out, that's a, a step forward in evolution. You suck. And personally, personally, I prefer being objectified. I would prefer my loved ones love me for how I look rather than who I am. Because who I am is a human being and that's repulsive.
I'd rather someone love me because I'm rich and famous instead of who I really am, because who I really am is grotesque. Being, in rich, being rich and famous, I'd, I'd much rather be loved because of that. Uh, I'm not proud of being human because I'm not proud of humans. It's kind of embarrassing to identify as one. We kill, we fight, we compete, and we, despite being responsible for the extinction of all life on this planet, we are prideful. Prideful of what? Please dehumanize me. The world would be much better off if we dehumanized all humans, put them in cages, and let ants run the place, or bees, or dogs, but not cats. We are better than cats. Even rats and mice are better than cats. I think uh, humans were once nice and kind, but then cats ruined us. This is true. I'm not making this up. This is science. This is, you can Google what I'm about to tell you about toxoplasmosis. Thank you, Leslie, for the coffee. I wanted a coffee enema, but this will do. And speaking of do, I'm going to talk to you about toxoplasmosis and how cats destroyed humanity. We were once kind and decent. And then cats tricked us into changing their litter boxes, and we all contracted toxoplasmosis from the dirty kitty litter, and it altered our brain chemistry. I'm not making this up. This is true. Toxoplasmosis. Google it. It's a, a parasite that's lodged in our brains, and it comes from cats, and it manifests itself through the display of feline qualities. Cats are body snatchers. Cats are body snatchers. This is science. I'm not making this up. And it's not paranoia. Google toxoplasmosis. Cats, because of something called IED. Do you know what IED is? I'm not making this up. It's not, it's not the improvised explosive devices, the Pentagon was woefully unprepared for in Iraq. This is a different IED. It's a psychiatric disorder known as intermittent explosive disorder. I'm not making this up. Google intermittent explosive disorder, and it's caused by cats. It's a, it's a psychological condition in humans that's caused by cats. It's caused by a parasite in cats, only in cats, that humans catch from changing the cat box. The way intermittent explosive disorder works is your cat has intermittent explosives. And when you change your cat's intermittent explosives with fresh kitty litter, you inhale a parasite that swims into your brain and causes intermittent explosive disorder. Google intermittent explosive disorder. Cats have changed our personalities. You, if you have a cat, you catch intermittent explosive disorder, but your explosions come from your mouth. 
not the other opening. And the explosions are words of rage, of anger, of cursing, borderline Tourette's. You become moody, short-tempered. When someone says, and they do, they always say, my cat is driving me crazy. Everyone who has a cat says, my cat is driving you crazy, me crazy. That's because the cat is driving you crazy. Toxoplasmosis, IED, intermittent explosive disorder. All I know is that every relationship I have ever had ended with the arrival of a cat. It starts with the arrival of the cat and the other person transforms suddenly into an otherworldly beast that I can no longer recognize. Think about all the people you've loved who went off and got a cat. Their brain was taken over by taxoplosmosis and they could not control their rage and their anger. And the cat won. The cat won and you lost everything. This is from The Guardian, March 23rd, 2016. If you think I'm making this up, this is from The Guardian, March 23rd, 2016. Quote, according to new research, adults who have intermittent explosive disorder, otherwise known as IED, a psychiatric condition in which violent outbursts of anger and cursing erupt in response to apparently trivial irritations, are more likely to have been infected with Toxoplasma Gandhi. The this is a quote from Dr. Royce Lee. The kind of triggers are usually social provocations, says Dr. Royce Lee, an author of the study from the University of Chicago. In the workplace, it could be some kind of interpersonal frustration. On the road, it could be getting cut up. A common parasite, Toxoplasma gandhi, reproduces within cats and is spread through their feces. The point is, humans are horrible, but there is something worse than humanity, and that is cats. So uh, I'm just saying humans are bad because of cats, and uh, I welcome dehumanization. I, I, I welcome it. It's a gift to dehumanize a loved one and to be dehumanized by a loved one. Thank you for seeing me as something more than just human. Again, I'm not talking about the workplace. I'm not talking about dehumanizing your friends or family. I'm basically talking about an intimate relationship where two consulting adults, consulting, consenting and consulting adults, uh, can strip themselves of humanity. Because like I said, it's great to be momentarily relieved from the burden of being human. How is it possible that the word humanity somehow connotes charity, compassion, and benevolence? We name things uh, after what the, the opposite of what it is, like the Sackler family kills 100,000 Americans each year from opiates, and they stick their names on hospitals and museum wings, and people think they're the opposite of what they are. 
They're horrible. The, the Sackler name should be, you know, synonymous with shit. Uh, and it, but that's what humans do. It, 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 it makes sense that since humans control our naming conventions, we make humans synonymous, humanity synonymous with the exact opposite of what humans are. The definition of humanity <clears throat> should be spiteful, jealous, destructive, and hateful. The results are in on humanity. Look at our planet. Look at how we're destroying ourselves and everyone and every everything else. We suck. So dehumanize me. I'd be prouder to be a dog. And I think the problem uh, with the right wing versus the left wing is the right wing dehumanizes people all the time. And the problem with uh, some on the left is they brook no quarter for the objectification and dehumanization of people. Like they never dehumanize people and they should. They should, they would be great if they realized who they were. If the left realized that they were human beings and stopped saying things like humanity, like where's the humanity? Yeah, uh, we don't. We we the Republicans have shown us the humanity. They're they're cutting off. Uh, you know, evictions have started. The the family the the child tax credit has disappeared. They're showing humanity. We should the left should show something other than humanity. And uh, this gets back to uh, what I think is beautiful and and the objectification of uh, attractive people. It's okay to objectify a beautiful person. It's not prejudiced. It's not sexist. It's okay because everyone's definition of beauty is different. Uh, now, Sometimes civilization tricks us into some kind of uniformed beauty standard to keep the wheels of industry going. Uh, I get that. There, there would be no Hollywood. Movies would never get made. The entire entertainment machine would grind to a screeching halt if suddenly every man on the planet woke up, looked in the mirror and said, I'm not short or bald or fat. I'm perfect. The wheels of industry would come to a crashing halt. There'd be no corporate CEOs. The economy would disintegrate if men looked in the mirror and liked what they saw. So our civilization has convinced men that they're of no inherent value. Uh, and that makes them fight harder for all the empty pursuits that satisfy nothing and no one, but keep the wheels of industry turning. It's uh, pretty sick shit, the tricks that civilization plays on us. Even a classically handsome man uh, like myself can be convinced that he's not attractive. It, that's how crazy uh, uh, the, the controls uh, civilization places on us. It changes uh, how we view ourselves. I mean, it's crazy to think uh, that even I uh, 
a classically beautiful man, uh, almost androgynous, uh, and beautiful, I'm beautiful uh, as both a man or a woman or in between. But, but even I have been so brainwashed by civilization that sometimes uh, I don't feel beautiful. It doesn't uh, matter how many people send me notes begging for sex, offering money, tr willing to trade boats, cars, islands for sex with me. The controlling forces of society get to me and I'm tricked into focusing solely on my ever so slight imperfections. Uh, all at the expense of the tsunami of beauty gushing over all who witness me. So if I'm capable of thinking that I'm not beautiful, imagine how a Jewy looking middle-aged guy with man boobs, bad hair plugs, acne scars, burlap sacks for uh, bags underneath his eyes, and enough chins to knit a new face. Imagine how some schlump like that is going to feel. If a good-looking guy like me sometimes feels he's not attractive, imagine how some loser, some Jewy-looking loser with hair plugs and bags under his eyes, imagine how he feels. I pity that guy. How does he get up in the morning and face his audience? Probably uh, a lot of antidepressants and Ritalin. I can only imagine. Uh, the point I'm making is there's nothing wrong with occasionally objectifying someone. It can be perfectly harmless to dehumanize someone. Sometimes we objectify people and it can feel like a pagan-like exercise in devotion to an inanimate object. Wouldn't that be nice to have someone worship you like the Virgin Mary, like 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 a statue of the Virgin Mary, as opposed to something living and breathing. That's a that's transplendent to get beyond humanity and rise to some kind of pagan devotion to an inanimate, lifeless object. That's what we used to do before the Jews came along with monotheism, before Abraham destroyed all the idols. I think worshiping dead idols is better than worshiping humans. And that's why I, I say sometimes it's okay to see someone who is so stunning, whose beauty is so original, you are swept off your feet and you think, I would like to buy this person. I must own her, not in a possessive way. Ownership as in the highest platonic love, rung of love, the highest platonic rung of love, the highest, complete and utter control and ownership over a loved one. Uh, wouldn't that, I mean, to me, I can't think of anything more satisfying than falling in love and being able to buy that person. A, a, a person you're proud of who you want to hang in your living room above the couch and, and stare at her all day as her value multiplies in the open market. And then just when you sense her value has peaked right before it's peaked, you quietly sell her to a Chinese billionaire. Uh, 
I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't. Uh, there's nothing wrong with objectifying beauty and putting a price on it. You go to an art class, you discuss beauty and what it's worth. And it's okay to do this because there's no standardization of beauty. No matter how hard corporate America attempts to create a standard of beauty, every person sees a different type of beauty. Uh, and lately we've been seeing a dramatic shift in the freedom to be beautiful. We are seeing more and more different women working as models, more and more different men working as models, all different shapes, sizes, and complexion. Because after 100 years, corporate America has finally realized that beauty is subjective. And the fact that it took 100 years for corporate America to figure this out is proof positive of how stupid corporate America is. If it took 100 years to figure out that people come in all shapes and sizes, took 100, corporate America, slow learners, not bright. Uh, for nearly a century, corporate America thought they were getting one over on us by dictating what beauty is. Uh, why would you, from a strictly business sense, why would you want customers to, or potential customers, to live up to an unattainable beauty standard? How could that be good for business? Uh, and it's, you know, they came around in 2005, I believe, 2004, 2006, Dove, the beauty bar. Uh, back in 2000, let's say six, they began running these groundbreaking ads insisting that beauty comes in all sizes and they featured women in all different sizes. It was groundbreaking. They had short, tall, grande, vente, trenta, and all were incredibly hot. You, you couldn't hold them unless there was a cardboard sleeve wrapped around them. They were hot. And that's good for business. It took a hundred years for corporate America and Madison Avenue to figure this out. It's good for business to stop telling women what they should look like. I mean, it's it's been absolutely stupid to convince women that there's one platonic ideal of beauty. Think about how stupid it's been before now. There are hundreds of millions of Americans, hundreds of millions of potential consumers around the world who you want to sell clothes to. But all your ads for those clothes will feature impossibly thin women who don't exist in nature. How can that be good for business? How can you sell clothes if the models wearing them are not real? Victoria's Secret. They've just begun to change. Their business model up until recently was uh, to sell lingerie uh, by flooding the market with the angels. Remember the angels who wore a size negative two? That was their, their size. And uh, those were the Victoria Secrets angels. They disappeared. Uh, they weren't discontinued. They just disappeared. They got so thin that they just couldn't find the Victoria's angels anymore. And that's good for Victoria's Secret. How many teddies are you going to sell if every 
model wearing them is uh, telling Americans or people around the world that you should wear this even though you don't look like me. You, if you can't imagine yourself wearing the teddy, why would you buy one? Do you realize how stupid that is? 100 years before corporate America woke up and realized this is really stupid. Well, corporate America is stupid, seriously. You're selling lingerie, so turn your business over to marketeers who will convince 99% of women all over the world that they wouldn't look good in your stuff because they don't have the body for it. It's almost as though Les Wexner, who owned Victoria's Secret, was a complete and utter fool who could be talking to anything, anything like selling his $100 million apartment building on 72nd Street here in New York City to Jeffrey Epstein for a dollar which is what happened. These people are not smart. Using impossibly thin waifs to model clothing is not smart. It's just misogyny. Never underestimate the power of misogyny. Never under, underestimate the motivation behind hatred of women. You'd be amazed how many decisions are made in corporate America that are rooted in misogyny. So they're not thinking about profits. Forget what uh, the angels did to young girls. Forget the anorexia, the bulimia, and self-harm these arbitrary standards for beauty created. From a strictly financial point of view, if you only cared about money, why would you create a standard of beauty that's unreachable, that would push customers away? Well, as I said, people like Les Wexner, people who work for Victoria's Secret, hate women. They hate women more than they love money. It's like, what's the matter with Kansas? Why does Kansas vote against its self-interest? Well, it hates women more than it loves money. It'd rather control women by denying them the right to an abortion than voting for a party that will provide full employment and union jobs. Never underestimate the hatred of women, not the lust for women, the power to hurt women. It is, it is a powerful force among the richest 1%. The control and utter contempt for women. Uh, so we've been brainwashed here uh, at late stage capitalism, where we're at right now. Uh, we've been told that if people are made to feel ugly, they will purchase more stuff that makes them feel pretty. But that's not true. We, as the victims, uh, think that way to explain away humanity's folly. We can't believe that the richest 1% just wants us to hate ourselves 
not for money, not necessarily for power, just because they feel better when we hate ourselves. When they read about women starving themselves to death, that makes them happy. But there's a tendency among normal humans to look at something other humans do that's harmful to other humans and figure there must be a logical reason behind that. When in fact, most of the bad things we do to each other is not for profit. It's uh, not to keep the wheels of industry humming. Most of what we do is to establish dominance over one another. That's what, that's, money isn't the end. It's the means to establish dominance over one another. Watch your nature documentaries. And the more hateful you are, the more powerful you become and the more pain you can inflict. That's why anybody who's at the top of the heap, certainly in the United States, is a sadist, a misogynist, a misanthrope, because some point along the line, you have enough money and you stop. What is it that makes you want more if you have more money than you can spend? It's your desire to control and hurt others. That's what we're dealing with. When you look at the homunculus Bezos, when you say to him, your employees are peeing into a cup because they're afraid to take a bathroom break, that makes him semi-tumescent. That, that gets him off. He hates humanity. He's looking into robots. He, he wants us all broke and suffering. The fashion industry is notorious. It's notoriously run by men and women who hate women and men. That's the motivation behind it all. So they, for nearly a century, created a standard of beauty that would hurt people, especially uh, men and women who would be considered beautiful. That's who they really punish. There's the people who don't feel beautiful, they suffer, but the ones who really suffer are the ones who fit the standard of what is considered beautiful. They're the victims too. Do you have any idea what I go through to look this way? People think, oh, David Feldman, he must be so happy because he fits the traditional standard of male beauty with just a hint of androgynous qualities to appeal to everyone. And people think, oh, I must just float through life. But do you have any idea what I go through to look this way? I I'm starving all the time. I smoke uh, cigarettes to keep my weight down. I do 600 sit-ups before I even think about treating myself to a leaf of lettuce. And then I eat the lettuce and I hate myself. And everybody tells me how beautiful I am, but I look in the mirror, I don't see it. So nobody benefits from this other than the hateful men and women who want to wield power over others and make them suffer. They're not doing it for money and they're doing it for the power to inflict pain 
on others. Watch a nature documentary. That's what humans do. They want power over others to watch others suffer. And I think it's time for us all to grow up. And it's time for us to realize exactly what humanity is. And it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. We have to dehumanize the planet. The planet's going to do it for us in about 20 years if we don't start. It's time to stop acting like humans. We are a deeply flawed species. And baked into us is the desire for power, power over others, control over others for the purpose of hurting them, for the purpose of hurting them. Not everybody is like this. I'm talking about the people who are the alphas, the people who rise to the top, the ones who have all the power. So anybody who has power is bad. That's a, that's where we should start. And our founding fathers kind of understood that because they were white slaveholders and they knew that's the only good legacy that they gave us is they knew they were bad. They knew they were not more than flawed. They knew they were evil and they created a constitution that removed power from everyone. Nobody is supposed to have power because power is not about money. It's not about getting things done. It's about hurting others. Think about the most powerful people you know. They are hateful, hurtful individuals, and no amount of money and power will make them happy because secretly they get off on demolition videos. Secretly, they get off on watching people suffer. That's just the way it is. Most people are not like that. Only the people in charge. If you want to be in charge, there is something seriously wrong with you and you should be suspect. You should always be treated with contempt. We should always be true to our founders by being suspicious of power and stripping people of it when they have too much. This is what anarcho-syndicalism is about. This is what Pope Leo wrote in his encyclical at the turn of the 20th century. Wherever you find concentrations of power, not money necessarily, but power, you take a baseball bat to it and pinata it. You just break it apart. Always break up concentrations of power and always destroy any human being who has too much power. Like I said, if you want power over others and you succeed, you are a danger to the community. And that's how we can save our democracy. This is how you save our democracy. Now, this weekend, if you were stupid enough to be reading, all anybody is talking about is this demise of our democracy. Oh, my God, we're, you know, it's code red. All the warning lights are on. We're 10 months away from a fascist state. We're on the brink of losing our democracy. 
we hear these Cassandras primarily on mainstream media telling us, I see the warning signs. I see it. I, I saw, what's his name? Uh, this historian, this hack historian, this multimillionaire historian who's always on MSNBC. I can't remember his name. And uh, the warning signs are there, he says. But he's not going to tell us what the solution is. He's also not going to tell you that we've already lost our democracy. Now, I'm not saying things can't get worse. They, they can, and they, they most definitely will, unless we wake up. Uh, I'll get to what we have to do in a second. But we already are not a democracy. Jimmy Carter, 15, 20 years ago, said if the UN asked him to certify this election, he could not do it. Jimmy Carter worked for the UN. He traveled around the world certifying elections. He said he could not certify. Our elections do not meet the standards of the United Nations. Okay, uh, the idea that we've lost our democracy, uh, the idea that we're about to lose our democracy is foolish. We've lost it. There's this Professor Walters who has a new book out. She works for the CIA and it's her job to measure countries around the world who are in danger of losing their democracy. And she says, we're, we've been degraded in terms of we're not, we're the, the least democratic nation in the industrialized world. So it kind of rings hollow right now when people are talking about, oh my God, we're about to lose our democracy. It sounds a lot like George Bush saying he wants to spread democracy through the Middle East, but we really know he just wants to, uh, well, punish someone. Pun that, you know, I, I used to say, because, you know, oil or a beachhead. And then I talked to, uh, I, I was on a show with Colin Powell's chief of staff, Lawrence Wilkerson, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who was there on 9-11. And he said, you can't imagine the rage, the vitriol that Bush and Cheney felt over the World Trade Center and the Pentagon getting hit. It had nothing to do with oil. Now, he didn't say this. He didn't say, he just said they were consumed by rage and that uh, Bush, George W. Bush, was bringing all the evangelicals in, not necessarily for political purposes to get their vote, but to help him deal with his rage of wanting to get even. So again, it speaks to what I've been saying is we try to attach some kind of logic to the activities of depraved, powerful men. We say, oh, we invaded Iraq based on a lie because uh, Bush genuinely believed that democracy would spread throughout the Middle East if he could establish a beachhead in Iraq. That must be the reason. Nobody could be that evil or oil. You know, it's very complicated. We need oil. And he can't tell us that because then we we would switch to alternative fuels to avoid conflict. So he's not going to tell us that. But that's the real reason he, in, he invaded Iraq. When, in fact, what my brief conversation with Lawrence Wilkerson, where he, he was there, the, the hatred 
the contempt that Bush and Cheney felt for the Middle East because they attacked, they were humiliated. The World Trade Center came down on their watch. The Pentagon, the military's fort was attacked. Parts of it were destroyed. They didn't care about oil or money or Halliburton. Blood, lust. Cheney was a multimillionaire. Bush was a multi... They didn't need more money, and they certainly had as much power as they were ever going to have. They were there to hurt people. So we have to stop attributing benevolent motivations behind foolish men like Bush and Cheney. They really wanted to use their power to kill people, to take out their rage issues. We can't understand that. But how else do you explain men who have power, like being president or vice president, who have money, like oil money that Bush and Cheney had, and still want to fight a war and see millions die? How do you explain that other than they get off on this shit? Why doesn't Jeff Bezos retire? Because he gets off on punishing Main Street and his workers. So when they warn us about the demise of democracy, uh, yeah, it's pr it could get worse, but it's hard to get Americans to worry about our government when the government doesn't seem to be worrying about them. You want to save democracy? Prove to the 99% that democracy has something to offer. Because right now, democracy in America is a joke. It's a late night joke. It's what Colbert, Fallon, and Kimmel joke about. It's a joke. People are suffering in this country. We have a, a government that can't raise the minimum wage, that can't make it easier to unionize, can't stop the evictions, won't build more low-income housing or, or free housing, and Medicare for all. We have a crisis of hospitals who are, who are going to be coming to the government for bailouts. You see, the, the for-profit healthcare industry isn't working. But Medicare for all, even Bernie isn't talking about Medicare for all. So when you say we're losing our democracy, uh, it, it'll get worse in some ways if we lose our democracy. But for the 99%, what are they really losing? Even Bolsonaro in Brazil, who is as bad as Trump, if not worse, pays for votes, does the, the Peronista move, the Peronist, you know, Ava Perone, feed the people, give them housing. Even Bolsonaro knows that he can get votes if he feeds the voters. Not here in the United States. Not here in the United States. A majority of American people want Build Back Better right now. They want Build Back Better right now. They want a social safety net. A majority of Americans want Medicare for all. And yet, Washington 
doesn't give us what we want. So what are we losing? What are we losing? Yeah, things can get a lot worse. We could end up with, you know, Pinochet and people being rounded up in the stadium and shot. 2.5 million Americans behind bars. I think if you're a person of color, you would say we're already there. We have slave labor in this country in our prisons. 40% of our prisoners are doing either slave labor or forced labor. Uh, yes, it can get worse. But objectively speaking, when Jimmy Carter says he could not certify an election here in the United States, we've lost our democracy. It can get worse, a lot worse. We lost our democracy in 1945 when we won World War II and Truman turned us into a military superpower, a national security state, and decided that it was necessary for us to police the world for corporate America. That's when we lost our democracy. You cannot have a democracy if you're spending trillions on weapons and fighting wars to prop up corporations. There hasn't been a war fought since World War II that didn't benefit our corporations. The American people know that our military has been turned into gangsters for capitalism, as Smedley Butler called himself. General Smedley Butler called himself a gangster of capitalism. You cannot have a democracy and at the same time create a military industrial complex that drains all your resources and turns most Americans who are earning a living into a gangster for capitalism. The only way you can pull that off is by secretly forbidding Americans to weigh in on anything. You create the illusion that we have a democracy, that we have some kind of say in our future, but our future is military spending. That is it. This is a war economy. And if we put it to a vote, it wouldn't be a war economy. Nobody wants a war economy. No American would send their child off to fight in Iraq or Afghanistan if we got to vote on it. That's why we never vote on war. We give a war authorization. But if there was a real vote in Congress as to whether or not to go to war with Iraq, American people would say no. Afghanistan, the American people would, if you voted on it, would say, come home. The anti-war movement taking to the streets, people think it was the 60s, that, that it was the golden age of peace protests. The golden age of peace protests was 2002, 2003, in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq. More Americans protested the invasion of Iraq than they did the Vietnam War. Didn't matter, did not matter. Didn't matter that Americans wanted out of Iraq by 2004, 2005. We have no say. 
And now you come to us and say, we're, we're in danger of losing our democracy. You think most Americans who have nothing to lose, half this country can't come up with $500 for, for a medical emergency? You think they give a shit about your definition of democracy? The people who are bemoaning the death of our democracy are in power and they like their version of democracy, which is the 20% of this country having some kind of say over what, where we fight our wars, which weapons we buy. We created the illusion of democracy after World War II. But ever since World War II, we have, we have become an imperial power and democracy, real Athenian democracy or the kind of democracy that the, the idea of democracy that our founding fathers planted in our soul, that's off the table. Can it get worse? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are the Republicans worse? Absolutely. Absolutely. But let me assure you that the only thing that will save America, that will save this democracy, is a cultural transformation where everybody is suspicious of power. That is what will save our democracy. Anybody who is in power is suspect. The need for power ruins everything. In the past, when this country worked or came close to working, we beat up on powerful people. We knew power over other people is wrong, that power over other peoples is wrong. We fought a civil war. So one people wouldn't have power over another peoples. And uh, power over other nations is wrong. Power, power not only corrupts, it kills and destroys. The only reason somebody wants power is to hurt someone, not to make money, not to protect their family, to inflict harm. Stop attributing more benevolent characteristics to the thirst for power. The third, you know, it's not about money. It's not about doing good. It's about hurting someone. Just because you don't like to hurt someone doesn't mean the people at the top, the people at the top want to hurt people. That's why they're at the top. It pains me to tell you this on Christmas Day, but you're fired. But what he's really saying is I waited till Christmas Day to fire you because that's that's the only joy I have in my life is firing you. How many layoffs are there the week before Christmas? What the quarter doesn't end. Uh, the, the fiscal year doesn't end on Christmas, the week of Christmas. Somehow they always like to fire you around the time of Christmas. Uh, I had a boss. One day I'll tell you who it is who, when he didn't like the writing, would say to the staff, I'll fire you on Christmas Day.
and saying that the mere act of saying that told me wow this guy has enough money enough celebrity now he's just into being able to say to weak men and a few women i will fire you on christmas day and the only thing more satisfying than saying that would be doing it that's what powerful people want so that's why when you see it was a meacham meekham beschloss these multi-millionaire historians wringing their hands never so close as america come to losing its democracy it rings hollow because beschloss is the 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 son of a multi-millionaire meekham writes these fatalistic isn't america great hagiographies of complicated figures you know like andrew jackson is complicated andrew jackson is complicated no he's evil but they warn us that we're losing our democracy uh, so that they can what get on television and sell more books they refuse to tell the truth and say this isn't a democracy we are hearing that democracy you know atlantic has a cover story on we're losing our democracy and all, all these warning signs are coming to us from politicians journalists academicians historians who will not give up their power right they love their power they love their money and they love servicing being courtiers to the powerful so they're willing to state the problem that's typical of the democratic party that's typical of neoliberals where you state the problem but you never give the solution because usually the solution is firing the people who are stating the problem and they don't want to give up their power so yeah democracy is dead or dying the solution is to get rid of all the people who are warning us that democracy is dying because if the only thing you have to worry about right now is the death of democracy then you're a piece of shit and you shouldn't be in power if you're not worrying about the eviction crisis you're a piece of shit if you're not worried about climate change you're a piece of shit if you're not worried about the 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 uh, end of the child tax credit you're a piece of shit you want to save democracy give something to the american people so there's so they have some skin in the game democracy no democracy yes things can get a lot worse but this conversation that we're having right now about the death of democracy when we have the white house when the democrats have the white house they have the senate and they have the house and all they can do is warn us about the death of democracy are you fucking kidding me are you fucking kidding me that's all the democrats have to offer is scaring us about the end of democracy are you fucking kidding me you've got the white house you got the senate and you have the house of representatives and you're warning us that democracy is dying do something show us why it's good to have a democracy this conversation 
is just another distraction, another excuse for Pelosi, Schumer, and Biden not being able to do anything. Our hands are tied. There's no democracy. Even though we have all the power, democracy is in danger. It's a distraction to keep us scared and too afraid to focus on who has really stolen our democracy, and that is the powerful. The powerful on both sides of the, the aisle. The handful of powerful men who say things like, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. Henry Kissinger said that. Henry Kissinger said, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. And that's not true. That's not true. Henry Kissinger didn't make love to Jill St. John. He, he always had beautiful women on his arm when he was single. He's a grotesque man who gets off on mining the harbors of Hanoi, of bombing Cambodia, destroying the dikes, flooding people, East Timor, Chile, the millions of people who are dead because of Henry Kissinger, that's his ultimate aphrodisiac because that's what makes him hard. And if you think otherwise, you think Henry Kissinger's worrying about sex, doing this to get laid, you're naive. Henry Kissinger's a hateful human being. You meet him and you say, you're responsible for four million dead Laotians. He says, thank you very much. Thank you. It's a compliment. There are, this is who is in charge. The problem, if you want to save our democracy, is get rid of the men, primarily the men, who think power over people is success. And these people are not just in the corner offices of the corporate suites. They're not just in our government. Uh, those type of people are among us everywhere. We have family members who are broke and out of work, who think power over another person is success. Go to a PTA meeting. People want... Go, go try to rent an apartment, but have to be approved by the head of the condo association. These freaks who get a little power, who run a condo association, they're, they, they don't get paid. They, their reward is power over other people. My ability to deny somebody the right to rent from this piece of shit apartment that power to say no to somebody, an admissions officer at an elite private school. They don't make money. Their payment is the power to hurt a lot of people by saying no to them. They're everywhere. So you can fight the power every day at work, in your personal life. Identify anyone who gets off on power over others. They, we are lousy with these people. Pimps, regional managers, uh, generals, corporate CEOs, uh, a, a stay-at-home dad. They're everywhere. Anyone who wants power, 
who relishes it, they are your enemy and they must be destroyed. That will save our democracy. Oh, you're too proud. Well, now, you're uh, listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Pete Dominic is coming up in 15 minutes, and we have 10 minutes to kill. Uh, we'll take some calls from our listeners in the Zoom room if they raise their hand. I see two hands raised, and hopefully Pete Dominic will show up on time. Uh, let's see. Merry Christmas. We're doing New Year's. We did Christmas Eve at office hours. And we did a a uh, a reading of The Godfather that was absolutely phenomenal. Professor Ann Lee. I, I thought she was Sonny Corleone. I was Connie and it was one of the I had the more fun. That was the most fun I've ever had on Christmas Eve. And believe me, I I've poisoned wells on Christmas Eve. That were, it was so much fun to poison those wells. This was more fun than poisoning wells on Christmas Eve. We're going to spend New Year's Eve together at office hours. Come join us, meet better people. Go to my website and all you need is Zoom and you're in, it doesn't cost you anything. We start at 8 p.m. and go till whenever. Let us go to Pete Perlman. I shouldn't have given your last name. No, that's fine. I don't mind it. Pete Perlman, mother's maiden name is Shapiro. Social security number 043-62-8429. Hey, I did ask you not to say that. Now, come on. Yeah. And uh, home address, 1414 Bonnie Meadow Lane, Los Angeles, California. What's on 13, your mind? 1313 Blueview Terrace. You know what that is? Wh which one is it? 1313 Blueview Terrace. I think that's what it is. The Munsters? Nope. The Life of Riley with oh, William Bendix. William Bendix. Yes. Did he have Peroni's disease? How did he get the name uh, Bendix? No, Peron Peroni had his disease, I think it was. But uh, Bendix did. By the way, Peroni if you want to know Bendix all disease. of Bill Clinton's issues, Peroni's disease. All, all, it's all gets okay. Bill Clinton has Peroni's disease. Curvature well, of the cock. Yeah. Let me get, get into why I called. It's, it's pretty quick. I, I take issue with your attributing sadism as the primary motive of people who seek power. And I think more central or broader than that is they want control rather than i mean it could be both both motives could be there but don't they want to have control over everyone else so that nothing can be done other than their own will yeah but i yeah but in the end it's gets down to sex and death and if you can't have sex if you can't love something, you hate it and want to kill it. And I think most people who who accrue power want to destroy things. Otherwise, they would stop. I think yeah. they're basically they're basically serial killers. Wouldn't you stop? I mean, if I had 
Okay, if I had $3 billion, I'd think, okay, I get it. You can't really be happy unless you have $100 billion. So I understand that. You need $100 billion. But after $100 billion, Pete, you want to stop. Why do they keep going? I, I, I don't know. They're addicted. They're, you know, it's all about, you know, they're only happy when they keep accumulating you know they've got to accelerate they can't just go at the same speed they're addicted to the acceleration more than the speed if you know what i mean okay we have other people with their hands raised uh there he is he's early uh let me take some calls you're a little early but stay with it. let me introduce pete dominic and we'll take we have three calls you're a little early. Hello, Pete Dominic. Unmute yourself. Thank Hi, you. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. Let's go to the calls. Let's great go to the to, calls. To, Let's go to the calls. Let's go to the conversation is about power, just so you understand the premise. And I'm saying that anybody who wants power over another human being is automatically suspect and they want power for the sole purpose of hurting others that deep down inside powerful people only want to hurt other people oh that is quite a narrow lane <laughs> i know i mean like i want power for different reasons really yeah, I mean, I want not, power. Not. I'll be I'll be honest with you. I want power to hurt people. No, I, I want power to be hurt. <laughs> do you have an enemies list? I have an enemies list. I do not know. I would I, that would poison my soul. I, I have can't a, do that. No. I have a list of everybody who has slighted me in my life. And it's alphabetized, and I'm hoping to accrue enough power that I can yeah. get even with them. And I will say I'm making this decision because I need more money or I want to do, you know, I have to do the bad to do the good. But the truth is I just want to hurt these people. Yeah, I would work that out with a therapist. And I would probably try to come to some conclusions because I would I would be worried that that would poison my soul. Can you give an example without maybe sharing their name? And if you want to, I don't know, maybe it's like rhymes with Bezos or something. But what would be an example of somebody and, and then why? Why wouldn't you why wouldn't you want to hurt Jeff Bezos? Have why you wouldn't you want not physically, but, you know, have you seen his new body? He's walking around now all buff. I, I I don't mind. Yeah, I saw. As a matter of fact, I went down. Did we all see those pictures? Like, I can't believe I, I looked at every one of those surreptitiously taken photos of how uh, in good shape he's in. And he also seemed to be with a, a woman who was very ill and weak. It, it was just, I felt bad uh, looking at those pictures. As a matter of fact, I also felt bad for being aroused. But regardless, I think that the the, the point of like wanting to hurt somebody makes me Somebody accused me of, of just wanting to, to hurt them recently. 
And otherwise, why would I be asking these questions? And I said, I genuinely want to know why you think what you think. I don't want to hurt you. And I'm I, feel I don't want to physically hurt Jeff Bezos, not physically. Right. I right. want to humiliate him. I, I want to I want him to end up living in a SRO with a hot plate and surrounded by horrible smells. I want him to experience the poverty that he creates. And people say, when you want revenge, you're no better than he is. And I'm thinking, I know I'm no better than he is. Why should I pretend to be better than Jeff Bezos? Fair. That's fair. I, I think that's all one can ask of someone is to, to be so transparently, uh, brutally honest. Let's go to Professor John. I always welcome his take on this. Professor John. Hello, David. How are you? Seeking revenge. I can hear that. You know, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Pete that, um, you know, revenge is something that, that really harms everyone. The person who wants to engage in it, the recipient of it, and society in general, because it tends to be a self-perpetuating uh, activity. And I, I just don't see any benefit to it. Um, and, and I would also disagree that um, oligarchs are motivated simply by hate. I think they're, they're motivated by um, acquiring a large amount of money, which will give them status, which will give them power. Um, but when they get there, when they actually accumulate huge amounts of money and they make it to the top and they're the CEO and all that stuff, um, they realize that there's an emptiness there, that they've developed the worst aspects of their humanity. And I, you know, I, I, I guess I partially agree with what you're saying earlier about humanity, but I think that we have uh, a great capacity for harm and evil but just as much capacity to do good and to love and to show compassion. I think it's the, the structure in which we find ourselves that helps to amplify and encourage those parts of ourselves that are the most destructive. Can I just can say, I, yeah. can I just say that what this man is saying is so so brilliant and so on point with so much context and so much smarter than you. You're very smart. I enjoy your, your uh, takes on things. You're, you're fantastic, Pete. All right. Um, thank you, professor thank John. You. All right. Now, I don't want to get too much. Too That's well all right. What is he a professor <laughs> of? Well, uh, Karen, let's go to Karen. Karen will agree with me. Karen agrees with me so much. Karen? Karen? Karen Emerson? I don't want to give your last name or your social security. Did secure. I have my hand up? Oh, I don't think so. Hey, Christmas. <laughs> hey, New Year's hasn't started yet. You might want to lay off the gin and tonics before. Yeah, maybe I do. <laughs> <laughs> you accidentally raised your hands? Okay. Uh, and I, accident, I accidentally, if I raised my hand, I didn't mean to. I'm just David. Just while you, while you, while you have her, I feel like the we're all a 
obligated now to ask anyone with the name Karen how they're doing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Karen, my name is now a dirty word. (laughs) Yes. And I would like to talk with your manager. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Let's go to Andy in Minnesota. Minnesota nice. Here's your food, buddy. You went out, so we know you don't need that. But there's your food then. No crying. No reason to cry. He's feeding this dog. He doesn't That is it. Hang on. Hang on. Let me. Okay. I need to mute. And then what is your question, Andy Brown? Hey, David. Hey, Pete. I just like to uh, chime in to disagree with Professor John. Uh, I'm I'm pretty pro revenge. Thank you. Uh, mostly because that guy. That's great. Well, hang Let's on. Let's go to Andy in Minnesota. Hang on. We have this. Is, see, the, I want revenge. Now, no, we don't need that. Turn your phone No crying. No reason to cry. Why can't I just say? This is a nightmare. Andy, are you there? What is your question, Andy? We're hearing you. Oh, hang on, hang on. Pete Perlman, turn off your uh, phone. Okay. Okay. Now I'm especially pro revenge after that. Yeah, I mean, how could you? That changed my mind. I did. I was pretty. Fir- I, I was pretty firmly. It, 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 I, I want to kill. I want to kill uh, that the, the guy who left his mic open, and we had to hear ourselves from earlier. Yeah. I now want to kill that person. Yes. It ruined my joke, and I would like uh, a respect at this point. Try it again. Yeah. Let's pretend it never happened. Okay. Uh, I would like to chime in to say uh, that I'm pro-revenge and I'd like to disagree with Professor John, mostly because fuck that guy. (laughs) Great points. Those are great points. That is is pretty wise stuff. Uh, There's no reason. It's just that I hate that guy. Yes. (laughs) He's done some things to me and I want payback. Yeah. Right. Okay, I'm glad we had this conversation. I'll take my answer off the air. (laughs) Would you like to respond to that, Pete? That was a a reasonable caller. Why can't the left be like that? I'd like to put a positive spin on it, which is like, like yesterday this happened. Last night, I fell in love with a complete stranger. and, and, And rather than wanting to kill people for all kinds of different reasons, I wanted to love somebody. You ever, I don't know if this happens, but you know, you see something on TV or on the internet and then you go down a rabbit hole chasing that person who you've never heard of. And now I'd never heard of this guy until last night. And then I fell hard for him in a sexual way, which was really weird for me because I have never been attracted to a man before until last night. So like, I'd love to go in in, in, and try to understand not only the revenge and and wanting to commit violence, but why did this random love just strike me right in my soul. Who is this person? He is a football player on the New York Jets uh, football team. He's a, a small man and and he like I'm a small man and like he was 
he, he's a really like star athlete and he's really good looking and he was the Val Victorian it's college. I, I learned everything about him and I'm very, I, I think I want to spend my life with him. And, and how much of that is a put on and how much of that is really true? Well, a lot of it's true in that I spent like probably an hour looking into this guy and looking up everything about him after seeing him play a, a sport. Who and is then, this? His name is Berrios. He's the near Jets. He's the near Jets wide receiver, and he's my height. He's five eight, and he's white. And I just felt like he was me. And yet, he except he's really good looking. And and sometimes, like when someone has it all, like I sometimes still fall for that kind of classic American jock guy. Um, but he's got to be smart and thoughtful, and this guy is. And so I really, you know, I'm feeling weird. Well, that's kind of interesting. All right, so forget the conversation we were just having by the way i'm not advocating violence i'm just saying i want to see the hate on the left that we i want to hear the same vitriol coming from the left that we hear from the right we don't see that by the way, if you, no i do but you you're making it too uh, if when you say it that way it make, it's different Earlier, you were making it more general. Like I was thinking about people in my life who have wronged me personally, you know, comedy club, you know, people and, and so on. When you say it this way, yes, I do want to murder Steve Bannon in front of his family. No, no, no. We're not talking about murder. Don't say that. Oh, well, I was, I mean, not murder, like real murder, like right. metaphorical right. murder. Right. We're not talking about any physical confrontation. We're talking about. You know, saying to Jeff, well, Bezos, he well, he is. <laughs> <laughs> I th don't you think we can get more done by making people angry on the left? Aren't we too reasonable? Um, I think I think it's hard to make people angry. I think that's where you you lose the. The story. I think that's kind of the difference between the right and the left. It, it it may be easier to get people fired up on the right about things about ghosts, things that aren't happening in my town. For example, everybody's really worried about critical race theory. It's not happening. I think that's a harder thing to do on the left. I think the left only gets outraged about actual things that happen, and then maybe not enough, or maybe it doesn't sustain. For example, the women's march in 2017 was the day after uh, a rapist was became the president. I was there for both. I was there for the inauguration and I was there covering the march. And I saw, you know, the, the kind of that, that rage that you're, you're, you're wondering about where it is. I, I witnessed it. There were like millions of women in the streets across, across the country and there was full out rage. And so it and needs that's to good. be about a thing. Yeah. That's but it good. needs to be about a thing that I think people feel and see happening. One question people are debating is if abortion is if Roe v. Wade right. is overturned, is that the animating thing that we need? My my point to you, Feldman, is we don't fall for ghosts the way they do on the right. We need a real thing, and that real thing, you know, we can talk about what it. Well, with that, and that is, be. in all seriousness, let me let me address that. So it was nice to see hundreds of thousands of women angry at someone other than I. That was the first thing about that I loved about the, the women's march. <laughs> Secondly, the Democrats disappeared. The leadership disappeared. They all went to a fundraiser after the inauguration. They didn't really show up for that march. They're afraid of the anger that comes 
from their own constituents, Pelosi, Schumer, Biden. They're afraid of our anger. They don't want to hear it because they're only willing to state the problem, but the solution challenges their wealth and power. That's the problem. I, I disagree with that vehemently. Uh, for I mean, we can cherry pick, but uh, for example, at the women's march, I was there backstage. A lot of the leadership was there. I saw them. Who? Uh, they spoke. They attended. They addressed. But who? I mean, who? was Pelosi your, your there? Criticism. Who was that? Was Pelosi there? Uh, Pelosi uh, was uh, for the sake of winning the argument. Yes, she was with me. But what, did no, she speak? I don't remember who was there. But I, but but, but, but they, were, they were doing a fundraiser the next day. Your criticism addressed it to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I don't think she's there for power or wealth. I don't think so. I don't buy it. I disagree with you. I agree with you I on agree. that. I agree with you on okay. that. Okay. And I think there's several others: Corey Bush, Anna Presley. I agree several with you. Other. Uh, who, who uh, this new, new, younger, uh, more diverse group, especially of women that aren't as likely to be there to seek power and, and wealth and influence as many of their predecessors. Right. So we know what the solutions are. The problem is we're not willing to scapegoat and victimize the people who cause all these problems. And I say we're not going to get anything done until we name names and, and say this is this person is evil. This corporation is evil. This organization is evil. They must be destroyed. They must be arrested. You know, instead of getting tough on, uh, you know, the African-American kid driving with an air freshener dangling from his rearview mirror, let's overreact and start rounding up Exxon Mobil and and the people who are destroying this planet. I think that's a hard strategy to uh, implement. And I think people like you, which is a phrase that can only be fouled by a very specific and harsh insult. <laughs> I'm just glad you called me a people. Actually, I'm not. I'm insulted that you called me. People, when is people, go ahead, when is people like you followed by something that one would welcome and appreciate? <laughs> people people like you. Yeah. It's people like you. People don't like me. People do like you, but it's people, I like you immensely. My audience loves you. I got so much great feedback from uh, your appearance on my podcast last week. People uh, said things like, I could listen to that David Feldman forever. Because it sure felt like I it have, when he was on. So, I'm, People like you, uh, they demand things that they can't implement. And it's a pipe dream. And, and then they sound like the people that they are criticizing on, on the right. It's like, why don't you get out there and do it? And it's like, well, people like you should come up with a strategy to implement this outrage. Well, I'm in, I'm implementing that strategy. You're doing nothing. I, I'm a, well, you, you don't know the new me. I'm an old <laughs> Testament lefty. That's oh, my, well, go ahead. What does it mean? It means uh, no forgiveness and don't eat shellfish or sleep with your sister's brother's mother. 
all Old Testament shit. Yeah. Old Testament left, Old Testament lefty. There's right and wrong, and as long as we're locking up 2.5 million Americans, let's start locking up the right ones. That's what I'm saying. We we built all these jails. We're casting the wrong people in them. I mean, listen, I obviously agree with you, and I think people do, in theory, the idea now. The question is, how do you do that? Let's talk about the legal strategies. Let's talk about the people, the type of personnel we need in power to carry that out in America is not known for accountability, Democrats or Republicans. It would be wonderful to see the reaction to what would happen if you held the architects of the Iraq war responsible, the architects of the financial crisis responsible, the torture regime there hold you them go. responsible. Yep, sure. And so the question, the criticism could be more pointed to, we need a Department of Justice, an attorney general who is willing to, or, you know, a Manhattan DA or other jurisdictions and, and, and prosecutors in these jurisdictions to carry out cases against. But of course, these crimes are very hard. They're hard to try. They're harder to try than, say, robbery, theft, and violent crime is, which is an easier uh, crime to try and, of course, penalize. And so I think because those people can't afford white shoe lawyers. Well, yes, that, but they're more black and white. They're more, it's harder to get away with and appeal and, and find loopholes in violent crime uh, versus more uh, white collar crime, which, you know, I always think about it this way. Violent crime affects, you know, the victim, the family, and, and maybe, you know, some people in that community. Of course, there's no doubt. There's no underplaying that. But these white collar crimes like I, the, the financial crisis destroyed millions and millions and millions of people's lives. The war in Iraq destroyed millions of people's lives. The the. You know what? Everything Donald Trump has wrought has destroyed millions of lives. And and where where's the accountability for those things? I mean, they're affecting so many more lives than the drive by shooting as horrible of a violent crime as it is. I what you need is somebody like me. And I'm thinking of running for office kind of like a Huey Long, kind of like a, a Huey Long, Bobby Short type of candidate where you can. Like I'm a demagogue who plays well at the Carlisle Hotel. Uh, the the question isn't your principle, your ability to leadership, and it's certainly not your intellect. The the thing I worry about as a supporter of yours is your energy levels. I I would be like a Father Coglin, a, a George Wallace, a I would take everything from the right that scared my parents. You know, a Dixiecrat. The yeah. Father Coglin and but just throw it at, at the left, at the right. I showed my hand. <laughs> I actually I actually spoke the truth. What I'm saying, I think I think the concern amongst your supporters and followers like me would be like, where's dear leader Feldman? We need him now. And people be like napping. Well, I am old. But but what I'm saying is there has to be somebody who's screaming inside a stadium saying these people have to pay they're murderers they we have to somebody has to be scaring the richest one percent the ones we are waiting for are here bernie sanders alexandria ocasio cortez katie porter uh as i mentioned earlier the the names i mentioned earlier my representative mondaire jones these people are in office they're new they're freshmen they're mostly young and then there's 
you know, Bernie Sanders. I mean, it's not like Bernie Sanders hasn't been doing exactly what you, 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 you're demanding a Democrat does. And yet you give him no credit. None. I love Bernie. I'm talking about we need an irrational firebrand, like a Father Coughlin on the left. Like an Alex Jones of the left? Some, no, somebody who's willing to scapegoat. We, we need to start. But it, doesn't, it's not, but, but it doesn't work on us. That's what I'm saying. Like the magic tricks that they use to obfuscate and to fire people up. You're saying we need that. And I'm telling you, it doesn't work with our brains. And but with it our feels good. It, feel, it, it would feel good. To go to a Feldman rally and, you know, I would be screaming at the top of my lungs, naming, naming the names, you know, naming Pelosi's children, Schumer's children, going after their kids and humiliating them and and talking about Josh Geidheimer's $50 million in stock trades. And then then I would collapse. I would just faint at the end of my... (laughs) And they'd carry me and people would they they would be afraid the powerful would be what are we going to do about this angry mob there's nobody nobody doing that say it again there's nobody doing that the reason why nobody does the thing is because it won't work it's not effective and that won't work on progressive minded folks. I think that AOC is screaming every single day and every platform she can social media, the house floor, the sidewalk in Queens. There's, I think she is doing that. I think Bernie Sanders has been screaming about climate change and taxes his entire career. They are doing that and they are scapegoating people, specific people, maybe not. To your to your liking, maybe not Democrats. There, there were de- Democratic colleagues in Congress. I, I said, I give you that. I give you that. AOC is not shouting out Josh Gottheimer's name. What if I, I do it? Probably that's since nobody's listening. What if I do it as an act, kind of like Jimmy Dore, where people think I'm a populist, but I'm selling merch. You know him. I know him well. Yeah, I know. What do you think? What do you I'd love to get your take on on what do you think he what you think? uh, To me, I I honestly struggle with do people I was just telling my who is my parents about this over Christmas. Do people believe this stuff or do they say because it's making them money and getting them clicks or do or at some point do they begin to believe it like. I just I have such a hard time with Jimmy. I guess maybe to be fair, I didn't know him as well as I thought I knew him. But I, I just thought he had way more integrity than that. But at the same time, sometimes comics that have been, you know, road dogs for 100 years and then start making a million dollars from their garage, you know, right. yelling into a mic. It's, it's almost not hard to blame them. You know, the thing with Jimmy is I wouldn't be doing a podcast if it weren't for Jimmy. I used to do his is that right? comedy and everything else. And then. We both got radio shows on Pacifica, which caters to the far, far left. And the, as you know, it's a cliche, the further you go to the left, the more likely you're going to run into the right. And, that, and, and, and so it's very you it's sometimes tempting to keep criticizing our side until you finally end up. Like, I find myself complaining it's more about Biden than I do Trump. It's not to me. It's not to me. And I've been at this game 
for 15 years in national media. And the reason is because I don't think it works. Like, I don't think it works. I think this idea of demanding purity from your politicians, you you must implement my policy or else is, is going to end. It ends as badly as you doing that in your partnership with your spouse. There has to be compromise with stinky, awful things because that's how you actually accomplish almost everything in life personally, professionally, and politically. And so while I might hate a politician and despise what they stand for, I would rather get something done. And so I'm that evil pragmatic. And it irks the shit out of me because I'm also a policy guy and I'm as far to the left as anybody I know on any policy, period. But I know that not everybody is, and I can't get them to be. So I've got to bring them over on this or that so we can, and I'm doing this locally at the local level where it's most effectively done. And I'm actually getting some results. All right. If you were, uh, what can you point to? We keep hearing about the demise of democracy. Do you believe mm. that we're really on the verge of losing our democracy? I do, unfortunately. Right, I do. So I'm I can. Very what am I missing here? You don't believe it? Uh, I'm scared, but if if democracy is on the verge of being lost, what the, it seems to me the solution would be Joe Manchin is compromised and is voting for build back better because i don't believe the bullshit that joe manchin is stopping build back better it seems to me you you sign a flurry of executive orders you be a little more aggressive in the last year that you're going to supposedly have any power you deliver results well i think that the the most important thing right now amongst experts that I interview to preserve what's left of our democracy is to pass the bills that the house has already passed, which it infuriates me that people I suspect like you long pause. So, you know, that the insults come in, um, don't give credit to the voting rights activists across this nation, especially in States like Georgia, who are the reason why Warnock and Ossoff became senators in Georgia. People like Stacey Abrams and, and Latasha Brown and so many other great voting rights activists. And don't give them credit because because of what they did at the grassroots level, the House of Representatives passed the John Lewis voting rights bill and whatever the other one is called. Two of them. It's the Senate that has to pass this. And if they do, and I think it's possible that they still will, with a simple majority, including Manchin voting for it, seeing as he's a co-sponsor in the bill, that will go the furthest to preserve what's left of our democracy by basically uh, uh, restoring the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted by John Roberts and his Supreme Court in 2010, and 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 then furthermore under Trump. And so I think that those laws, if the Senate can pass them, will will go much further to preserving our democracy, which uh, is you know, our last best hope, but you still have to contend with issues of the courts, especially the Supreme Court and other courts as well, and gerrymandering and redistricting, which makes it so much harder to get representative 
outcomes for elections at, at every level. I think that's a real, real tough issue. But again, those voting rights legislation would uh, would cure some of the ills that gerrymandering causes, according to journalists like David Daly, who are covering this otherwise boring issue as well as it possibly can be covered of redistricting and gerrymandering in a book called, I think, uh, Rat Fucked. <laughs> well, that that's the House gerrymandering affects the house but not the senate could an argument affect state 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 uh, as well yeah state districts, I, you know. I hear you and i listen i i agree with you on that is it possible that if the democrats had something to offer voters they would vote on time like they would make sure that they you just because you're making it hard for me to vote doesn't mean I'm not going to vote. I mean, isn't there a way to rev up the 99% and get them to register? And because this party, I think there it is. And I think it happens. I think it's happening across the country. I mean, I see grassroots activists, especially in black districts, you know, it's like the white people that are the lazy yeah. and, and, and fortunate more than anything else. Right. I, I think that's really important. The story of America in the last in American democracy in the last few years has been, you know, even with Obama's election has been a story of ordinary black folks doing, you know, giving up their lives and volunteering and organizing and, and changing and saving the country from Trump and from uh, the Republican Senate. I mean, it's, it's the whites uh, who are comfortable. And I think that Dr. King had something to say about the comfortable whites. Yeah. They're the yeah. problem, not the conservative racists, because we're not trying to reach those people. They're they're unreachable to some extent. It's the moderate whites who are comfortable in their in their lives and their in their in their homes and don't think they're affected. And before it's too late, they come for you and they will. And uh, that's why I told my daughters that they have to care about these things, unfortunately, because if they don't before they know it, uh, they'll come for them. How bad do you think things are going to get? Well, I'm an optimist. I, I, I somehow want, have to believe that some unknown just, thing. Just the Jews. It'll just get, I'm an optimist. It's just the Jews you're going to suffer. No, I'm an optimist. Muslims and Jews, gone. Let's just be clear. Uh, I think uh, Armenians somehow will slip through um, because they seem to cede power. I think... It's already gotten pretty bad for, I think, certain pe certain folks, for sure. Uh, but I, I, I think that it's going to get it's going to get harder. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to say how because I don't know. And I and I'm an optimist that likes to bleed. And I also I'm very active in my community trying to prevent and I see it working. Like, Are you running? I see us. I'm I'm very that I was recruited to run. Right. And I and I uh, and I might and I might in a, in a year uh, for town council. And what what is the oppo research showing? Have you done your own oppo research? Bad. That is definitely my concern. Uh, my anti-Catholic church material will not help me in this area. Mm. And what about your personal behavior? Is there anything you want to share with us? Any altercations that you regret? When, um, yeah, the one um, I used my power to try to hook up with a woman once my agent's assistant at a NACA conference. <laughs> I, we were drinking. I 100% thought she was interested in me. I walked her back to her hotel room and tried to kiss her. And she's like, what's wrong with you? 
And I was like, nothing, and I ran. I would have said everything. Everything, and I ran. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I um, hope you do. I think you, I would it. vote for you. Thank you. I would vote for you. Pete Dominic is the host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic, a great podcast where they really talk about things, and you're you're actually looking for solutions. You're not you're not a a demagogue like me, a showboater. Well, I had you on the show last week, and everybody loved it, uh, especially your take on uh, diet and food and ethics and morals. What, but were also, the, what were the complaints? Were there any complaints? No, not at all. I didn't get not, any not, complaints. Not one, not one negative comment. Nobody whatsoever. said I hated I had, him. I had, I, I had a complaint um, about a technical issue that we that we were having, but I edited it out, so it was oh. fine. Where I was funnier than you. That was the issue. I edited out every, I left in two of your jokes, but I edited out the five that were better than mine. Good. Because I, I can't be having that. Right, right. You know, someone once said um, that when, I'll, I know you get to go or on to your next guest, but I'll leave you on this. The, um, when the Tonight Show, when Johnny had, you know, Robin Williams on and Robin Williams or Jonathan Winters, whoever would go off the wall and it'd be hilarious. The next day, no one would say, did you see Robin Williams last night on The Tonight Show? They would say, did you see The Tonight Show? Johnny always got credit because Johnny always would bring out the best or a good host brings out the best in their guest. That's why my podcast is so great. I book great guests like yourself and I set them up to succeed as opposed to to fail. And you just knock it out of the park every time. And that's the difference between you and me when somebody you try to sabotage when somebody succeeds a big part of me dies <laughs> <laughs> all right pete dominic stand up with pete alive. stand up with pete dominic i'll see you next year get it and your and your epidermis your epidermis is showing did you do that in school oh, i didn't realize that your epidermis thank you okay thank you pete Thank you very much. Thank you. I love you. I love you too. Thank you. Now let's go to Los Angeles. Howie, are you there? I hear. Speaking of people we love, Howie Klein joins us. He is I can't just said that that about uh when someone succeeds uh, a piece of you dies. You you can't believe that I said that? Yeah. I I mean I hope it was just a joke. Of course it's a joke. Thank God. Nobody I mean, would. one of my best friends is actually like that in a way. Uh, and it's really annoying. Uh, there are people like that. I think mostly Republicans, but uh, it's awful. Yeah. Now, do you, do you have a guest for us tonight? No, we, we were going to uh, have someone, but um, a relative of hers is, is ill and uh, and just took a very serious turn for the worse. Oh, okay. So she's going to hopefully join us next week instead. All right. I was going to I was going to say I'm not going to I hope she, hope that person gets better. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. They raise money for progressive candidates around America, more and more DSA candidates or at least affiliated with the DSA. And he writes down with tyranny, which is must reading. I know you want to talk about things, but it is the end of the year. This is our last 
show for 2021. On today's program, I have been asking people about these Cassandras warning us about the demise of democracy. I'm scared. You know, I'm easily scared. I voted for Biden. Uh, but I'm scared, too. That's why I didn't vote for Biden. With uh, we have a year left before the Democrats lose the House and the Senate. So <laughs> speaking of Cassandra. <laughs> yeah, I know. And all the Democrats can do all the people uh, on the center left can say is we're about to lose our democracy. But what are they offering? What are they offering to, to stop this from happening? Well, it depends who you talk to. I mean, uh, as a party, they're not offering much. They're offering that. You know, they're the scare tactics. We're going to lose our democracy, which may be true. Uh, and then if you, as you move further to the left, there's a lot of frustration because there are a lot of really good policies that they've worked out to address these issues that have been piling up for not years but decades and uh, and they can't get it get it through a very very tight uh, Congress, tightly okay. divided between conservatives and, and uh, progressives, and then the people in the middle sort of you know go to one side or the other. L let me play devil's advocate here. What okay. does the end of our democracy look like? Is it Pinochet? Is it a generalissimo? Is it a de facto or de jour? fascist state or do we just install you know a puppet what what does the end of democracy look like and how different is it and i i'm not trying to trivialize the threat how different would it be from what we have now <laughs> how the fuck do i know uh what i see happening is uh you know uh First of all, we all see that voting rights are, are being taken away. And if they win on a, on a little thing here, then they move to a bigger thing there. So that's, so that's one Can part of- Can I ask of, you about that? Uh, let me go point by point with you. Voting rights. Stacey yes. Abrams. Uh, yes. That election was just stolen outright. I agree. Kemp just stole the election. Is there anything- Great. In, in, the, in the John Lewis bill that would prevent a secretary of state from just scrubbing black people off the voter rolls? Uh, well, I don't know. Let me, read, let me read it to you. I have it here somewhere. Okay, this looks like it. Here's what, oh, this is the, uh, the Freedom to Vote Act is what it's called now, right? Okay. So uh, this is what it does. It makes election. This is the compromise that, that they worked out with Manchin. This is, so this is, if anything passes, this is what it is. It makes election day a holiday. Does that, uh, what does that do? So it allows more working class people to vote. Uh, they, it ends gerrymandering. So that doesn't address the problem that you're talking about, but it's very, very important on, on, um, on many levels, both statewide and, and federally. Number three, it combats anti-voting laws working their way through state legislatures. That more 
that's more of a uh, addresses uh, what you were talking about, but not fully. It requires states to allow 15 days of early voting, including two weekends. It massively expands voting access through automatic voter registration and election day registration. It in- increases election security by creating a national standard for voter verified paper ballots. It implements a national voter ID standard with reasonable alternatives like utility bills or bank statements. So that that's the one that the, the conservatives insisted on. Right. It requires voting machines be made in the U.S. So they can't be made. Yeah. <laughs> they can't be made in Venezuela in the past anymore. Right. It it protects nonpartisan election officials from partisan interference. Right. It shines. That's important. It shines a light on dark money. And and when it says it's trying to light, it means it exposes who's giving it. It doesn't stop it from happening. And it makes it harder for billionaires and special interests to buy elections. Well, I don't know how they do that, but that's that's the bill. That's the, the things that the bill is supposed to cover now. And that sounds pretty great. And then you're going to ask if it has any chance of winning. Does it have any no. chance of winning? It doesn't have any chance. No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, the and only way fault, could, is it can it be done through reconciliation? No, it, it, reconciliation is only a, a financial bill. The only it has to be a finance, about finance can't be about this. So so this could only be done if there was a filibuster carve out. Now, they've done filibuster carve outs before. So if there was a filibuster carve out, carve out to to protect democracy, they could do that. And that's the hope. That they're gonna, that, that that I mean, that's the only way this can pass. So I'm kind of thinking that maybe Manchin is on board with this because uh, since he he had a big part in writing this, or maybe not. You know, I mean, the 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 person standing in the way of this happening is McConnell. The irony here is that th- there's so much now surfacing about how uh, people on the far right, some of their 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 like you know the. Marjorie Trader Greens and the Lauren Boberts, these people, they're going after conservatives. That's their that's who they're focusing on now as their enemy is conservatives. These are full blown fascists. I was I was reading a quote today from from a candidate, Joe Kent. So he's the Trump candidate who's running in Washington state against uh, uh, what's her name? Jamie Herrera Bootler. Uh, so. So she's a she's a Republican. She's a conservative Republican. She voted for impeachment. Trump's got this guy, a military guy named Joe Kent, who's running against her. And he was going on and on. When I get to Congress, I don't care about the Democrats. I'm not focusing on them. I'm focusing on Republicans. So that's what those are our enemies. And he just went on and on about this. Uh, I, I wrote a post about it that I think is going up tomorrow, I believe, either, either tomorrow or late tonight. Um, but that's, you know, someone like McConnell, I think he realizes that he is a major target for these fascists and yet he is preventing this from moving forward. Why should he, why should he, he not, why should he be against this? Can you tell me? Why no, should McConnell? He shouldn't. There's no reason to be against this. I, I mean, except that it will broaden the franchise or, or, not shrink the, the franchise. So more people will be allowed to vote. Conservatives have always been against 
more people voting. From from the time conservatives were invented as a thing, they have opposed more people voting. And that every single expansion of the franchise to people, younger people, to uh, to women, to uh, to any group at all, ex slaves. This has been uh, this has been a fight between progressives and uh, conservatives. Conservatives always being opposed to expanding the franchise, and progressives always pushing it. And in the end, progressives win. Now, what conservatives are trying to do is have a reactionary um, uh, go at it, where they're trying to turn back the hands of time, and that's and that and that's what they, that's what they're doing now. This bill is, is meant to address that. And uh, and and McConnell is making a very very big mistake by opposing it, because they are going to suffer. He and and the other conservatives are going to suffer. And these fascists are being fairly open now about that. There's more and more coming out every day, uh, where, you, where you can listen to the words of, of Madison Cawthorn or or of Matt Gates, where they're actually saying who their enemy is, and they're just ignoring Democrats for now or or. or just paying lip service to Democrats and and saying they've got to go after uh, disloyal Republicans first, meaning meaning conservatives, not fascists. If you're not a fascist, um, there's something wrong with you in their world. So there's a lot for me to digest here. The there are fascists who are running for office in the Republican Party, who and there are also just already in office. So you got both. And McConnell is not a fascist. Lindsey Graham is not a fascist, but they will accommodate. They're conservative. They will They're hard conservatives. A conservative is different from a fascist. I mean, everyone who has looked at the rise of Nazism and the fall of the Weimar Republic understands that the, conserv- the conservatives in Germany, in the, in the Weimar Republic, they did just what McConnell is doing. They played footsie with Hitler, the fascist. And they wound up uh, getting eaten alive themselves. Right, right. The idea, you had warned me in 2018, you said there are a lot of Republicans who are retiring. They're heading for the doors. I said, isn't that good? And you said, well, it's good for the Democrats. This is what you said in 2018. You said it's good for the Democrats temporarily. It means they'll win the House. You said, but it's not good for the Republican Party because all the conservatives are heading for the door and the ones who are going to replace them are the fascists. And is there a sense in the Republican Party, you don't talk to Republicans, is there a sense that there's a fight for what's left of the soul of the Republican Yes, Party. I do talk to Republicans, by the way. And so it looks like you can't stop the Republican Party from going full fascist. What happens then? Then, then they come. Then we have Bill Kristol coming over to the Democrats. Right. Then 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 we're infiltrated by more right wingers. Yes, that's right. Exactly right. So, you know, it's likely 
that there'll be this fascist party on the right, you know, what's left of the Republicans. Then there'll be a progressive party on the left, the real progressive party. And then in the middle will be, you know, the McConnell type Republicans and the Steny Hoyer, Nancy Pelosi type Democrat. I don't know about Pelosi, but the Steny Hoyer type Democrats. So it'll be the Republican wing of the Democratic Party, the new the new Dems, blue dogs joining with the rump of the Republican Party that didn't go over to fascism. Right. That, that's what I see. I've written about it for years now. And, uh, you know, I, I just hope that the, the progressives, you know, finally, like, you know, do it. I mean, it's, it's going to be painful to be horrifying for them. But at some point, they have to do it. Leave the Democratic Party. And, and, and have a progressive party. The Democratic Party is incapable of getting anything done. The tent is too big. They purposely uh, uh, went for a big tent and they bragged about it. And now they've got the big tent and nothing can happen. Can't right. do a thing. So you said something that cha partly changed my mind about the, this warning about democracy. It seems to me that they're laying the intellectual groundwork for a big push for this voting rights bill that when I see all these neoliberal historians and mainstream media journalists warning about the demise of democracy, it's to scare us into supporting this voting rights bill. Why do we have to be scared into supporting it? I don't think uh, enough Americans care about the plight of our democracy. I think they're more concerned about being evicted, getting COVID, paying off their student debts. I, I don't think most Americans are worried about our democracy. Because the, I, I think most Americans don't believe we are a democracy. I think most Americans don't. <laughs> you know, 100 million of us don't vote, right? It's 100 million who stay home. So there are a lot of people who who do care about this issue. There are a lot of people who who look at it in, in a different way. Republicans tend to think there's a problem with uh, voting rights. Also, they just think that the problem is the Democrats who are stealing elections. So, you know, the, the, so there are there is a base for for uh, voting for this thing. Is, and if someone is worried about being evicted, that's going to take a much bigger priority. If someone is worried that they can't pay for their drugs and they're going to die, that's a much bigger priority. But that doesn't mean that they're not also concerned about about a Voting Rights Act on some on, on a lesser level. People, especially who are being targeted by these Republican legislatures uh, and who are losing their ability to participate in a democracy, whatever is left of a democracy. There may maybe they're more concerned about it. There are people who are concerned, and there are people who aren't. So left to their own devices, are the fascists a monolithic entity in the Republican Party? Are they all on the same page? Do they know exactly what they want, or are they going to hive off into? No, they're, oh, they're fighting with each other already. I, I'm sure you've read some of the uh, the the comments from some of these fascist commentators about Trump after he endorsed the horror of, uh, of getting vaccinated. Right. Not, not, 
he didn't endorse mandates. He just said, I'm vaccinated. I've, I've gotten my booster. Uh, and you know, it'll help you from dying. It'll keep you from dying. He said that twice. And the, 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 the kickback against him has been amazing. I mean, the woman he said it to, uh, implied that he was senile. Oh, Candace Owens. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Candace. And then the next day, Alex Jones went even further saying that he's either, it was basically either he's stupid or he's evil. Take your choice. (laughs) So yeah, they, the fascists are insane and they're going to definitely fight with each other. So, and by the way, Alex Jones, just like they did in Hitler's time, by the way, until they, until they finally coalesced, uh, under, you know, a very, very strict authoritarianism and you weren't allowed to criticize. I mean, what Hitler did was, um, you know, when he, when he killed off, uh, what, what's his name? Ernst Uh, Ernst Rome. Rome. That's right. Yeah. The gay Nazi. The gay Nazi. So that's how it plays out, that you have these true believers who are absolutely insane. They might believe things that are different from one another. And then the true leader comes in and says, you're all going to believe one crazy idea or we'll kill you. That's how it works. Eventually, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I'm just citing what happened in, in Germany. I'm not saying that that's exactly what's going to happen here. I'm just saying that that's, you know, that's how it happened there and then. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen here. I, I can tell you, you know, like when you ask me, like, are they going to fight with each other? The answer is yes, they're going to fight with each other. That's what they do. That's what they're doing already. And this hyper-individualism that we're seeing in the United States Wait, you're not trying to insinuate that that's new, right? Well, it's being celebrated that we're, you know, it's the idea that we're either taught to believe you're you help yourselves, you help yourself first and then others. Or or, maybe not others at all. Or maybe not others at all, but you think about yourself. That is just late age capitalism. It, it's late stage capitalism, which lends itself to an authoritarian fascist regime because you it, it falls into that. I agree, because if you're only thinking about yourself, you can convince enough people that Franco, Mussolini and Hitler won't be coming for you. And you'll say, you know, I can I, I, I'll keep my mouth shut because. I don't approve of what they're doing to the blanks, but, you know, it, it, just give it time and they'll come around. That's we're ripe for that kind of thinking. A total submission to an authoritarian state. Which we've already done, kind of, right? Yes. When you say we, you what, what do you mean, like a majority of Americans? I mean, not you and I. Well, I was talking to my sister about we were bused to a uh, uh, to a uh, primarily African-American school. And there is this phenomenon of white liberals, leftists who talk a big game. But when it came time to send their kid to school with the blacks or the Puerto Ricans, they weren't willing to 
sacrifice their precious child's education, even though they would have gotten a better education going to an integrated school. I think there are a lot of people who will wring their hands about our democracy, uh, the, the death rattle of our democracy, but when push comes to shove, they're not going to send their kid to the front lines to fight for democracy, or they're not going to do it. I think most liberals, most Democrats, most people who are running the party have too much skin in the game, no matter what kind of system we're operating under. I think, and I think you could convince, I think it can be de jour or de facto. I, I think they'll figure out a way to make it de facto. We'll be a de facto fascist state, but nobody will admit it to themselves. Well, there'll be people saying it. Like there, are, there have been for years people saying it, and more and more people are saying it now. You know, there, there was a fantastic article um, in the Atlantic this morning. Too bad I can't remember who wrote it. But um, I, I, I just loved it. I, I thought it was so well written. And it was. And then at the, by the end of it, though, it was very, very, very. Is this long about written. democracy? Yeah. I think it's Gelman it, it or something. Gelman? No, it wasn't Gelman. He's great also. I mean, I. Um, the producer of. Uh, Regis and Kathy. That's how old I am. I call it Regis and Kathy. Gelman. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So he no, talked anyway. about that, that January 6th was the, you know, the tryout for the big thing, right? That's the one. That's the article. Yeah. And what I, what I didn't like is that he kept letting um, the people he was talking to get away <clears throat> with calling fascist conservatives, and he was doing it himself. So it was a great article, fantastic, but there was that one little thing that he, he just didn't get, he just didn't go there, never mentioned the word fascist. And, and yet, you know, what is it, like the, the worst conservatives are going after the less worst conservatives? No, it's the fascists that are going after the conservatives. In any case, he, the, uh, the hate talk radio guy that he that he spent so much time talking about just, uh, you know, kept on saying, you know, where we, you know, we conservatives are being, uh, you know, being abused by fascists, meaning Democrats. And, you know, people reading this and don't who don't, might not understand they, they weren't given a, a clear direction by the writer. Other than that, great, great piece. And, and everyone should read it. And I think I wrote about it uh, in a story coming out later tonight or tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry, can't, I can't be more clear about that. Let's talk about our generation's Dr. Strangelove. You wrote about it over at Down With Tyranny. I loved it. I loved it. I just loved it. Did you see it? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Okay, so it, it, so we can talk about it a little bit, but I always like am nervous about talking about something that that other people don't know what you're talking about. They just tune out. Uh, you know, whether it's music or or a piece of art or in this case a film. But uh, we're talking about um, don't look up, which many people, not all people, some people don't like it, but many people saying it's the best movie of the year. Yeah, it's where it's do you the, stand on that? I think it's the only movie of the year that that I I watched and thought this is uh, about something. 
Yeah, it's Adam McKay. Everything Adam McKay does is is important. Adam McKay did the pilot. He directed the pilot for Succession. If you want a, a master's class in coming up with an idea for a series, watch the pilot episode of Succession directed by Adam McKay. It's it's yeah, he, he is quite amazing. He but is. this was this was uh, although he gives Adam McKay huge credit. Uh, David Sirota came up with this idea, right. and David Sirota is, is listed uh, in the credits as right. a, uh, a producer. And Ron and, Suskind. Um, and Ron Suskind. Yes, as a producer. So it, yeah, go ahead. It's it, it's so good and so funny. I mean, people who say, "Well, they couldn't laugh about it because it was too serious," are insane. I mean, I was like literally laying on my cat on my couch alone. I was watching it alone, just laughing and laughing and really belly laughs right. at some, at some of these people. I mean, I, I'm i not like a huge fan of, um, uh, what's her name, the woman who played uh, uh, Trump in this thing? Meryl, you're not a fan of Meryl Streep? Not a huge fan of Meryl Streep. I don't mind her. But I loved her in this. She was right. so great. I mean, she was portraying like someone who is, isn't quite as stupid as, as Trump, but Trump. Right. So now, and then, I, I don't want to give it away, but... The, the, the ending for her was like so f completely fantastic yes. that I'll never forget it. Yeah. The story is incredible. There are little moves that they do about the comet heading towards the Earth. I, I won't give it away, but the, it, it's such a smart indictment of us and and the profiteers and how we're, how we're approaching climate change yeah. this is what this is all about yeah. Yeah. i mean you know i heard uh, in fact i i have the video embedded uh of 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 um david sirota talking about how that's how they came up with it he sat down with mckay and he said we've got to do a movie about climate change right and, and this literally they they came up, up with this climate change is not mentioned once in the movie yeah <laughs> you're right little... you're right you have to have a little bit of imagination to be able to know what they're talking about. But right. the comet is just a, a symbol of climate change and how government and, and media, how government and media don't deal with it. Right. The speech that Leonardo DiCaprio gives, his Jeremiah uh, is breathtaking, and he's spent most of his adult life fighting for the planet. Let me test you. I was talking to a friend about the movie. Who do you the Mark? Is it Mark Ryland who plays the the CEO of Bash? The the who do, you, who do you think that 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 who would you would you say that's like a mashup of of our uh, of our top billionaires? No, I, <laughs> I figured it out. It's okay. Doe from Heaven's Gate. Remember Doe? No, you don't remember Doe? I don't even remember Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate was the greatest cult in the history of stupidity out of San Diego, where he convinced everybody to put on Nike sneakers, cut oh, off. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I thought you were referring to was that a, that wasn't a movie or was a movie? No, it was a real guy. He, he it was a guy who, who who Doe failed at musical theater on Broadway. He moved to San Diego. And he started a cult and he convinced everybody to cut their balls off, put on Nike <laughs> sneakers and kill yourself and that we were going to fly to the, the comet. I think it was Cajote. I, I, I remember. And they were it was like sort of like in a suburban house. That yes, in San Diego. 
And I'm yes. like, that's who I, I'm. I don't. I'll ask somebody to ask Adam McKay, but I think that's who the Mark Ryland character is partly based off. The guy who wanted to fly to the comet. Doe. His name was Doe. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I, I won't disagree with you that that was part of it, but I was thinking more in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the owner of, um, uh, 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 like Zuckerberg or, yeah, it's an amalgamation, but I think Zuckerberg, as much as I was thinking about, um, the other one, uh, oh, all right. The guy who owns Amazon, the guy right. who owns, uh, uh, that, 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 um, Hell is it that company Elon Musk that's privatizing uh, space travel? Yeah, Amazon, Elon Musk. Uh, yes, Elon Musk. Thank right. you. I, I, it was on but, my tongue. But yes, I think it was based. I think Adam McKay. Here's my theory: that Sirota and Adam McKay wrote it that way, and I think the guy's name is Ryland. Played it like Doe from Heaven's Gate. That's where, you know, I think the actor has to find the character. And I think he came up with, I would love to find out. Uh, but most importantly, everybody look up Doe from Heaven's Gate. It's been close to 25 years. Nobody has, in terms of death cults, the closest I'd come to is the Republican Party. But they even the Republican Party. Isn't that like a cheap joke? What I what do you expect anything more from me than a cheap joke? <laughs> you think I'm capable of anything other than playing to the lowest common denominator? Your predictions. <laughs> what are we talking about in a month before we go? What is your prediction? It's the end of the year. What is your prediction? In a month? In a month. What's going to happen like on on in the end of by the end of January? What will what will January 6th bring what will the one-year anniversary bring and i don't we'll... think too much I, I i i do see the um the committee coming up with uh you know they're, they're, they're starting to move at a more rapid pace and i think they're going to come up with some great stuff how about that as a prediction great well i'm great thank you for a great year we love you here and next we'll we'll start bringing on some more candidates next time i talk to you I have to defend the Democratic Party, or at least the people. There are no candidates. It's interesting. Until the progressives splinter off, every candidate you're bringing on is running in the Democratic Party, right? Right, but they're, they're all pretty critical of the Democratic Party. So they are right. all running as Democrats, uh, and you know they're trying to have a smile about it, but... But but some of them very openly uh, are feel the same way about the Democratic Party that we do. Yeah. Howie Klein, read him over at Down With Tyranny every day. He is also the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive candidates and DSA candidates around America. I think he's endorsed every member of the squad before they got elected. Is there any member of the squad you didn't endorse. I'm embarrassed to say that there is. We didn't, and, and it's for a very specific reason. Ariana and Presley. Yes. Yeah. And the reason was because she was running against a good, a good uh, progressive. Um, and I just felt, you know, why put our energies into 
you know, helping someone to run against someone who's already very good. So we had endorsed in, in previous elections and who had done great things. But in the end, she was, she was, you know, she's better than he is. But she's the least squattiest of the squad. Would you say that? No, I wouldn't. Oh, okay. I'm wrong. All right. Thank you, Howie Klein. We'll talk to you next week. All right, David. Next year. Next, next year, year. Next year. And your epidermis <laughs> is showing. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Howie Klein. Very grateful that we have him on the show. And I'm very grateful for our next guest who says he's going to bring the show to a grinding halt. Well, the joke's on you, John Ross. I already did that. So there. Yeah, no, I, uh, trust me, I know. <laughs> I, had a whole, I had a whole other thing planned, but I, I think I got to throw that out. Uh, first of all, I caught a little bit of the beginning of your show. Yes. Your, your, your opening, I don't know what you call that, yeah. Um, and all I have to say is um, Alex Jones better watch out. <laughs> there's, there's a new insane guy on the block. I, I don't. A bunch of idiotic nonsense. Yeah. I, yeah. I'll give you that. I never Thanks. pretend and, to be and, anything yeah. other than insane. Now, let me give you a little history lesson. Okay. Because because those who, what do they say? Those who uh, forget, forget history, history become are, Republicans. Well, I remember a guy. See, the, the, the theme of the show so far has been, yeah, they're telling us about, hey, oh, be afraid that we're going to lose our democracy. Oh, that's them telling I remember a guy who, uh, what was it, about two years ago, was going, yeah, this this coronavirus thing. I think, I don't think this is going to be, what, it's like a cold, right? It's, they're trying to whip oh, us up into a frenzy. Busted. Do you remember any of this? Busted. I was about to write you a, a thing, and then a guy that called the uh, irritable immunologist got a hold of you mm -hmm. and shook some fucking sense into you, yeah. and now where are we? Okay, you want to know? Well, so what's this look like if we lose our democracy? Right. Look, you want me? To, yeah, you go know ahead. What it looks like? Go, well, yeah. You know what it is like? Just, just think about this. All right. Okay. And and some of this is like it's it sounds far out, but when you when we, however many years ago, let's say eight years ago, if you had said Donald Trump would be president. Right. Get the fuck out of here. You couldn't imagine it. So whatever's going to happen next is something that you can't imagine right now. Right. 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 OK. So conventional wisdom seems to be we're going to lose the House. We say we who's we Kimosabi, but the Democrats right, right are going to lose the House. OK. And you well know they can appoint any uh, buddy they want for speaker. Right. Donald Trump is speaker. Third in line for the president. Okay. First thing they do, oh, let's impeach Brandon and Kamala. And out they go. Trump's president. Let's say he can appoint a vice president. Stephen Miller is vice president. That's my phone ringing. Let me shut that off. He's right. I, uh, in February of 2020, I said something to the effect of maybe this COVID virus. I said, America gets lucky. That's what I said. We get lucky. Is it as bad as 
they're scary. And that, they were, that they were that the media was whipping it up because it was good for ratings and they're selling papers and cable. Yeah, TV, I, blah, blah, blah. I said anyway, it in early anyway. March of this right. year. Right. <laughs> of this year. Right. <laughs> no, I said it in 2020. In the right. beginning. Back to where yeah. back to where we are. Try to imagine this. OK. OK. Trump president. Steve Miller or Steve Bannon as vice president. Okay. Uh, Jim Jim Jordan is chief of staff. Um, Rudy Giuliani is your attorney general. Sidney Powell is the uh, uh, deputy attorney general. Um, Mike Lindell, secretary of the interior. Tucker Carlson is whatever you want. Uh, secretary of labor or education. Uh, the whole cabinet. Try to imagine it. I'm imagining. Um, I'm thinking it'll be a great off. bit. You should sell this to Kevin Pollack. He can do all of them. Yeah, but, it's a 90 minute right. bit. But 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 it's not a bit. Those are the people. Gosar, um, Bobert, Cawthorn as, um, you know, the secretary of energy. No, uh, Cawthorn, I would give security. transportation for Cawthorn. Okay, transportation. Very good. Very funny. Matt Gates, like people in real fucking power. That's who you are. And and what? So what starts to happen then? And nothing. None of them. Get, they all get passed right through, because you know it's all been fixed. So what happens? Is is that like? Oh, it's the same as now. People are worried. That's fucking crazy. You're out of your fucking mind if you're not terrified that we have to make sure that people can actually vote. Well, I had an Uncle Murray who said something very wise. He was living in Berlin. And I remember in 1933, he said, this too shall pass. And Uncle Murray was right. I mean, look at Germany now. This too shall pass. Well, uh, yes. I mean, in the back of my mind, I go to I catastrophize and I don't want to have a panic attack. Well, could an argument be made that no. the system ground Trump down that it that that when you look back at the, his his four years, as bad as he was and as damaging as he was to the Muslim community and the separation of parents from their kids, which is still kind of happening. As bad as he was, there were systems in place that there were still some right. institutional checks and balances that prevented him from fully right. getting what he wanted. Right. And what, and what we're saying now is all those would be gone. Well, wh what happens when... Because because all of the people who are still in places uh, are are all gone. Now it's like there were some people. Uh, 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 you know, Mike Pompeo is as bad and as fucking horrible as he is. Is not Matt Gates. You know, is not you know Tucker Carlson. Is not Sean Hannity. Those are the like Lauren Boebert. Marjorie Taylor Greene. What if Marjorie Taylor Greene is secretary of state is flying over? Seriously, you laugh. But Marjorie Taylor Greene is suddenly secretary of state and she's flying over or, or Lauren Boebert. And she's got her guns and she's there going, OK, we're Americans. And we like that's 
there's all the checks and balances are gone. There's nobody. There's no more grownups anywhere in sight. Well, yes, you're, you're being a little hysterical. Uh, but 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 that's my point is we couldn't imagine Trump. So we have to try to imagine the thing you can't imagine. Right. This is the thing you can't imagine. Okay, I, there's six, all look, Marjorie Taylor Greene is insane. Right. So we're talking about like, let's put insane people in all these positions. What happens? Right. But that is how we end up bailing out the, that kind of talk is how we ended up bailing out the banks and invading Iraq and Afghanistan after 9-11. That's what that was what Dick Cheney, Ron Suskind wrote a book about this, where you have to imagine the one percent. The, the, Cheney said you have to do you have to prepare this country for the unimaginable. Well, he was what was unimaginable, the invasion of Iraq. When you try to anticipate the unimaginable, you're going to go to insanity. You're going to go to Hitler. I'm saying we're I'm, I'm saying Franco. I'm saying not as bad as Hitler. Franco, maybe Pinochet. So calm down. We're only looking at 18 years of uh, a generalissimo. Look. All right. You're right. I, I, I'm 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 overreacting. All right, so tell me how bad it's going to get. Tell me. So what? Okay. So no, no. Okay. So Trump is Speaker of the House, and then President. Let's say. And they impeach. You need what? Three quarters of the Senate to impeach. Two thirds. What is it? Yep. And, well, you know, whatever it is, but or. Which you can't. If they're it's not, not gonna, this time. It, if it's not this time, it's next time. Once they have control of all of the voting machinery, then it doesn't matter. Look, there, there are places where there's uh, they've gone from like 20, you know, or 10 voting places to one in 23 miles in Georgia where there's no mass transit, no mass transit. So how is somebody going to go 23 miles on a Tuesday uh, they, they just can't. It's impossible. Like they they're just going to and then they're going to fix it to where even if people did do it, they can just change and it's it. against so, the law to drive them to vote. Right. And it's yes, they've just completely, you know, they they are fixing it so that there's nothing that can be done. So, look, well, let me ask you a question Go ahead. between you and me. OK. It's not going to be bad for the Jews. No, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> it's not be bad. It's not, they're not going to turn on the Jews. No. When is that ever? Happened? It's not going to happen. They're not going to scapegoat the Jews. So write it out. What are you so yeah, hysterical I about? I'm not, I, I look, I have I have a, a kid. That's why I, you have a I, kid. Yeah. So so you're you're scaring the shit out of me. Oh, I'm sorry, but they're not going to and they're not going to come for somebody like me. No, they're not going to come for you. No, no, you'll be OK. I'll be OK. I'm not saying anything that challenges anybody. It's well, all know, a joke. With they me. know nobody. Huh? <laughs> they know nobody listens. Nobody's like the NSA would come back to President Generalissimo Trump and go, listen, you're not you're not paying me enough. 
I can, yeah, yeah, they come, they come back and go. It's like eight hours. They listen to like the first twenty minutes, and he's good. Like, he's good. <laughs> so play it out. How bad does it get? And then what happens? We become a Christian theocracy. Yeah, I mean, would you convert? Sure. Would you be a converso? Um. Yeah, why not? I, that seems like. Uh, Would you name names? There is, Would you name is there, names? Um, what is the what are the, what names do they want? People who claim that they're converted, but they're still practicing in their basement, their old mm. religion. Would you name names? In a second, in a yeah. if I could get a show on state TV in a second, I would turn you in. Yeah, in a, I would just no, turn you in. Yeah, I know. Well, that's your earlier thing about revenge. I mean, I yeah, know I don't know what I need revenge it. on. But uh, now what about revenge? What's wrong not, with revenge? Uh, I think Pete Dominic said it. It poisons your soul. But I'm already poisoned. Maybe that's it would purify so maybe, my soul. Yeah, you know what? It would be like in the cartoon where, you know, you get bonked on the head and you get amnesia and they bonk you again and then you get your brain back. And it would be like that. Like, you got no soul and then a little bit more revenge and suddenly you... That reminds me of a Christmas carol. You know what they should do? Here's a, a pitch for you. Take this to your big showbiz friends. Um, I want the modern Christmas carol, okay, where um, Scrooge, right, uh, who was how old is he in the christmas carol he's like 75 80 years old right he marries some super young hot you know trophy wife right and he has scrooge jr right scrooge in the jr. meantime he has scrooge jr and in the meantime tiny tim has grown up and he started a business and scrooge has the business and scrooge scrooge jr scrooge jr's business destroys tiny tim's business because tiny tim is always giving workers time off uh -huh. he's letting them leave early on christmas eve uh -huh. and so suddenly you know uh, scrooge jr's grinds him into the ground because uh -huh. that's how it would actually work i like that i watched right? the big etv was running mm -hmm. it's a wonderful life on christmas uh -huh. on christmas yeah and i thought all right i'm not gonna watch this it's i mean I, I've seen it so many times 40 years ago. I'm not going to... And it starts, right. and I go, oh, my... When the Donna Reed... When young Donna Reed whispers... In, I'm getting the chills now. When she whispers into young Jimmy Stewart's bad ear, I'm going to... I'm in love with you, and I'm going to love you for the rest of my life. I, I almost started blubbering. And then E brought on a... A keeping up with the Kardashians commercial and it went vroom, just like yeah. I, I'm so like yeah. is does anybody watch commercial television how do you watch yeah. it's a wonderful yeah. life see Ryan Seacrest's yes. Botoxed face and then go back to Jimmy Stewart how can you it's like coitus interruptus does anybody watch this shit no I don't think so I mean every once in a while like um, in order to watch like there's like if we wanted to watch Saturday Night Live, if we don't have the, you know, Peacock Plus or whatever you need right. to watch it, you can watch it with commercials. 
So right. stuff like that, it's sketches, you know, the commercials are sketches in between sketches. So yeah, but, but yeah, I would never watch a movie or anything. I, like I, I was, I got completely like, that was it. You ruined the mood for me. It's like when the dog farts, you're making love to a beautiful woman and her dog farts and you go, that's it. I'm going home. All right. It was Seriously? me. It was me, but it could have been the dog. She. So what did you watch for Christmas? What were the movies that you and your family enjoyed? Uh, Are you, you a know, succession um, person? Uh, am I what? Are you team succession or team billions? Yes. Um, we liked billions in the beginning and then it uh, completely went off the rails and got terrible and boy the writing got bad uh and it just became awful but um no succession is phenomenal yes uh so yeah yes. we we lap that up every last giraffe of it um that was great watch the um, pilot rewatch the it's directed by adam mckay yeah. well no i know we um what happened was we watched the first one of the new season and we were kind of like God, it's so complicated. There's so much stuff going on. Should we go back and watch the the last one of the last season? And I went, why don't we just go back and watch the whole last season? So we went back and watched the whole last season to, and then went right up into the next one. And it was very worth it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was really good. Yeah. You yeah. should watch the morning show. Morning show's pretty good. You know, it, that's no succession, okay. but it, Yeah. Apple Plus. That? Apple Plus. Yeah. 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 And what pretty movies good. are you watching other than that um you know my uh my kid doesn't love movies so it's hard to and we want to kind of you know it's her last year here so she likes which is weird because she's seven what, what is this, this is the second time you've done this where you've just you've gotten rid of it what do you do you, you're like ellen degeneres and her pets the pet stops being no, she, cute yeah. it doesn't match my couch off so she and my wife are watching some kind of uh, girl shows, uh, the Gilmore Girls and like the comfort stuff. So that's why I'm often here doing this. <laughs> uh, do you do, do you watch The Housewives? No, no, I had no reality television. I can't stand it. Have you, I've only been, I've accidentally stumbled across The Housewives. It's really? the only thing more interesting than watching the housewives is watching the woman watching the housewives going, what oh. is going on in that fevered brain of yours that you can just watch this for hours? It, every woman I know is obsessed with the housewives. You know, I, I would. I look, I hate all reality television, partly because it isn't reality. I would be more interested in it if I really thought it was reality, but it's all just so doctored up to, you know, and ginned up and half of it's fake and then half of it's real. And they're putting on like, if you're going to make stuff up, make up a whole thing with a beginning, a middle and end. And I'll watch that, you know, so. Well, you didn't you know, keep, like, I got to tell you something. You did not keep your word. Oh, I didn't uh, destroy this. You said um, Dr. Harriet Fraud, John Ross, is on the show and he said i'm gonna grind the show to a halt but he uh, you uh that was gonna be my revenge 
I was gonna I was gonna interview you, right? Uh, because and I was gonna I was gonna start by, uh, do you believe uh, the Taliban attacked us on nine eleven? That was gonna be my first question, <laughs> right? Um, and then uh, I was gonna ask you. I had I had I had a bunch of questions. It was gonna be pretty funny. But, Can we do it next week? Well, we could do it next week. In my limited time with you, I, I want to wait. What? What that when? Because I'm leaving for Florida. I got a baseball tournament to play, uh, so I'm leaving Tuesday the fourth. So we we can do. You one can more do before yeah, that, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Here, here, my friend. I have a friend who is in a business where he arbitrages tickets to shows. He sells them in the secondary market. Uh, I, I grew up with this guy. And he can tell me how every comedian or rock star or Broadway play is doing. Right. And so I said, why don't you create a jealousy index for me? I'll give you a list of 20 comedians who I'm jealous of. The ones who sell out theaters anybody you know even people i like like sure. lewis black anybody just like everybody i'm and then you you weight the performers based on their given success and critical acclaim so like lewis black would be weighted heavier than sebastian maniscola because you know because lewis black is like apple and uh, Sebastian may leave the index after a couple of years. So you do it like the, the Dow Jones industrial uh. and he comes on the show and based on hard numbers tells me who to be the most jealous of each week based on ticket sales. This is a thing in your imagination or is that? So he did happened? it. He built the index. I was wondering if you wanted to come on and do it with us. Uh. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's all the comics we're jealous of, and we find I, out who's up and who's down. I'm busy, David. I have things I have to do. Um, <laughs> look, uh, what was the other things I, I was going to ask? Um, some questions, but all right, forget it. Let's let's go on. Are you getting? Do you is the WGA still sending you DVDs? Uh, probably to my ex-wife. Ah, because I don't even have a DVD player. Right. And I'm out in the country and this giant UPS truck drives up every day with one. Like, so I have an envelope and this, this giant truck comes down my private drive. The guy gets out, comes, gives me a DVD, which I, I'm, it's illegal. I have to destroy it, right? I'm not, I'm going to get thrown in jail if I do anything. I don't even have a DVD player and it's got promotional materials. Like, and then, so I, I, the Hollywood elite, you know, like you like to rail on them, don't give a crap about the environment. In the mail, unsolicited from the Nature Conservancy, I guess wanting a donation from me, they send me a big glossy calendar and then a wallet size calendar 
<laughs> all these like who uses a paper calendar anymore? Nobody. We all right. have the Google calendars, and so they send me this thing. It's it's so glossy. I don't even know if you can recycle it, and <laughs> they want a, a donation from me mm-hmm. so they can save the environment. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Fun with friction. Follow this man. This is this is what we should have done on Christmas Day. This would have been (laughs) this would have been the perfect Christmas. John Ross. Fun with friction. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week. Have fun, doctor. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Let's go to uh, he's my one of my oldest friends, uh, John Ross, brilliant comedian. let me just process. So Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. She uh, is the ho- she is the host of it. I want to make sure I'm audible. Uh, Am I audible? Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, say something. Hello. Am I audible? Yes, I think. Yes. Good. Good. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of It's Not Just In Your Head and Capitalism Hits Home. And with Max Golding, I believe. Well, he's dropped out, so it's with Liam Tate. Okay. And I starting this well, well, starting Wednesday, January third, I'll be on WBAI at two thirty on Wednesdays with Interpersonal Update USA. Wow, WBAI yeah. Pacifica, that's yeah. fantastic. WBAI. Yeah. That's fantastic. Wednesdays at 2.30. That's that's great news. That's great news. It's always good to be on terrestrial radio. And maybe I always (laughs) hope that we could save it. You know, I think I think it's like vinyl. I think Americans, young people are so accustomed to not listening to the radio that once they found something good on the radio, they would turn off their podcast, but it's been destroyed by Bain Capital and Claire Channel. The question I'm asking everybody, and John Ross answered it at the top of his segment, he scared the hell out of me. I spent the weekend being told by the mainstream media that they can hear the death rattle of democracy. Now, I'm always wrong. But uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, lucky if that's what you think, then lucky you're wrong on that one. This thing, democracy, I mean, it took, it's taking longer than Rasputin to die. This democracy has been dying since Rasputin died. How bad can it get in terms of losing our quote unquote democracy? Well, I think if you have the best democracy money can buy, you already lost it. And that's what we're getting. And so unless there's a mass movement to stop it, and if Trump runs in 2024, we've kind of normalized fascism. Not exactly fascism, because the armed forces are not behind him. They're divided. The armed forces have 30% of people who are African-Americans, but then they probably have about 20 or 15% who are virulent white supremacist young people from the South. So I don't know. I don't know what will happen there. Right. There are a lot of, they have a problem with white supremacists in, in our military and in our police 
and in our government and in our corporate suites. Uh, we have a problem with white supremacists in America. The catastrophizing that, that's going on, I go from zero to catastrophe. So I, yeah. but if you talk to people, they often say things like, we're going to be replaced by robots. We're going to all be living in an alternative universe. The climate is going to be destroyed. What's the <laughs> point? I, the first thing. Well, we want to give up, I guess. And it's always look, you can always find a good reason to give up if you don't want to struggle to do something better. What do you say to young people? We have 100 million Americans who could vote but don't vote. And I know we've talked about how hard they make it for people to vote. But it's not it. We people don't think that they have any representatives. And in many ways, they're right that neither party is looking out for a non corporate existence. They're both dependent on corporate donors and they are both captured by their donors. One of the reasons Biden doesn't go and really fight for anything is because they want the same corporate donors that the Republicans have. And if he doesn't fight for anything, he'll get even more money. And so that once you have that kind of money, you get the best democracy money can buy. And the only antidote would be a powerful socialist movement that demands an end to that in ways that can't be refused. Right. Because um, otherwise, there are exceptions like AOC. She got elected because the person against whom she was running was comfortable having been in for 16 years and done nothing, he lived in Virginia, sent his kid to Virginia private schools. And so his district in um, the poor parts of Bronx and Queens kept reelecting them because the same people would come out and vote, very low turnout. He didn't even bother to debate her until the last week or two when he realized, oh, no. It was not be Crowley, right? The bag man for Crowley. Crowley. And he's a bag. He was Crowley. a bag man for for Wall Street. Um, That's right. Yeah. Well, how bad and could it was, get? How nervous are you? Well, partly I'm relieved that I'm old um, so that that won't be my future for all that long. But I am nervous, and yet I am sort of, I don't know, just biologically hopeful. And I do feel that the mood is changing. I live in New York, which is, you know, it's exceptional. There's a cute postcard at the Cuban Cultural Center of Fidel holding up a T-shirt saying, I love New York, that T-shirt with the heart. Mm -hmm. New York is a cosmopolitan city with many, many languages and all sorts of colors of people. And right. so it's a hopeful atmosphere that way. The fascist presence right. is not what it would be in Mississippi. And I think, I do think that young people all over this country have had it. They, I saw some study where 75% of middle schoolers think socialism is preferable to capitalism. And not called all because their parents do. And they're active. I think I mentioned that 
walkout at Tompkins Square Middle School to protest sexual assaults because the boys were home watching porn for a year and then assaulted the middle school girls when they got back to school. So a hundred girls walked out of school and they called the daily news and other stations and they got coverage. And so I was thinking, wow, kids 11 years old. I wouldn't have done that at 11. And then I looked it up on Google. A lot of people, middle school students are doing something. It's not just high school students. Right. And so I think it is dawning on them that as things are going now, they have no future and they better do something about it. You and would, so I'm hopeful for that. You emailed me a stat. I couldn't believe it, that America leads the world in overdoses, opiate overdoses. Yes, 100,000 just this year, 1920 to 1921, 100,000 deaths. It leaves the world. And I think that's partly because of, partly it's because of the government that let through OxyContin and OxyCodone, even though it's pretty apparent that they were highly addictive and that even though it was supposed to be a long release drug, supposed to be good up to 12 hours, if you take it all at once, it's a huge high. Anybody could figure that out. And if they couldn't figure it out, well, then once they introduced their next variation, they allowed that too, even though there was an epidemic which spiked once OxyContin was released. Also, the FDA didn't bother really looking at the study that they did, Purdue Pharma, who produces OxyContin, and the Sackler family, who haven't seen a day of jail time, even though since they released it, 600,000 people have overdosed, not all of OxyContin, but 75% of OxyContin. Well, they get started on OxyContin, and when they can't get the OxyContin, they start shooting heroin. Right, because OxyContin was passed as a 12-hour pain relief drug, even though in the studies, it only lasted for eight hours, and people were desperate for the pain relief. Also, once they started cracking down a little bit on the release of of opioids like M&Ms at the doctor's offices, people couldn't get the opioids, so they went to heroin, which is an easy transition. Right. And so you have the government with its lax FDA, bribable FDA regulations. Then you have big pharma, Purdue Pharma, hired McKenzie and others to heavily market this to doctors to give them supplements starting at 30 grand for advertising this among their peers, for rewards, for larger advertising. CVS, Walmart Pharmacy, and Walgreens together in one Ohio town that had 19,000 and some people they sold what would amount to 400 pills per person. Unbelievable. Amazing. And they too are supposed to, by law, report suspicious activity. Well, they got paid too. Right. And they figured out how to maneuver it so it didn't show. So that it's big pharma and it's big friend, big pharmacies, big pharmacy chains the doctors who prescribed it and uh, worked together. And so did the whole advertising industry. 
making this seem like a dream and playing down the addiction. And so that it really was a capitalist bonanza. Meanwhile, the Sackler families had the Sackler wing at the Louvre in France. They had the Sackler collection at the Guggenheim, the Sackler chair here and there. And so, and the Sackler presence on the Museum of Natural History. So everybody liked them because they gave money. It was only die-ins at those locations that got those people right. names off of things and got them off the board. But that combination of paying off people so you look like a philanthropist and you don't look like you robbed old ladies and killed their kids to get the money. Right. You just got the money. And they haven't served a day in jail. They did give away uh, $3.2 but hey, that's nothing. Right. They made... Thirty-seven billion dollars off this, right? So we say eh, he's a mixed bag. I remember Eli Broad, the L.A. In, uh, real estate mogul, who you know was responsible for homelessness. I had a rabbi mm. who wanted money from him, and the rap for the building fund, and the rabbi said he's a mixed bag. I said no. He's a piece of excrement. He's a piece of shit. He's a piece and of even shit. There is a quarter in the bottom of the ship pile. It's a big bag of shit with a quarter in the bottom. Right. And I said to the rabbi, you realize this is exactly how the Vatican got built with these indulgences. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. Uh, McKinsey got fined like $100 million for advising Purdue Pharma. But McKinsey also invests in big rehab. So they're going to get all that money. They paid a fine. They get it both sides. They get it both sides. They have medically assisted rehab, and so where they collect, and drugging people where they collect. So they make right. money no matter where you turn. So once you OD, they don't make money off you. They have to turn to someone else. If you're uh, middle class in America, upper middle class, and you have an opiate addiction, you have to go broke, right? You have to go into high. Yeah, unless you can get a doctor to prescribe legally, which they certainly if you pay a doctor enough, you probably can. You know, if everybody in that Ohio town could get the equivalent of 400 pills, you can get a doctor to write that you have something that requires this. What is the it? Methadone? What do you take? Is there a pill to deal with addiction? Methadone is the same thing. Methadone substitution. The people who are addicted is a very good book by two scholars, Anne Case and Angus Deaton. Very prestigious. She's at Princeton in economics. He's at UCLA and got a Nobel Prize in 2015. And they did a, an exhaustive study. They pull the punch that has anything to do with capitalism, but it's a very exhaustive study, that deaths of despair. They show that the people who are dying overwhelmingly are people between 44 and 55 years old who are working class people and who don't have a college education. In other words, they're going nowhere. And white. And a lot, most of them are white because they expected at this point in their career even if their career was working in a factory, they'd have seniority, they'd have a place in their community, 
their marriage would be intact. Now they don't have that. If they have a job at all, it's minimum wage or close to it. Or since they're farming out jobs as much as they can to temp agencies so that they don't have to give you any benefits ever, and you don't have a place and you don't have colleagues you can count on. So you're displaced from that camaraderie also. And if you were a little businessman, your hardware store or your grocery store or your clothing store, it's all taken over by Walmart. And if you get a job at Walmart, you'll make $15 an hour if you're lucky and you have nothing and your wife has to work too to support you and she doesn't want to do all the housework and emotional care, sexual performance and social connecting with you and your peers. So she leaves because 70% of the divorces are initiated by women. So you got crap, you got nothing. And in order to change, we don't have a tradition of political activism. Right. So to, to change your oppression, you don't get active politically with other people. You make the world look better and you take drugs. That's why we have the most overdoses. It's incredible. It, it, it's incredible that we we have this problem and th nobody offers a solution, which is treatment on demand that's free, free treatment on Demand. Nobody in the United States, in Uruguay, in Portugal, and other countries, like Portugal is the example that started this wonderful thing. Because they had one in um, 100 people in Portugal was an addict, a heroin addict, they started a new program. Because, you know, they have a, for the last 12 to 15 years, they've had a government of a kind of a troika, three, the socialists, the communists, and the greens, and an equally group-run government. And they have a policy that all drugs are legal, that the vans go around in every neighborhood, and they sell you drugs. And if you want treatment, they also arrange for your treatment. But if you don't, all the drugs come through the government, and you pay the government, so you're never injecting cement in your veins or anything because the drugs are clean and they help you if you want help. That can't be done in the United States. You could not, the, the current iteration of America is there would have to be a public-private partnership where Purdue Pharma is making money, is driving around and some, and the government is the- Subsidizing. Yeah. The, yeah. we talked about this on the show, uh, Black people, when it comes to uh, OxyContin abuse, uh, got the better end of the stick, the racist stick, because doc doctors would not prescribe. They, they do a different type of pain management with African-Americans because they're racist and they don't believe in African-American when they say they're in pain. They say, you're just trying to get drugs from me. So there are fewer African-Americans who are addicted to oxycotton because they and couldn't get a And also they don't cover the doctor that often because they don't have the money. And if they happen to have insurance and they're not in the 29 million people who have no insurance, then they have huge co-pays. And so they don't go. And also drugs were associated in the mind 
uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who was very influential in drug policy, as a black thing, and he felt, and he was a horrible racist. And so it really became a war on drug users, not a war on drugs. He viewed the black country, people, he viewed black people and communists as the biggest threat to national security. They were inseparable in his mind, right? Right. That's right. They were both terrible threats to be defeated. Right. And um, so it became a war on drug users, not a war on drug proliferation. The country of Uruguay, which had a long independence struggle from their dictator, who reigned for a long time, the head of Uruguay was a socialist, and he was put in a well for 20 years as his punishment. Occasional food was thrown down, but he had a lot of time to think. And one of the things he realized is that his country is too close to the uh, pipeline between Colombia and the United States, that they better make drugs legal or they would be a gangster state. And they did with the same kind of excellent success. It's a very successful program. People get free expert treatment because the treating doctors are paid for with the money they collect. And where in Portugal, they've, it's a very, very well-funded program, that treatment, because they're selling drugs. And where they've tried to cut it, the money, there's been huge outcry. They need outcry. They need that for the rehab and really follow people and help people and help them get off drugs, which they've been successful at. But those people who take the drugs can function in society because they're not poisoning themselves with illegal substances. So it's a very successful health program. And nobody has to make a mint off it because it's not private. And it's in a government, both governments, well, Uruguay socialist, Portugal socialist, communist and green. So the idea that everything has to make money for the top isn't there. But that is a solution. It makes sense. So we don't have to be Nazi Germany in order to be a horrible country. It doesn't have to be the extermination camps. When you look at across the board, all the things a country is supposed to be, we get Fs, healthcare, mm-hmm. F, trillion dollars a year on defense, blowing up countries. And around. every war too, we have and to also point out after a trillion dollars a year and eight trillion in Afghanistan all those years, we still have lost every single war since World War II. Vietnam and Korea, there was a draw, but we did not win that whole country. And we, we didn't win our plans to unify it either under a capitalist regime. We are and the so, biggest contributor to uh, greenhouse gases. I know China is uh, the leader now, but overall, the green, we're yeah, China is planning to be fossil fuel free by 2050. So they do right now. They are the biggest contributor. But the United States is the biggest contributor. We're certainly the big we were absolutely the leaders in COVID. China has four times our population. It has 20 times fewer COVID deaths. 
no one has as many COVID deaths. And that's because the healthcare system, really profit-making, market-driven healthcare doesn't work. It's a very expensive healthcare system. And Americans are dying younger every year. That's happened for the last several years. That where other countries are not having people die younger, but the same or older, Americans are dying younger. Right. And also fewer of them are ever having children. They don't believe, you know, it's too expensive and they don't believe in a future. No social mobility, no social mobility. That's right. It's, it's um, on all those measures we have failed, providing for our people, providing jobs, for providing security in a secure job and a secure income, providing health care, providing some kind of basic nonprofit necessities of life, like healthy food, like housing, like regulation of temperature, hot and cold, like breathable clean air, like clean water. Look at Flint, Michigan, you know, that we have, we are failing. Across the board. Across the board. Across the board. Our schools. In Berlin, in Berlin, they won the takeover of 142,000 units from the biggest landowner in um, Berlin for affordable housing. They, they took them. And the, obviously, it was very popular. But we're also the only one without democracy uh, in terms of a choice of system. We have a choice of two corporate leaders. If you're in Germany or France, you could vote for the socialists, you could vote for the communists, you could vote for the Greens, you could vote for capitalist parties, two of them. And the same thing is true with France and Italy and Spain and Portugal. And so we don't have choice of system. We have choice of personality. We have choice of capitalist tendency the Democrats tend to be less draconian and depriving among the two, but the basic fidelity is to capitalism. In fact, Nancy Pelosi, when asked about socialism, said there is no socialism, there is no alternative, even though she has several socialists in Congress, you know, that we don't have those choices. And we have become a backward country. We're the only ones without abortion rights, even Ireland, Argentina has abortion rights, even though it's a very Catholic country. Chile, you know, really, where the socialist won in spite of huge subsidies for that fascist who was running, that there is, you know, the Cubans now live longer than Americans because they have an excellent healthcare system. But it's we're going down fast. It's the decline of the American empire. Look, after World War II, there were two great empires that emerged, the US and the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union collapsed out of its own corruption, and the United States is doing that right now, I think. Exactly. That where they, they discovered, you just 
put, you know, you flick your finger at the Soviet Union in 1991 and the whole thing crumbles. There was no there there. I get that feeling about this country that there's no there there, yeah. that, that, that everybody, ev anybody who's yeah. in charge is lying to us and feathering their right. own nest. Exactly. It's and a kleptocracy. It's, yeah, it's a kleptocracy and the rebellion comes out and not getting vaccinated because they suspect big pharma and the government right. rather than, wait a minute, the government is run by puppeteers. Look at the corporations, honey. And look at the stats. Look at science. But they don't, their rebellion is a stupid person's rebellion. Right. Rather than championing something positive, a positive, better America. And the healthcare system is crucial here. It's the worst of all the developed wealthy countries. And that's why people are dying faster. And that's why we lead the world in addictions. It's not only the healthcare system, but of course, letting that OxyContin through and not re and letting doctors and marketing firms and pharmacies profit off this is a national disgrace that leads to death. It's really, you know, life with the graveyard. Yep. The hospitals are being overwhelmed right now, they're, but they're cutting back because they have That's to, right. because they need profits. Then a lot of them are going That's bankrupt. Right. Uh, are, we spend twice as much on health care than anybody else with the worst results. Right. There are still 45 million Americans who don't have health insurance whatsoever. Uh, so we failed on drugs. Big Pharma, we, we, our schools are an apartheid state. I think they're as segregated, if not more segregated than they were when uh, the Warren Court passed. Of education. I think it's well, more segregated now. Segregated than then. I'm sorry? They're less segregated than, than they were in 1954 when the school, when schools were desegregated but they are still segregated. And also we don't even count the fact that people who have their money send their kids to private school. I've heard that we're That's more segregated. I've, I've heard well, that we're more segregated. We are segregated. We are one of the most segregated because we're segregated by neighborhood and private school in New York. And we are a segregated nation. We're the only ones who don't allow birth control. We're the only ones who don't allow biologically correct um, sex education, no less relational sex education, which is what Europe has and what the Scandinavians have. Sex is part of a relationship. What does it mean? What do you owe yourself and your partner and all that? No way. Nowhere. Countries go crazy. Yes, they do. Countries. They, that, they do. They do. Um, that has happened before. And this is a this country is is insane. I mean, what we're looking at passive, but also they're freaking out, buying guns and just shooting people and attacking people. It has gone crazy because people have nothing to hold on to. We don't have a culture of collective struggle, which buoys people's spirits 
and is effective. But Jane Fonda said, you know, I demonstrate and I have my Freedom Fridays where we get arrested with our celebrities because it's an antidote to depression. You have to do something right. not to get depressed. But Americans, because of the anti-communism of the 50s, anything that is left and collective is suspect. And so they're so isolated. It's very sad. It's, and, there's an insanity to mainstream media. It is. At, yeah. There are two things that I read this week where I thought this country isn't stupid. It's insane. The yeah. uh, there has been talk of defunding the police, yet nobody has defunded the police. A couple of cities, you know, a couple of million here and there, but for the most part, the police are doing just fine. But murder is up. And absolutely, you, murder, theft, sexual assault. Well, it's all up. not well. It mostly murder. Shootings, yeah. shootings are up, and right. and people say, "Well, it's because of defunding the police." It has nothing to do with the guns. They haven't defunded the police, right? They can't blame the guns. So all the, the the talk about reallocating some of the money away from the police to social services—that's what's causing the murder to rise. I'm reading that. I go, this is just insanity that people can get away. Mm -hmm with this with saying that yes but there isn't a culture of left opposition here you go to france there's several left newspapers on the newsstand there's a socialist newspaper there's a couple of communist newspapers there's you know whatever same thing as germany spain italy we don't have a counterculture that is palpable out there and available to people the they're, way they do. They, they, they are too busy watching crap on Netflix, Disney Plus, Hulu, Amazon. It, it, this is their- That's all that they are educated for. I mean, they're not educated to think about anything. I went to PS81 and I went to Bennington College, very, you know, fancy college, but I never in any any place. And my husband went to, he got two master's degrees, one at uh, Stanford and one at uh, Yale. And he went to Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. He never had a labor history course. The way he learned about labor and labor history was that his father was a hero in World War II and got a lot of people out of Germany. He'd go around to embassies before he left Paris, he went around to embassies and bribed people to give him passports and then got people out who were anti-fascists and being persecuted and had to leave in a hurry. And wealthy people who were Jews or other unpopular, you know, socialists, unpopular people and could pay a lot. And so a man who owed him his life Fritz Pappenheim, who wrote a very good book on the alienation of modern man, called my husband when he was a freshman at Harvard and said, your father saved my life. I will teach you Marxism. You come to my house once a week, and I will teach you Marxism. And he invited other scholars over, 
Marcuse, who was there at Brandeis and others. And so my husband got a, a real education. He would never have gotten it otherwise. But you can go through the fanciest schools. You do not ever read Marx. It's crazy. And you don't have a sense of what labor is that built this country and what our socialist movement was. Adam Hochschild just wrote a very good book called Rebel Cinderella. Um, and it talks about the building of the socialist movement in the United States. And it's really about Rose Pastor Stokes, who was a socialist leader. But that, you know, we don't even know our history. I didn't really, I read feminism. I didn't know about Rose Pastor Stokes. Hmm. We, we have to, we have to wrap up. We'll, well, we're going to have to continue. Next week, we'll talk about Laura Ruth Walker, the president of Bennington College, who destroyed public radio in New York City. Do you know about That's right. So denied tenure. Yeah. Coleman, who came before, was the first college to deny tenure. So Bennington came a long way from its roots. Well, well let's talk about Laura Ruth Walker, the president of Bennington College and her similarities to Russian oligarchs when uh, yes. you come back next week. Dr. Harrod Frott is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. And how do people contact you? Well, they can contact me through my website, Harriet Fraud. That's at Harriet, H-A-R-R-I-E-1-T-F-R-A-A-D.com or H-F-R-A-A-D at gmail.com. Thank you. We love you here and we're very grateful. And I love to be Thank here. you. Have a happy new year. And, and same to you. And uh, everything and revolution. Thank you. <laughs> See you. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Well, let's uh, go to Canada, uh, where I'm hoping he'll uh, hide me uh, after, yeah. <laughs> after this country gets taken over. Uh, Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy club in North America. It's good to see you. We haven't seen you for a while. And everybody asked me, what happened to Professor Breslin? Nothing happened to Professor Breslin. But I do want to say that, David, if things do come to that, um, we will hide you. But unfortunately, I believe in hiding in plain sight. <laughs> what is going on in I'm going to put a big, I'm going to put a big, uh, thing on your arm, a nice yellow S for socialist. And uh, well, listen, if they catch you, they catch you. Um, I do appreciate that your last guest is fomenting revolution through uh, Facebook and uh, Google and some of the other and uh, notorious anti-capitalists uh, that are right. out there. No irony there, right? Right. Well, we're not fomenting revol the revolution. Anyway, l let's talk about how we perceive the boiling water like there are some frogs in the boiling water here in the united states who are oh david let's talk about the goyim instead <laughs> like really i mean come on david here's the thing um you know it did occur to me that you know just finishing up this 
um, incredible Christmas potlatch with my family <laughs> where my son got, you want to hear what my son got this year? And, and I'm telling you, we had the worst year financially since I started in business 45 years ago because of COVID. Um, he got a new iMac, uh, the new one that just came out, a package um, that's an upgrade package for gamers uh, for that iMac. He got a uh, the new Oculus Quest, which is the VR um, headset that's wireless. It's the cutting edge. Um, he got a, um, a beautiful uh, Beats uh, wireless headphones, noise canceling, so he doesn't have to hear us say, watch out for that car, um, <laughs> which is very important. And uh, what else did he get? And he got the uh, Nintendo Switch because he only has uh, a, um, uh, what do you call it, PlayStation 1 or whatever, call it, an Xbox One. So it occurred to me that only the Gentiles would have a holiday that falls on the worst weather of the, of the year. See, the Jews are very smart, uh, I think. Our, our big holidays um, are either in the fall or in the spring. When it's kind of temperate, it's nice. You don't get too cold. You don't get too hot. But I'm telling you, they they don't care. They don't care. Right. They actually brag about how nice it is to go outside. It's right. fascinating to me. Anyway, now we can talk about whatever you well, want. Well, hang on. So what you're saying is because the weather is so bad, because it's so depressing, you stay inside and you have to buy gifts and they're expensive because you're trying to overcompensate. You're trying to make people happy. Well, it's cheaper. It's, it's, it's better to give out gifts when people are already happy because they need less. Correct. I hear you. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And I think that's a pretty good theory. Well, what about you know? Australia? What What is I would assume a, a Christmas in Australia is not as commercial because it's the dead of summer. No, and I was in uh, Australia uh, for Christmas a number of years ago, and uh, all I got was a kangaroo. So, you know, it was pretty super bad, but there were some gift cards in the pocket. <laughs> How does that work? Does Santa come down to air conditioning vent in Australia? I think so. I think so. And then he bounds. Well, he has... He replaces the reindeers with uh, with a, a duck-billed platypus, <laughs> and, they, and they carry them to wherever they have to go. So here in the United States, some of us, some of us frogs are going, hey, this water's boiling. It's getting... Do you see the end of democracy? What do you think is happening to the United States? I think people on the right are so intent upon getting their way that they will destroy the country to get it. And what do and they want? And what do they want? Sorry? What, what does the well, right want? You know what? It's not what they want. I think it's what they don't want. Um, and I think what they don't want is um, equality, um, uh, immigration, um, you know, gay rights, any, any of these things that, you know, people in New York City take for granted. That has no um, material effect on them. They want all the things that have no effect on their life whatsoever. I wouldn't think so. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, you live in a, you live in a place that has you live in a gated community, and whoa, 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 who just moved in? It's a gated community. It's not so. Not everybody's. Yeah, but we can say you have to be able to sell to to to. So for them, they're the frogs. 
in the water as the as the water starts to to rise and get hotter and hotter and hotter. I mean, you know, it doesn't take a genius to look at uh, the demographic maps and realize that probably in another 10 years, it will be very hard to elect right-wing Republicans in almost any place because the demographics will change. So this is their last ditch effort. And it is a, it is a scary one for sure for you guys. It's not, it's not the same in Canada. It doesn't, this sort of stuff doesn't exist exactly. So we have other problems. What you're saying is the white nationalists have recognized that they cannot win through electoral politics. So they have to win through other means. Yes. Right. That's right. Right. Or, or by gerrymandering the electoral politics in such a way that it's no longer really electoral politics. It's something else. I've never seen this in my lifetime. I mean, you know, I've, I've, there were some pretty horrible people in, in politics in your country over the last 50 years, but nothing like this. I don't think Nixon even would have ever, like, thought of, you know, tearing down the country. Is it social media? Is it that we get to hear Nixon's tapes? I mean, there were Nixon's tapes where he's talking to Billy Graham. I mean, we heard horrible things in the Oval Office when the tapes were released. Have we gotten to the place through social media where there's no buffer anymore? We hear everything. We hear everything, which is both good and bad. It's good in a sense that people can't hide anymore, um, but it's bad that you can't say you know, you will be you will be called on no matter what, no matter what you will be called on for something that you said in jest, you know, 10 years ago. I don't think that's a good thing, but it's pretty hard to to hide now. You know, I mean, a politician like Kennedy could sneak women into the White House. I don't think anybody could do anything like that. Anymore. Right. I was reading about Rock- I don't know if there's anything wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no. I was reading about rock music. I wanted to ask you about comedy. So there are very various genres of comedy, as there are various genres of music. Things change. Nobody could imagine that rock and roll would die. The we still say, uh, you know, uh, he's a rock star in economics. He's a, a rock star of politics. We still make the term rock star synonymous with bigger than life when in fact rock and roll except for some aging boomers is dead rock has died and has been supplanted by rap and pop and whatever things change jazz died swing died comedy will never go away but things change. What are you noticing in comedy? Uh, I wish listen, people always have always asked me about the future. What's going to happen in the future? And if I really knew, I would be so rich and I'd be living on an island. But I don't know. Um, but what are you Steve saying? What, what, what are you saying? Steve Martin said the comedy evolves. What, I'm sorry. Right in in Born Standing Up. You know, in Steve Martin's book, he says comedy evolves, and and that was an interesting thing for him to say. Um, because it's true that whatever we're watching now is, I think, pretty much more sophisticated than what you would have seen, you know, 50 years ago. But not exclusively. I mean, you know, there was Lenny, there was George Carlin, there was 
uh, Richard Pryor, and I don't know who these these people are today. I don't know if they exist today. I don't know who the equivalents are. Um, I hate to think it's you know just Bill Burr. There's there's got to be something more than that. I don't see anybody who occupies that position. So when you say it changes, there's a certain a suggestion that it's going to it's getting better, but I'm not sure it's getting better, and I'm not sure it's getting worse. I think it's flattening out. Um, I think that um, what's happening in comedy, which is happening in music, happening in a lot of things, um, is that there's the median level of competence is much higher than it ever has been, but the amount of genius is lower. Right. And it's the world stage. Uh, I was reading in Haaretz about uh, Lisa. She's an Austrian comedian. Have you heard about her, Lisa Eckhart? No. no. Well, she says she's Austrian. She may be German, like like Hitler said. But well, anyway, go on. Well, that's she makes that joke. Oh, she's been okay. accused of anti-Semitism. She goes after everybody, and she, and she says, I don't know why the uh, Jews are so offended my material by my material. I'm a, an Austrian who dropped out of art school and moved to Germany. What could be terrifying about me? I'm reading her and she's effing brilliant. She's like, must be 30. She used to do poetry slam and I'm her, she has, I, I, I guess she does her act in German, but it translates into English. It's really funny. And she's making fun of Jews in Germany, which is never uh, a good idea, but very literate. And I think America is falling behind in terms of smart comedy. I think you're saying really go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, I, uh, I can't judge it because I haven't heard it personally, right. so I can't say well, what the level of irony is in it and whether she's truly anti-Semitic or anything, probably not. Um, but I wondered if you saw last night's uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. Not yet. Can I wreck it for you? Wreck it. You can't wreck well, Curb Your... The, you cannot wreck Curb Your Enthusiasm. Well, it has the best Holocaust joke maybe ever. I've written the best Holocaust, and so have you. All right. Let me tell you what, let me tell you what happens in the episode. Okay. Um our hero, our protagonist, uh, has to go to um, has to, has to go to the uh, Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles for some kind of a, a do, some kind of a presentation, a book signing uh, for somebody. So he goes, but on the way, right outside, he steps in dog shit. So he doesn't know what to do. So he decides he'll just take off his shoes because he can't get rid of the dog shit. And he throws the shoes in the waste paper bag. And he uh, the, see, does he see the, the shoes? The shoes piled up. Okay. You got it. Well, you're a writer, so you you knew where this was going. Well, so hang on. Let me just, so he sees the shoes piled up, but not he doesn't grab the yes. hair, just the shoes, right? He just no, he doesn't take the hair. Although you know he could, I he know, could use it. But nevertheless, okay. Um, so what, hang plugs, on. So he, I don't know why nobody ever thought of using them for plugs. That's just funny. Sitting there. Anyway, that's, so he sees so the shoe. He sees the shoes, and he takes. A pair of shoes. That's great. And he he puts them on and walks away. But that's not the way it ends because he has a girlfriend, like a lady friend, um, who did not go to this event because she lost her grandfather in the Holocaust. Right. And it turns out Ooh. that these are his shoes, and she breaks up with him. 
It's hysterical. It's just hysterical. That's as dark. That that is amazing that he yeah. got away with that. Yeah. Well, you're, you're going to love the episode. Well, you're going to love the. Does that yeah. stuff belong on? I'm just for you and I. If it, if it, if the conversation doesn't turn to the Holocaust within three minutes, I think is Mark okay? Why he hasn't brought? Is David mm -hmm. okay? We're not making Holocaust jokes, but does that belong on HBO? Does it trivialize the Holocaust? Well, I think it belongs on ESPN. But <laughs> nevertheless. Um, yeah, I think it belongs to HBO because I think I think that people who watch HBO are smart enough to figure out where the joke is in all of this. Do you know that I gave him I, that the one with Paul Sand where he writes the lottery numbers down on his arm and he thinks he's everybody's being nice to him because they think he's a survivor. That's hysterical. That was my, that was based on real life. I had a neighbor, I won't mention her name, who was a racist and a bigot. And, I, and everybody said she was from the camps. And I said to my kids, there's no way this woman is a survivor because nobody would be as racist as she is. And I'd go outside when we would talk to her and I'd be checking her arms for the numbers. And I... So well, I had a friend who would go to um, Holocaust survivors meetings and look at their arms, write down the numbers and then play them on the lottery. Well, that's what Larry turned it into. He he said, uh, I see. he okay. said the numbers are the lot. That, that's the actual episode with Paul Sands. <laughs> that was uh, anyway, my claim. to well, When you say does it belong on HBO, do you mean people won't be smart enough to understand where the joke is and that will foster more anti-Semitism? Is that what you mean? Uh, I'm just saying this for the sake of conversation. Having well, well, sure, but in terms of its conversation, how stupid do you think people are? Well, I stupid. Th they're stupid. Yeah. I think that joking, and I do uh, joking about these kind of tragedies for protected classes ends up making it more banal and. You know, I, I've watched some of these QAnon people who have big audiences and they make these types of jokes about slavery, the Middle Passage, about the Pulse nightclub shooting, about the Holocaust. And, you know, I think, okay, what is it when uh, we're la people say we're laughing at it? That's good. Well, maybe certain things shouldn't be laughed at. I'm just throwing that out there. No, I don't think it's that certain things shouldn't be laughed at. I think that certain people shouldn't laugh at certain things. And I think there's a big difference between professional comedians who know how to say these things in such a way that it's not supposed to be prescriptive behavior for others to follow. Right. Um, and the kinds of people you're talking about that you you know see on you know on the internet, QAnon people. I, I think there's a big difference. I think the context of everything is is based on what you've done before and what's coming afterwards. You know, um, when somebody puts up a piece of art, we're not talking about political art, just incomprehensible art, and you look at it and you go, that's just a piece of white paper. Let's go, ah, but if you take a look at the rest of their work and you see what they had did to get to the idea of that white piece of paper, then it changes that white piece of paper and what it means is, as a piece of art. 
So I think you really have to take into, um, you have to, you have to figure out what the context of the person who's saying it is uh, before you would judge it. Yeah. I, 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 let me put it another way. When I make these jokes, it's okay. When anybody else makes these jokes, it's terrible. Right. Right. But I think (laughs) Americans are really stupid and they don't understand why it's okay for an African-American to say the N word, but not a white person. They, 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 they're, uh, I, I remember Howard Stern calling Elaine Boozler, who's Jewish, I think he called her the K word, not the C word, the K word. Uh, this was must I'm have been- sorry. I don't know what the K word is. Could you give me another letter? Can I buy a vowel? Uh, who was uh, the president before Kennedy? What, what was his nickname? It was Eisenhower. But what do they call him? Right. What do they call him? I don't know. I'm not an American. Ike. Ike. Okay. Oh, I get it. The K word. Right. Right. And so now I know what you mean. In fact, in order to run for president, he had to remove the K. So I remember hearing that and it was on broadcast radio. This was like 30 years ago when I listened to Howard Stern and he's Jewish. Elaine Boozler's Jewish. And so he can get away with it. I remember thinking, congratulations, Howard Stern. You just introduced a new word to millions of young people to add to their vocabulary. Good for you using that word. Uh, I don't know. I think there's a lot of people out there who are classicists and they're just happy to use dirty Jew. So what's happening with the, the, the comedy and COVID? Is it under control up there or? No, it's terrible up here. You know, this is interesting. Um, up until now, I actually didn't know anybody personally who got COVID. And since the variant, I know eight people, all comics who all have it. They don't have it bad, but they have it. And so we're not leaving the house. We are not leaving the house. My big show at Massey Hall, Massey Hall is like uh, the equivalent of Carnegie Hall, but in Toronto. How do you get to Massey? Traditional New Year's show. How do you, excuse me, how do you get to Massey Hall? Practice, (laughs) practice, practice, practice. But because it's Canada, it won't mean a damn thing because an American's going to take your job anyway. (laughs) So, um, So you cancel New Year's. So they canceled it even though ticket sales were good. But uh, we're back to, uh, to capacity limits in Toronto and in, in Ontario, of 50%. Very difficult to make a profit on 50% of your tickets being sold. We're still doing shows in most of my clubs for New Year's Eve, but I don't know what's going to happen in January. It seems like every we had like 6,500 new cases in Ontario this today. That's a lot. My, my belief is that this variant um, is easier to catch, but less likely to kill you um, for two reasons. One, one, it's not as powerful. And two, people are vaxxed. So right. the vaccine helps. The vaccine doesn't stop you from getting it, it seems, but it stops you from being really, really super sick. You still don't want to get sick. And, you know, I got a booster shot. And in Canada, it's not as easy to get a booster shot as going to the Walgreens and saying, give me my booster well, it's shot. Not easy to get, and, it's uh, not easy uh, to get a smokes. I'm sorry? I'm sorry? 
Go ahead. I, it's not as easy as in the United States where we go to the Walgreens and say, I'll have a booster shot in a pack of smokes, please. Right. Um, here, um, you have to register. And oh, I registered for my shot and it was four weeks away, but they do pop-ups. And if you're willing to stand in line in the cold for three hours, which is what I did with my wife, um, we got our shot. So I've got it. I've got the booster shot. But, you know, Israel's starting to give out fourth shots. And there will be fifth shots. Are you talking about uh, the vaccine? Not. Uh, yeah, I was going to make a bad joke. Um, Here we go. Here we go. Go no, for no, it. No, I'm I'm watching what I see. I'm looking at the numbers. It's up 83 yeah. percent. The the 14 day rolling average here in the United States. It's up 83 percent, but deaths are only up three percent. So yeah, <clears throat> it's just not. A, first of all, people are vaxxed. The vaccine made some. It made a huge difference, and also it's just not as strong a strain. And somebody told me uh, that they, uh, who knew an epidemiologist, um, that the curve for these things is not a, a downward slope; it's right. a spiral that goes down slowly until it runs out of steam. And I, I heard in South no Africa another two years. I, I read in, that in South Africa, where the Omicron comes from. It spikes. It goes up just as quickly as it comes down. That that yeah. that for some reason it runs out of steam. So then we have pi is next. That's the new mutation. Pi. Are you looking forward yeah. to? Yeah, I like I like a nice pie. Yeah, cherry pie. <laughs> matter of fact, I, I like the best. Heated with a little bit of ice cream. What, are you reading? Much. Well, I just finished a book written by a friend of mine named Ralph Ben Murphy. Ralph had a talk show uh, in Canada, which uh, I executive produced. It was the big sort of expensive talk show, like like the Tonight Show for a couple of years. And then he transitioned. He's he's a this guy. I've known this guy since high school, and it's always different. He started off as a comedian, then he became an actor, uh, then he became uh, a um, a host of the more of a morning show. And then uh, he became the host of a variety show in the evening. And then he really transitioned and became an advisor to the green party. Hmm. And then he changed even more and became a spiritual advisor. He has a podcast called I'm not that kind of rabbi. And um, he's interesting. And, you know, I, a lot of it is about his spiritual quest. But I do remember when he used to take girls back to my apartment and deflower them. So, you know. Oh, I so he's a florist change. as well. Yes, he's a florist. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks. It's been too long. It is the founder. It has been and too long. It's been it has been too long. And, and I've, as I said to my wife, I really miss this, this unpaid gig. <laughs> uh, this is our second to last show before the new year. We're going to do a show on Thursday. And uh, uh, any, uh, any predictions for next year? What do you think we'll be talking I about? I don't have predictions. I only have, uh, you know... I have New Year's resolutions. The biggest one is no more impulse shopping trips to China. <laughs> Killing me. Killing me. <laughs> Thank you, Mark Breslin. I've missed you. Thank you so much. I've missed you too, David. Thank you. Mark Breslin, okay. 
we almost had him last. I wanted him to do last week's show. I thought it would have been fun to have him. Uh, but everybody's busy. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. We are doing office hours this Friday night. Ring in the new year with us. Come to office hours. We had such a great time Christmas Eve. We did a reading from The Godfather, and it was phenomenal. It made me so happy. I don't know what we're going to do for New Year's Eve. And then, of course... There'll probably be an episode of The Twilight Zone and people will teach classes. And uh, Tom Weber did a great lecture on the meaning of Christmas. And I hope he comes back. We're doing Murder on the Orient Express. That's correct. I just, uh, Sarah just told me that. We're doing a reading of Murder on the Orient Express. Well, Peter B. Collins is a Bay Area radio hall of famer and i wanted to welcome you and talk about the year do a year and thank you david i i just wanted to say i really enjoyed your uh, exchange with mark breslin i i just plugged in about 10 minutes ago and uh, we had watched uh, curb your enthusiasm last night that very episode and when when larry stole the shoes uh it, it was just so cringe-inducing, and he's good at that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, you two Jews were able to kibitz about stuff that uh, Goyim, like me, can't even touch. Right. Uh, and it is... Uh, it's almost not know, fair. Me, it's, it's not fair. Well, it's not, but life's not fair. Right. Um, you know, but... I went to, uh, my dad was uh, trying to teach us important lessons, and he took us to Dachau when I was 12. And I also was deeply moved by the Holocaust Museum in Washington. And those shoes are such a powerful um, icon of the the whole experience uh, and the the utter uh, sinister behavior of the Germans. And, and so I just want to volunteer to answer your question from the Goy cheap seats. Uh, I, I do think he crossed the line there. And it, it triggers in me the recognition of the weaponization of anti-Semitism and how minor acts uh, that are interpreted uh, by Jewish people as a deep-seated expression of anti-Semitism, and how political expression, critical of the state of Israel, is routinely deflected and boxed up as anti-Semitic. And so we, we get into tropes, right? Right. <laughs> and tropes is a really dangerous zone because one person's trope is another one's joke. One mm -hmm. person's trope is, you know, an, an, a manner or an expression of insensitivity, but not necessarily hate. Right. And because we're at this stage where hate has been unleashed uh, in, in so many ways, um, I, I, do, I do question Larry David's judgment in doing that. Uh, the other part of the show that I didn't hear you and Mark talking about 
was just so priceless because <clears throat> Larry made a phone call to bribe an elected official. I think this is the Santa Monica City Council. They don't exactly say. Uh, but he wants to remove the five-foot fence rule. And so he finds out, well, first he offends the is this for swimming pools? council member. Is this a swimming pool huh? thing? Is this a swimming pool issue? I didn't see it, so... Yeah, I, I don't know the origins of his uh, obsession with the five-foot fence rule. It probably was in an earlier episode. Right, I think somebody may uh, have drowned. In a, I haven't seen... Go ahead. So there, there are two um, uh, subplots that, that merge. One is that uh, Alexander Vindman, the whistleblower in the Trump-Ukraine case, uh, is giving a talk at the Holocaust Museum uh, about his experience, and he's hawking his book. And then Larry holds a reception at his house uh, for Vindman. And That's so great. So Larry makes so this call to the Mormon member of the council, having offended her husband, saying, wow, you guys got it great. You can have five wives. <laughs> and uh, so he, he apologizes. And then he says he wants to make a big donation to the Mormon temple if she will vote to repeal the five foot fence rule. And it turns out that Vindman was using Larry's master bedroom bathroom and overheard the whole conversation. So he wants to blow the whistle like on a, Larry. Like the impeachment. And Larry protests, it was a perfect call. It was perfect. It was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. I give Larry and those writers um, a lot of credit because I watched uh, one and a half episodes earlier this season, and I kind of checked out because it reminded me of Howard Stern, just trying to find the most shocking thing you can do. Uh, and, you know, Larry's very good at that. Right. But when you try to compete with the shock that you uh, elicited the week before, uh, in the next episode, it, it is pretty much of a downward spiral. Right. Uh, so <clears throat> our son was home for the holidays. He just left here a few minutes ago, uh, having just larded us with tech support. We're extremely grateful. Oh, good. Does he uh, do house calls? <laughs> he's a computer engineer, but he, he usually says, well, you know, Peter, uh, if you want answers, ask Google. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, he's a big Curb fan. And so last night, after too much uh, pecan pie, uh, we put on that episode and watched it together. And uh, anyway, I, I give Larry credit for, you know, managing to come up with new ideas uh, on a regular basis. But it does require him to turn up the offensiveness each time. And, of course, he has license, or he believes he does as a Jew, to, uh, you know, make fun of the Holocaust. Um, and as, as you pointed out, it's not fair, but people like me just have to never touch it. Yeah, why don't we get to laugh at the Holocaust? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I've played a role in some of that. And uh, the, things, for me, things changed after Trump uh, where it, it, and I, I like I used to make Holocaust, not too many, but I would make a couple of 
you know, Holocaust denial jokes on this show. And I, I do remember we used to do this podcast used to be a sitcom. And one of the episodes, this is when we first started out, was I had a time machine and Eddie Pepitone and Jim and I were, go, were going to go back in time to kill baby Hitler. And uh, my time machine was uh, the price of milk. Like I, we didn't, so that in itself was anti, so like you, I would travel through, I'd go 4,000 Deutschmarks for, uh, Deutschmarks for a quart of milk, that will put me in Nazi Germany and I, in, in Vienna to kill baby. I miss, anyway, I end up uh, misjudging and uh, Hitler is a struggling artist and Eddie Pepitone says to me, Go up and buy, tell him your name is David Feldman and buy one of his paintings and then he'll no longer hate Jews. And I go, how much for your this watercolor? My name is David Feldman. How much would David Feldman have to pay for this watercolor? And he says, 500 Deutschmarks. And I scream that you're, how dare you charge this much for a piece of crap like that? And uh, I don't prevent the Holocaust. Looking back on that, I'm not doing it justice. It was kind of funny. Would I do it again? No. You know, there's just something uh, after, you know, five years, six years of Trump, uh, times change. It's uh, well, and, and it, it is, um, it, it's really sad in so many ways. All of the, um, uh, stinky remainders of of the whole trump what we have to call the first term uh and it it has unleashed a lot of hate that has zero humorous element and we used to be able to create some uh you know teachable moments with humor uh even when it it edged up to uh the line of offensiveness and now, and uh, in, in, in some ways, this, this gets into the difference between liberals and, and what Trump calls conservatives, his people, uh, and what they think is funny. And I have found uh, that I have dialed back in satirical commentary that could even be remotely uh, interpreted as sexist. Um, because of Me Too mm -hmm. and because Trump normalized uh, rape and, and sexual harassment uh, and embraces people uh, like, uh, oh, I'm blocking his name, the guy with the big Matt Gates from, from Florida. Right. Uh, I mean, that guy is still in the house and still <clears throat> creating trouble and so on the one hand, it's easy to make fun of him, but then you have to think, well, you know, he was a small time Jeffrey Epstein and he was engaged in trafficking underage women and passing them around with his friends. And so it, it is just another um, negative legacy of, of Trump, just how much he has changed so many aspects of the national conversation. 
This is the thread throughout tonight's show. How scared are you about the fate of our democracy? Now, you're somebody who has poo-pooed Russiagate, thought the Democrats overreacted to that. Uh, would you? I'm trying to figure out how you would answer this question. Do you think the Democrats are treating the the demise of our democracy in much the same way they used Russiagate? They're blowing it out of proportion in order to fundraise? Hmm. Um, number one, the, the Democrats have dropped the ball on so many critical issues. And by allowing Joe Manchin to gum to death and run out the clock on Build Back Better, uh, they failed to address <clears throat> the critical attack on voting rights. And I couple that with the attacks on the Constitution, where the Democrats did stand up. And uh, the Vindman case of Ukraine gate uh, was one of them. The attempt to impeach him after the January 6th uh, events last year uh, were also the Democrats risking <clears throat> a fair amount of political capital to try to protect um, what remains of our system of government. But uh, the failure to deal with the filibuster problem, where they were able to corral Mitch McConnell and the, pardon me, the Republicans into a temporary suspension of the filibuster to raise the debt limit in a way that makes the Democrats in purple districts vulnerable to this phantom issue of the debt ceiling at the midterms next year. Um, and, you know, Chuck Schumer took the position correctly, I think, that he had to risk uh, the, the fallout in order to protect the so-called full faith and credit of mm -hmm. the U.S. government. But on voting rights, the Democrats have dropped the ball so badly and the gerrymandering maneuvers of Republicans and to a minor extent Democrats are already hardening in the cement because of the timeline. Uh, you know, there are primaries coming up in the next few months and we've got to have the district lines, not just for the House, but also for state legislatures. And the maneuvering so would, 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 an elect, would, is, would a voting rights act create turmoil well could we would it affect the 2020 2022 elections if they passed it no well number one if if they pass it with retroactive standards for um you know public redistricting commissions like the one that we have here in california that was opposed by nancy pelosi and the democrats by the way when it went on the ballot under uh, the ages of Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's one right. of the few good things he did. Uh, but it stands as a model to end gerrymandering and to draw the lines fairly and not to have the candidates select their voters, as the saying goes. But it is so late in the process that if they do pass something and it includes retroactivity, it throws a whole lot of chaos out there. And Republican federal judges are going to say, oh, 
we can't have this. You know, Texas has already adopted its districts that screw blacks and, and Latinos and the Democratic Party uh, at large. And, and so I do think that it's too late. And this then uh, sets the, the map and the stage for uh, minority rule for another 10 years. Because the Democratic control of the House was so narrow in this term that it's very hard to imagine that even with abortion rights on the line and, and many other critical issues and the threat of the return of Trumpism, that uh, voters will, you know, overcome the gerrymandering and the climate to uh, keep the House in Democratic control. And one of those, one of the side issues there is that Nancy Pelosi is not going to signal that she'll actually retire until probably around September. And so primaries will be predicated on, oh, Pelosi, we got to get rid of Pelosi. And that is a rallying point for Republicans even before Trump came along. So I, I do think that our democracy is at great risk. I don't think that Russiagate was a central factor in that because I think that Americans, uh, you know, we were told that uh, Russia was sowing uh, discord. Well, we sowed our own discord uh, bigger than Iowa corn. Right. And, uh, you know, our media, uh, you know, exploited that. Jeff Zucker and uh, um, the, the guy who ran CBS, Les Moonves, who was forced out because he had that big bed in his office. Uh, <laughs> we we he know said this that is they, bad. He, Les Moon, tell everybody what Les Moonves said about Oh, Trump. he said we're making tons of money off of the, the Trump presidential campaign. And of course, it wasn't Trump's money, uh, but it, the Republicans and the Republican-connected uh, PACs uh, spent billions on, on TV advertising. And so the very entities that made money from Trump then exploited things to keep the ratings jacked up. Uh, and... I'll just make a side note that after January 6th, it appeared that Fox was going to uh, part ways with Trump. And it lasted about a month. Right. <laughs> and, and their ratings dropped. And, it, you know, Rachel Maddow took over the top spot in primetime and cable news. And CNN was second. And Fox was third. Well, they have fixed that by being anti-vax and, uh, you know, COVID skeptic and pro, uh, pro big lie. Uh, and uh, so I'm not optimistic. And the, you know, the weakness of the Democratic opposition is, is really breathtaking. And I, I will add to that that the Democrats have already thrown under the proverbial bus any form of criminal justice uh, changes driven by Black Lives Matter, any uh, effort to seriously address climate change, the uh, dreamers and immigrants in general uh, have once again been used to exploit uh, political movements, mostly on the right, but uh, also on the left. 
And still, we haven't addressed any of those problems in any meaningful way. And Biden, you know, made a few visible changes to immigration policy, but, you know, their their policies at the border are very, very close to what Trump's have been. So uh, it, it's really difficult because we, we can get nostalgic and imagine, you know, WWBD, what would Bernie do? Uh, and, you know, I have a lot of criticism of Biden, but he did attempt to adopt a lot of Bernie's domestic agenda. He did follow through and got us out of Afghanistan. Right. It's messy he does, and ugly. He does, that deserve was. he deserves credit for that. And yes. he, he does. Yeah. Now, the same Joe Biden uh, insisted on an extra 35 or $40 billion in the Pentagon budget. And Joe Manchin voted for that. Uh, and so did there were 68 votes to pass it in the Senate. And it's obscene that at a time when we have just ended a 20 year war, that we're throwing more money into the Pentagon budget for to keep the military contractors going. The, the soldiers got, you know, a minor right. uh, increase in pay. Right. So right. Uh, it's such a mixed bag. But you know, Biden does not provide a, a leadership model that that rallies young people, that will cause people to work really hard to elect Democrats in the midterms. So, and how so I, I'm not optimistic. How important is the bully puppet? Uh, Clinton and Obama ruined the Democratic Party, but if they were the opportunistic infections that they are today. In other words, if we had Obama or Clinton as president now, they would do a better job at selling if, assuming Biden and the Democratic Party really wants Build Back Better, wouldn't Clinton and Obama do a better job going on television and, and explaining to the American people why this is in our best interest. I mean, Biden is a really bad communicator. Well, he is. And our friend Marianne Cummings, who's coming up next, is uh, a very honest and uh, uh, accurate in describing the decline of Joe Biden. Uh, and we knew that. Uh, we saw in the primaries where he picked a fight with that guy in Iowa, and where he uh, uh, stumbled through so many things, and yet Obama orchestrated uh, everybody else getting out of the way, from Bloomberg to Bernie to uh, uh, right. Buttigieg and Warren and uh, uh, Klobuchar. Uh, he got them all out of the way uh, to clear the path. He, he was the St. John the Baptist, sorry for a Christian reference. Yeah, right. uh, who made straight the way of Lord Joe. Right. <laughs> and so we're, we're stuck with that. Uh, and as I, the point I've made before vis-a-vis -vis Virginia and Terry McAuliffe is that there were many people who did cross over to vote for Biden 
only as an expression uh, against Trump. And that has been misread uh, by Democratic strategists and, and elected leaders. And we're paying a price for that. And, and I want to uh, break my pattern here. And the nicest thing I can say about Hillary Clinton is that she, as president, either in, in 16 or imagining that she'd been elected in 20, she would not have wasted one minute trying to work with the obstructionist Republicans. And this is the, the biggest piece. Not only did they uh, I agree really break, break with the Constitution on both of the impeachment uh, issues, but their obstruction is the fundamental problem that Biden p- faces. And there are a lot of armchair pundits who are saying, well, you know, the bill back better was just too big. And uh, you, you can't put it all together into these trillion dollar packages. But they had no choice because they needed to use the reconciliation process. You only get a few of those bullets every cycle. And they used one up on the CARES Act uh, last spring. And so, uh, you know, there even you know, pundits who write for the New York Times, I think Brett Stevens, if I'm not uh, mixing him up with uh, somebody else, uh, wrote a piece, uh, you know, advising the Democrats just to put it into bite-sized chunks and failed to mention that that is not an option. Right. You only get so, so many reconciliation bills. I agree with you. God, I can't. This is how bad things are gotten. I'm waxing nostalgic about Hillary Clinton. But, <laughs> but in 2008, I voted for Edwards because he was talking about the two Americas. Nobody else was. Then I was going to vote for Hillary. And I thought Obama is the dessert in 2008, I said, we don't deserve Obama yet. We haven't done anything good to deserve that feel-good moment of electing Barack Obama. Uh, I remember saying exactly what you said about Hillary not negotiating with the Republicans. I said she was going to be... We were coming off eight years of George W. Bush, and I said he was a successful president for the people who put him in office, not for America, but George W. Bush was a successful president for the people who put him in office because he said, I'm not going to repeat the mistakes my daddy made. I watched what happened to him. I'm not going to make those same mistakes. And I felt, I remember saying that Hillary, it'll be better to have her as president because she's not going to repeat the mistakes that Bill made. And it gets down to the Rose Law Firm billing papers that that Bill thought foolishly, if we turn over Hillary's Rose Law Firm billing papers, that will placate the independent counsel. And Hillary said, Bill, you give them my billing papers, they're going to ask for more. It never stops with these people. You have to draw a line in the sand here. And Bill said, no, 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 I think we can deal with this independent prosecutor. We just placate him. She brooked no quarter. And I liked that. I liked that. Whether or not 
it was legal. I she was a, and I think she would have come in in two thousand and eight, and she might have been uh, a, able to address problems, uh, especially domestic problems, better than Obama did. Well, let me limit my comments. Foreign policy or foreign policy, notwithstanding. Well, but also on on domestic issues like the, you know, the Bush meltdown in 2008, Hillary was far too cozy with Wall Street and she would have done the same thing that Obama did, which was to bail out the country on Wall Street's terms and to give uh, bailouts to the banks and uh, all that. But. You know, particularly when we focus on the politics of uh, the the three branches of government, the interaction between executive and legislative, um, I I just think Hillary uh, wouldn't have made Obama's mistakes where he, you know, kept trying to water down Obamacare to get a single Republican vote when it was clear to anybody watching that their plan was to scuttle it. And likewise, you know, Biden spent this year uh, with the, the faux promise from his uh, inaugural address of trying to put the country back together. And uh, that was not an available option. <laughs> and because of his history in the Senate, and, you know, he always thinks he can, you know, horse trade to get to a deal. And, and who knows, you know, Manchin may relent <clears throat> and allow... 50, 60, 70 percent of what was on the table last week to pass. But uh, at that point, again, we will have lost the battle over voting rights, which is so fundamental. And uh, so I, I see us slipping further and further down. Do you really believe that Biden wants to pass Build Back Better? He thinks so. I mean, he's he's still talking that way. Uh, he's trying to save face. And, you know, Manchin at some point should come to the realization of, of what is at stake. And he already got all the coal stuff taken out. He killed most of the climate provisions. Uh, he, he should be satisfied, um, but he's not. And then we get to Kirsten Cinema over the filibuster. And it, it really what would your reaction be? What would your reaction be if Merrick Garland, our attorney general, launched an investigation into Joe Manchin's business dealings and his daughter? What would your reaction be? I'd be very well, I would support it, but I'd be very surprised. I mean, Merrick Garland hasn't even moved to uh uh, you know, he, he's been very slow on Bannon's obstruction of the House uh, subpoena. And he's not completely in charge of the Southern District of New York. Um, but, you know, the tax cases which are being run by the state prosecutors in New York uh, are going awfully slow. And the slam dunk investigation into his tampering with the Georgia election where is it? You know, it, it's been a year next week since the phone call that was the equivalent of a guilty plea by Trump. All you got to do is take that into court. And they haven't been able to put together a grand jury and an, even indict him. Because so, 
because I don't know. They I don't know. There are files. Everybody has a secret. And somebody dumped a file on Cy Vance Jr.'s desk here in Manhattan. Somebody dumped a file on the Georgia state prosecutor's desk and said, you want to pursue this? Read this file first. There's no doubt in my mind that I, I know for a fact that that happened. I just, there's no question. You know, uh, speaking of Merrick Garland, he could, I don't know what the law is, but I, it, we've learned that the law doesn't matter. Garland could launch an investigation into Joe Manchin's 500000 a year in coal dividends, an investigation into his daughter's price fixing with EpiPen. This is all illegal. Ooh. It's all illegal. And I don't, I, I'm sure there are memos in the Justice Department that speak of independence. Don't know if they're, they'd hold up in court. I was reading about Michael Avenetti, Stormy Daniels' attorney. Probably not a good guy. When he was arrested, he was placed, uh, moved to the same security facility where Jeffrey Epstein was. He was one floor above him. And they put him in solitary confinement. That's Bill Barr, the attorney general, punishing Michael Avenetti. That's the attorney general warning people that you get arrested. This Justice Department, if you're an enemy of Trump, you're going into solitary confinement. I, I So the idea of an independent Justice Department that isn't politicized, when I think of Karl Rove politicizing George W. Bush's Justice Department and not paying a price, I would have no qualms about... Merrick Garland looking into the very corrupt Manchin family to get Build Back Better passed. That's how it used well, to be done. And, and let's, let's come back to comparing Hillary and Joe. I think Hillary would have pulled the, the trigger and told Justice, uh, you know, make Joe Manchin miserable. Uh, and Joe Biden is saying, oh, no, we can make a deal. We can make a deal. We're better than that. Joe Biden isn't better than anyone. The worst no, president, the, the worst president and vice president. You know, they say the times make the man. The, in this case, the times made the man look like a complete failure, a complete failure. The tests, I'm holding on to my test for COVID. I have one test left. You can't get a test. At least he, at least Biden admitted that he screwed up on the tests. Can you get a test in San Francisco? Uh, they're, they're in short supply, <clears throat> but our little village here in Marin County has a tent on the property of the town hall. And yesterday there were 35 people lined up for a, a COVID test. 
And if you want the results within 12 hours, you have to pay 200 bucks. But if you're willing to wait three days, uh, it's free. And uh, those are PCR tests, which are more reliable than these home tests. Who gets the money? Who gets the 200 bucks? The vendor. Oh, it's it's a public-private partnership. Right, yeah. And my, my nephew, our, our Christmas plans were uh, um, truncated because my nephew uh, had a, a case, not, not a positive diagnosis, but he actually had COVID. And it developed, um, well, now uh, about 10 days ago. And at his sickest point, he took a home uh, COVID test and it came out negative. And two days later, when he was starting to recover, a PCR test uh, came back positive. So, uh, you know, these tests, it, it, can, it can be helpful up to a point, but they're not super, super accurate. Well, let me say they're not all that reliable. I'll put it that way. Right. Professor Marianne so, Cummings, say hello to Peter. I'll give you a formal <laughs> introduction in a second if you just want to make sure you weighed in on all this. Hi, Mary. Yeah, I was interested in Biden's statement. I just kind of glanced over some headlines before he left for his Delaware retreat or his retreat someplace. He basically stated something to the effect of, uh, you know, it's up to the states how to handle COVID. Sounds, and it's that like, sounds like uh, you know, these guys have like Trump basically had the same approach as the previous administration. And it's not surprising because they're under the same pressures. You know, get people back working as soon as possible. Um, no interest in, in, in a sort of welfare state that would keep people home and not make them bankrupt or subject to homelessness when they got out of it. All this was this last year and a half, all the legislation was basically massive transfer of wealth from the bottom to the top. And you know, the inequality is just is just increased. And so you're left with people who, you know, are even more tenuous. And, and the fact that it took another Omicron, uh, another wave of COVID to save people from having to resume their student loan payments. So we're just going to be crossing our fingers and just praying for another wave of the plague to strike so that some humane policies remain in place. That's accelerationism that happened uh, once with uh, FDR, where things got so bad that we brought in uh, Social Security. But, you know, he couldn't get us health care. He got a Social Security. Well, I, don't know. Um, I would like to uh, to end with just one more observation about continuity between <clears throat> Trump and Biden. And it's most glaring in foreign policy. But Tony Blinken's uh, uh, role in heightening tensions with China instead of rolling back Trump's uh, emotionally based tariffs and trying to actually normalize that uh, relationship is one example. The continuing persecution of Julian Assange for uh, releasing <clears throat> information 
that was gleefully published by major media outlets when it was in seen as being in their interests and they could win, uh, you know, Pulitzer Prizes for it. Uh, in an editorial a week ago, the New York Times, for the first time that I've seen recently, uh, did an editorial about uh, uh, journalists in jail around the world. And they closed their piece by uh, uh, acknowledging that Assange uh, is being wrongfully uh, pursued. He's not even an American citizen. He has never uh, operated in this country in order to violate our laws. And, uh, you know, Biden is continuing the same policies, even escalating by trying to appeal the British uh, decision denying extradition. And uh, this, you know, is, is a critical issue related to uh, freedom of the press and accountability of government. And the very media outlets that should be, uh, you know, raising holy hell and running fund drives and telethons for Julian Assange uh, barely pay his, his situation lip service. And that was a fairly remarkable Their change. Jobs. Does that on the part of the New York Times. Yeah. Peter B. Collins, go to, thank you, as always, uh, Peter B. Collins. Go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of interviews and conversations dating back about a decade. About 10 years. About 10 years. <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you, sir. Thank you. And uh, happy new, new year to everybody. I'll be happy to come back next week. Thank you. Marianne, great to see you. Great news. Nice I'm to glad see you too. I'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Professor Marianne Cummings joins us. She is a physicist and an elected official. She was elected Parks Commissioner of Aurora, Illinois. I have a, and you're in Michigan today. Right. Merry Christmas. Hope you had a great Christmas. Merry Christmas. I, you always come loaded for, uh, I was going to say bear, but that's horrible. Uh, I read that, I've been trying to read the business pages because uh, might as well find out what's causing everything on the front page. Might as well start. So 72% of corporate CEOs are afraid of losing their jobs in 2022, 72%. The stock market, I'm told, is at record highs, but, be, but the way these indexes are weighted, it's really five companies that are pulling mm -hmm. the S&P 500 up. The other 495 companies are not doing well. They've uh, racked up record debt, like $17 trillion in debt. Corporate America is not doing well. It's a handful of like 25 companies that are doing well and the rest are suffering. So kind of like this country where... Well, you know, we're just at the end of the Monopoly game where... It's two people and one of us owns Boardwalk and Park Place and, you know, but the other guy still has all the railroads and has all the yellow properties and still can make a living. And, you know, so we just have to chip away at each other. And 
And where's the final frontier? Uh, my problem with capitalism, even as a kid, I kind of perceived this problem that unbridled growth was never a thriving situation. Unbridled growth in, in biology is cancer. I guess in physics, it would be supernova. But, you know, sooner or later, you don't have a thriving situation until you come to some kind of equilibrium. And we did have equilibrium. And it was an experiment that worked so well that that faction that was defeated to get to that place, that is the, the bankers and the oligarchs who were defeated by, partially anyway, by the New Deal, which basically the biggest damage, because they were still rich, but the biggest damage was it uh, gave the lie to all of their assumptions about how the world worked. That yes, you didn't have to have a bank crash every generation. We went almost 50 years, amazingly, uh, anomalous in the entire history of this country, even before the country, of no major bank failure. And the first, you know, the first uh, sort of canary in the coal mine was the 80s with the savings and loan, mm -hmm. as I pointed out. Uh, to be fair, I've always liked Jimmy Carter, but I was a little surprised to find out that it was Jimmy Carter who signed into law that bill that deregulated savings and loans. So, you know, uh, they, it, is just a few people making money for a few people. Um, our friend Landrew, um, he hasn't been with us for a while, but years before, years ago, he pointed out that any given day on Wall Street, it's about six people making like 90% of the trades, meaning six major funds moving the market. And they decide, they make decisions on where the market's going to move and they move and everybody just by the sheer, you know, gravitational force of the money being moved or the Bernoulli effect of the money being moved. That's what causes the way, flight, that's, Bernoulli. That's a principle that allows sailboats to sail. And it's a principle that was used in the formulation of some of these derivative concepts. And this is what happens when you don't fund science and, you know, physicists get into the financial sector, which you never want to have happen. Right. Right. ever again right <laughs> but i mean it's, it's it's crazy and you know like the nuns taught me uh in grade school it literally is a house of cards it's just our economy is just basically a shared confidence in the essential value of the system and the government as represented by these little pieces of paper and these little coins and everyone trying to make uh, it, it, economics into physics is just kind of constructing an, an, a huge, an enormous hoax as right. far as I'm concerned. But, the the yeah. lie, the thing that amazes me is you can say anything about the economy and nobody has the vocabulary to correct you. For example, this is the only place you're going to hear this, and I repeat it all the time. They tell us the Dow Jones Industrial Average, if, if you buy stock, you will average 11% since the turn of the 20th century. Since 1903, the stock market has averaged 11%. It always goes up. You've heard that, right? Well, in the aggregate. It's not the same companies, though, but yeah. Exactly. In the aggregate. In the aggregate. Exa they, what they don't tell you is that the, the stock market is measured by 30. 
either 500, I'm going to call it the Dow Jones Industrial. It's measured by 30 companies. And when those companies go bad, they're removed and replaced by a better company. Like General Electric had been in the Dow Jones Industrials for like 100 years, and then it turned to shit. Mm -hmm. So they replaced it with, you know, Facebook. So, of course, the Dow Jones is going to go up year after year if you only have winners in that basket of 30 stocks. It's why charter and charter schools learn that the charter schools only gravitate to really uh, ambitious kids. God forbid you have some kind of learning disability. They don't want you. So their tests, charter schools should test better and they don't. That's how bad charter schools are. They well, skew actually, the results you know, and they still they actually, cheating has been a, a business model for the charter school system. Team. Right. Altering students' grades on standardized tests has been a business model for some of the charter school systems. Yeah, that's um, yeah, we uh, successfully and by we, I mean, John Lash <laughs> has right. had successfully because he was on the uh, East Aurora School Board. He successfully fended off a charter school coming in and taking some of the school budget to make a charter school. And he, or because at the time we had this Bruce Rauner, this billionaire Republican, and he had formed a committee down in Springfield to go around the wishes of local school boards when it, when it, uh, regarding, regarding charter schools coming in. And John helped organize all through the state to fend off against that because that's kind of what John does no job too small but yeah i mean it's a it's it's kind of it's it's a shell game and it's it any any system that is kind of based on definitions of a ruling class you can try to be quasi scientific and make up things like the unemployment rate or these you know the cpi or the uh, you know, the the gross national product but every time or inflation anything like that and and any number as um, as was uh, as somebody mentioned earlier, any number in that, any any metric you come up with in economics is going to be gamed, even if right. it starts out being kind of an honest assessment. If you establish that as as the measure of how well you're doing, that those numbers are going to be gamed. Mark right. Blythe had mentioned that in one of his podcasts. I mean, uh, and it's. Uh, so as as I said, I wish I could take credit for this concept, but I can't because I read it when I was 13 someplace and I still don't know the, it was an MIT economist who was a regular colonist at the time. We're talking like you know, 70s. He said that uh, economics isn't science. It is best understood as a branch of ethics. And if you understand it, in, in other words, you have exchange, which means you have some kind of value assessment, which assumes a certain integrity and honesty and at least uh, transparency about the exchange. And if you're exchanging things that have worth, like currency that's uh, issued by a government that has the full backing of that government, then, you know, you have some kind of measure. But the instant you start turning it into physics, because some things can be described with second order differential equations like many understood physics processes um you know you 
you, you'll suddenly have people gaming that system. And then the economists are always shocked. And this is quite apart from just outright fraud and theft, which always shocked them because it never shows up right. in their calculations. So, you know, this is, uh, this is a problem. Yeah. I mean, Adam Smith, I remember reading Adam Smith in college and <laughs> the, the edition of, my, of the book that I had, uh, they had a forward that sort of advised that you skip chapters, I don't know, six, three, seven, and a couple other. And one of them was labor. And it's a big freaking chapter. And in fact, I, so naturally, I read that chapter. And it's probably one of the most important chapters in the book because he's trying to establish a kind of capitalistic system that was honorable, like, you know, and, and the premise is you have all of these values, you have a society that has firmly established, you know, like uh, the traditions and laws of fair exchange and transparency and not lying. And of course, labor, you pay a living wage. I mean, they insisted you cannot have an economy unless workers are paid a living wage. He says, because presumably slaves in India are given enough to eat and they're properly sheltered and closed. Otherwise they wouldn't be able to function. Uh, Even Henry Ford knew that. Well, he understood a model where the money would cycle around. (laughs) It's like if you pay your workers uh, enough to buy your products, you're going to get that money anyway, but it's going to go through their hands, which is this famous acceleration term, which it, where the multiplication factor comes from, which is for somebody who was kind of trying to train myself in physics at the time, that's kind of like, okay, where's the, where, where is the conservation current in all this? Well, there isn't, well, the conservation current, the real current is people are motivated to put effort and then they create and people are motivated to build something or figure out a problem or do something at all because they are mo- because they're they're going to get something that's is represents worth represents the ability to get clothing or housing or food or you know nice life etc. Right. So um, I want to ask. And all those rules are gone. We're still in a we're still in a culture where normal people are just so exposed to the elements. And uh, it's kind of obvious, it became obvious this week because I've been in hospitals a lot, not me, myself, personally, but with friends and now with family. And uh, both my friends and my parents are well off, have excellent insurance, but even they are dealing with headaches put in place by the insurance companies. And you know, my mother can write a check for $150, $200 copay. No problem. That is no problem for her to go in. And it's like, it's a problem for almost everybody in my neighborhood. It's, it's just, and my parents are really wonderful people, but I think they don't acknowledge how vicious the system is. And if you want to segue into talking about Democrats and Republicans, I think, we're hitting our head against the wall because we still want to somehow believe that Democrats are a better option when they are the enabling option of this vicious system. If it were all Republicans and they're hideous, there'd easily be a resistance. And there was. There's a resistance when 
Trump was in power. There was a resistance to a lot. There was Black Lives Matter. There was, I mean, it's not that this stuff wasn't going on before. It was always going on, but somehow it had an ugly enough face at the top that people were really motivated. And now that is all. And we've been told by our leaders that, no, 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 you know, we've got to have, quote, discipline, which I thought was a hilarious way to put it, and vote for this guy who's obviously sunsetting and, you know, against everything we stand for. But, but you know, this is the way we get what we want. And I think it's dawning on people that uh, this may not be working out. Anyway. How, yeah, and how worried are you? about the Democratic Party's inability to save democracy. Because it oh, won't that. be the Republic. It won't be the Republicans. Huh? I mean, I stopped worrying about that when they failed catastrophically in 2000. Right. Right. I mean, there was a coup that went on right before our eyes and there was zero ability from the Democratic Party. I mean, there was no resistance. It was almost like this is a gentleman's agreement. And, you know, uh, and then four years later, like John Kerry, I mean, he didn't even didn't even go out and speak to his supporters that night, that election night. And uh, he wasn't concerned. I was just like I was sick. I was physically ill thinking we can't get rid of. Surely this was four years ago was an aberration. We can't get rid of these guys now. And uh, the next week, he and Teresa went off with Maria and Arnold on a ski trip. And it's like, oh, they're all cool at the top. Carrie <laughs> ran on the same lie that Obama ran on, which is Iraq bad, Afghanistan good. We're fighting the wrong war. It wasn't Saddam Hussein who attacked us. It was the people of Afghanistan. It was the Taliban. That's what Obama and Kerry said. They just ran on another lie. Well, they ran on another, on a pl more plausible story. The old one could not be maintained anymore, even as early as 2004, you know, the WMDs and that that, that was that that fell, fell apart. So you have to fall back on the more plausible story. And there's always got to be an enemy. <laughs> you know, right. that's and the reality is, I mean, even in high school, I was kind of coming to the conclusion that we have no real enemies other than the ones that we're actively creating and provoking. Even then, this was when the Soviet Union was still, you know, a threat a toe-to-toe -to -toe threat with the United States. But, um, you know, it just seemed to me that, no, nah, I don't think it's even the Soviets are the enemy. They don't want to destroy the world. I mean, who wants to destroy the world? Well, I don't know. The billionaires seem perfectly cool with destroying the world. I mean, literally destroying it, as long as they're on top. Yeah. So who's our enemy? China? <laughs> really? China's our enemy now. It's crazy. I mean, it's... Um, but there's always, you know, there's always got to be, you know, like we'll always be at war with Oceana, you know, that that kind of thing. And right. it's um, and I wish that smart people smarter than I could see through it. But, you know, you, you're emotionally it is emotionally hard to disentangle yourself from assumptions that you've been comfortable with and a game that you have excelled at.
you know, it's many people have, it took a long time for people in Washington to get good at what they do. Um, a lot of effort, a lot of energy goes into that. So to tell somebody that, well, the game you've been playing for the last 20 years, that's basically killing us. You have to, right. you have to play a different game. Right. Who's going to give up? Who's going to give up that power? Who's going to give up their entire, you know, everything they've worked at? Right. That's hard. Have you seen the Adam McKay movie, Don't Look Up, on Netflix? No, no, I want to do that. But we, we've been watching The Mandalorian, me and my parents. Oh, okay. Oh, that's so that's so ador adorable, little baby Yoda. I mean, that of course, that show is going to be a winner. Okay. It's actually kind of interesting. Let's talk about what I call the, the... I know, I know the whole thing. And by the way, I've been reading reviews of it. And from what I know... Um, there's a, one of the the best things about uh, the old TYT was uh, What the Flick. And I used to watch that all the time. And was it uh, uh, Alfonso Durante and, and Ben Mankiewicz and a couple other people. And, uh, well, they've now reconstituted as Breakfast All Day and they reviewed it. And, oh, my God. I mean, they're almost a parody I mean, they're, they're like characters in this movie from what I understand of this movie. Oh, they just, oh, they're just harping on a point. What are they doing? They're just so unsubtle. They're just hitting us over the head with this. Whereas like, you know, Dr. Strangelove, yeah, that was like grim, but at least they weren't hitting us over the head with it. I'm going, really? I mean- There's no fighting in the war room. That, remember the, that line? There's no remember, fighting in the war room. There's no fighting in the war room. But every, almost every scene when you were at the army base with General Jack D. Ripper, oh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's subtle. There was a little, they, they had the army motto, you know, peace is our profession. Even when the guns are going off, you know, right. peace is our profession, billboard in the background. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, no, I, I think these guys, I mean, except that they might run into copyright laws. I mean, I, I'm thinking that Adam McKay could use excerpts from that review as a trailer for this movie yeah i mean because it's just it perfectly encapsulates the mindset that the movie appears to be you know targeting so i've read many articles about it i'm looking forward to watching it's, it the story it's an amazing story it's an amazing it story is. well it involves our space agency of course and we are now totally privatizing space completely i was reading about nasa the International Space Station in about five years will explode into our atmosphere. We're going to get rid of it. And from then on, the only way to get into space is through SpaceX, through Musk or Bezos or some other country. If you want to be a space tourist or if a government wants to get to the moon, they're going to be using private enterprise. They have privatized space. Not good. But the Webb Hubble, I call it the Webb Hubble telescope. <laughs> remember Webb Hubble? The, the, uh, the I remember the Hubble. Webb Hubble Webb was, was a mystery, but uh, Webb Hubble we, was I the Clinton advisor. I on Christmas morning to be with, you know, Saul and friends and on the uh, after office hours and watch this take off and it was successful it was, 
very successful. This is going to yeah. be a telescope behind the moon, right? This is like in, in an orbit around. Yeah. And what are we going to see? And uh, what you're going to see is like an infra infrared spectrum from deep into space as stars that could possibly have planets, which appears to be all of them to first order. And these are incredibly sensitive instruments. And what they're doing is they're, they're mostly centered in various slices of what we call the uh, infrared, which is heat. And the reason for that is, uh, even though a star's radiation is like millions of times more than the radiation from any of its planets, even large, in most of the, uh, uh, the electromagnetic spectrum, in the infrared, it's only like, you know, 100 to 1,000 times more. And that, you know, that with the instruments we have is enough to be able to detect you know, with uh, with enough sensitivity, if planets have atmospheres, if it's an atmosphere that has oxygen, if it's an atmosphere that is close to the Earth. So it's going to be, I suspect that, you know, in six months time, there's going to be, um, I might have to rewrite the lectures I once gave on uh, an astrobiology course that I was teaching with uh, another person, faculty member at Northern Illinois. It's going to be stick to, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be great. What, what, what is, so are we going to learn what we already know or is there going to be something? I, well, we're certainly going to learn. It's like one of the big mysteries or one of the big questions in biology Um is whether it's how universal is DNA because that's the basis of all life on this planet is DNA, RNA. Um, is that something that just naturally arises everywhere in the universe or was that just an accident that happened here? And what are um, the, what, 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 those are amino acids? DNA? Well, the DNA is four amino acids, but it's the double helical structure of that makes it so robust and so able to mutate. I mean, the a part of what allows li allowed life to mutate was <clears throat> the occasional radiation, the occasional chemical uh, chemical explosions. I mean, I think there were, the biggest extinction event of life of all life was about I don't know a hundred million maybe it was two billion years ago when uh most life was anaerobic at that time and then meaning some of these no oxygen microbes no oxygen putting right? out a toxic substance called oxygen right and and then it wiped out most life and all the rest of the uh most of uh most of life had to go deep underground and in the crevices and as the atmosphere got more and more full with oxygen and, and it was a massive extinction of these anaerobic uh, little creatures, and then it was aerobic creatures took over the planet. Do we know if, then, have, we, have we seen oxygen, the presence of oxygen? I, I have heard that there, there was some indirect indications that there's uh, planets on this one system might actually have oxygen, but it's not direct. What you need to have is a much more, you need to have a very uh, a sensitive set of instruments that are targeted and have targeted at slices of the infrared spectrum. 
to do analysis on. And apparently, I'd like to learn more about this, uh, uh, the, the, the main instrument up there, because it's supposed to be the next generation charge coupled device, which, which are extremely sensitive devices. I mean, they've charged, CCDs have completely revolutionized uh, astronomy in the whole spectrum, not just the visible light range. It's to the extent that you don't need to put, for a lot of our deep space explorations, you don't even need to put things on, on satellites anymore. You can have them in high observatories like in the Chilean Andes. And, and, and we are so good at just even correcting for atmospheric um, distortions and aberrations. But in this case, though, because we are dealing with a small small bumps on a much larger spectrum. In other words, we're looking for the small bumps from the planets on top of much larger background spectrum from the star, stars they're orbiting. Um, that we have to put it out into space. Um, there's a nice little lecture. It's, it's called um, Lagrangian points, and it has to do with uh, a sort of local potential wells of gravitational forces and the equations are you know i i would i wouldn't teach them to i wouldn't go through them with uh with freshmen even freshman physicists i wouldn't go through them with anybody right now because i'd have to sit down and go through them again myself but it's in a and there there's several locations between the sun and the and and the earth and on the earth's orbit and one called the l2 point beyond the earth on the dark literally on the dark side of the moon um and it's well by the way well beyond the moon's orbit around the sun around the earth and uh and that point is where it's eventually going to head out to so that's a million miles away and that's going to be and it's going to be very easy to keep that tele that the instruments in that um, orbiter stabilized and in that little gravitational that shallow gravitational well out there so we can't have people going out and repair it if something breaks. And of course, there's all been all kinds of hilarity on, on the Twitters and the Facebook. Like I, I think the, the funniest one where I saw it backwards, a sort of blurry backwards image. You know, the first image from the web, from the James Webb Telescope. There's this blurry image with the letters backwards that says, "Remove before flight." Right. Oh no. Wasn't the Hubble telescope at first a disaster? Uh, there were things that I, I I don't know the details, but yes, there were things that were wrong that were not properly vetted on Earth, and then they weren't working. And they but they, they were able to send because it's you know in right. near orbit. Uh, they were able to uh, send up some people to to fix it. Um, I, I I just don't know the details of it. Right, but. Right. Um, but this, so this, oh, that was amazing. You know, that's kind of fun. I mean, that was a fun, uh, very heroic uh, kind of episode. And um, but that's not going to be the case with the James Webb Telescope, and and because it has to, because the ideal place is like a million miles from Earth. That's not. Well, let me be ask you a, trip to make. one stupid question about some, something like the space shuttle, which we've discontinued. That couldn't make it to the moon. Right, the, the the idea of sending the space shuttle to the moon, but I don't understand why because the LEM was the the lunar module that Apollo Eleven took to 
the mm -hmm. moon was as thin as aluminum foil. I mean, it was just so you don't. It, yeah, it was yeah, scary. Um, but why couldn't the shuttle have flown? Too, but it, I mean, the sheer chutzpah it took to do those missions. I know. Was, uh, I have a little remarkable. game that I, I have a lunar module landing game. And uh, I play it all night where I pretend I'm Neil Armstrong. But but the, the, the space shuttle, I was told years ago, couldn't make it to the moon. Is that because of fuel or be, why couldn't you send it oh, to the moon? Oh, well, I guess it's just, you know. It, Not it, it to land on of, the moon. Not to land on but, the moon, but to. But to just orbit around. Yeah. That, I, I, I don't know the aerodynamic. I mean, you're, when you're talking about a, a rather substantial piece of hardware, whereas the Apollo module was relatively small. I mean, it's very tiny, uh, I mean, in comparison. And to try to, like, um, maybe just the fuel consumption or just the, the, the risk that it would take. Um, I, mean, I don't know how much thrust I mean, you look, need. How much, we, I don't know how much thrust you can, need to go to the moon once you're in orbit. But, I mean, theoretically... If you're willing to wait a couple of years, a hundred pounds of thrust will get you to the moon, right? Yeah, if you're willing to wait, but then you've got the problem of you know like surviving, and you've got the problem of radiation. I mean, that's the biggest yeah. problem. Is uh, you know how do you properly shield? And you know, I, I guess I, I you know I I must confess I. And this will I'll I'll do that the next time I do a lecture on space uh, on astrobiology and maybe have a special lecture on space travel and why creatures such as ourselves haven't gotten to us yet and may never get to us unless we discover wormholes because they've been radiated. Because, well, it's been you know it's it's uh, space is not the place, man. I'm sorry, you know. Apologies to Sun Ra, but it's it's not. It's a very inhospitable environment for us to spend any length of time on. They tell it, you it's, mean, not it's a, just, not a place to raise your kids. Yeah, it's, I've also heard that. <laughs> We're not going Although to Mars. Although I have read, there's a book called the uh, the uh, the Martian, and it was a movie. But I want to read the book first. I hear the book is actually quite good. I mean, technically very good. But we can't go to the radiation will kill us on the trip to Mars, right? Could. Or, you know, maybe not kill it. Look, uh, you can survive quite a bit of radiation. <laughs> I mean, you might not live as long as you would. But right. uh, and, and if you're not reproducing afterwards, you know, hell, right. you're much more robust than most of the electronics. Let's put it this way. That's what I like to think. The vacuum tubes. That's why, <laughs> you know, when they shot down a MIG, uh, a, a Russian MIG over Japan in the in the 70s, uh, you know, they were stunned to look at the, the controls and it was all like vacuum tubes, you know. And people were kind of chuckling about that until somebody pointed out, uh, those tubes will survive a nuclear blast. None of our electronics will, you know. So anyway. We have but, to wrap um, up. One little sure. message to uh, our Marxists, we beat the Russians to the moon, but they beat us into space. They were orbiting around mm -hmm. space a year or two before we did. They, they launched Sputnik and Khrushchev lost interest in landing on the moon. 
we were competing against the Russians. They they've they were we got we got we have to feed our people. We got more important things to worry about. You go to the moon, but they convinced us here in the United States that it's a race against the Russians to the moon. And then at the last minute, they said, "All right, we'll send a." will land a, a satellite on the moon just to, you The know. Russians did send a lot of probes to Venus. Yeah. I don't think we uh I don't think we really sent much. I mean, I, there was a time where they were it was they were the only ones like exploring the surface of Venus. Right. Back in the day. But um Professor Marianne anyway, Cummings, physicist, give my best mm -hmm. to your loved ones and uh, okay. I hope to see you at office hours and you are in case you forgot, the a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, an elected official, our only elected official on this show. And you know what's up with that? Why aren't dead people like running for at least precinct committeeman or school board? You know, I know a certain person is claiming is complaining the entire time that we do nothing but complain here <laughs> on the show, but uh, you know. Hey, run for school board. Do something. I'm thinking of running, like doing a Father Coughlin kind of move. But he never ran. But I'm thinking of, no. you know, a Huey Long kind of just, uh, I want to be a demagogue where people get scared by me. Like he's out of control. I think oh, I Oh, that's, uh, that's unique. There's nobody on Twitter's doing that. That's true. <laughs> or the YouTubes. Ah, you're right. I knew I'd fail at it. Why bother? Thank you, <laughs> Professor Marianne. <laughs> Professor Marianne. Uh, Cummings. <laughs> Professor Mike Steinell joins us. He is the 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 band leader of the David Feldman show. We we'd be nothing <laughs> without this man. We didn't have him last week. He was celebrating this this holiday they call Christmas. So we didn't have Professor Mike Steinell. He's a jazz trumpeter, composer, educator, member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 until 2019, author of three highly acclaimed books on jazz, The Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, volumes one and two, building a jazz vocabulary, and his latest is Running the Changes. Welcome back, Professor Mike Steinell. Thank you, David. The Lake How are House, you doing? The Lake House is your detective novel? Yes. Saving Charlie I, Parker I'm is your I'm other... I'm echoing. Huh? Let me, take, let me turn my computer off in the other room. I hear an echo. You're doing fine. Hang on a second. Okay. While we're waiting for Professor Mike Steinell to come back, why not go pick up Song and Dance, the Mike Steinell Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert. It's out on Origin Records. Go to MikeSteinell.com for more information. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, DavidFeldmanShow.com. There, I I'm vamped. I'm back. I vamped. I'm back. I'm back. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, David. Did you have a good one? I ate six Cinnabons. Oh, my God. But that's all I ate. 
So they go right to your ass, don't you know that? Yes, they go right to your ass. I, that's I just shove them up there. I don't even chew. I just. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I, heard, I, I heard I heard the bun um, in my buns. <laughs> that's right. God, uh, it was great to hear Liam. That was a great segment last week. I really enjoyed it, even though he crapped all over the length of my songs. I guess, but it's okay. You know, people. I, I, I love I love Liam. I love Liam. He's great. Dr. Harriet Fraud said something to me. And this is from a Marxist. Okay. She said, you're building something really fantastic. And that means people will try to undermine it. And that's why I pay no heed to some of the insults <laughs> that come my way. There, there, there are people in any organization who see somebody who is either having a good time or being creative and because they are creatively impotent, they try to undermine what you're doing. So I, I pay no heed to uh, some criticism. <laughs> Not that Liam... Somebody, is, somebody in the chat said, is Steinel drunk this week? I hope so. <laughs> do, I see, do I seem drunk? I hope no, you No, I are. haven't. I, I'm 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 totally sober. Usually I'm sober. Yeah. Every now and then I've I've I, I'll have a little bit of wine while I'm talking to you. Yeah. But uh, hey, I we watched. Um, it's a wonderful life. I can't believe you mentioned. I was just going to bring that up. Well, you know, you I, you talked about it earlier. Oh, okay. And, All right. Yeah. What? And I cry too. I found the more I watch it. First of all, it is extremely well edited. Sometimes I think TV, you get it chopped up with the commercials. We we actually went, to, I think I went to Amazon Prime and got it for 30 days for three bucks. So we didn't have to do any commercials. <clears throat> or it might have been on YouTube, actually. It might have been on YouTube. But we didn't have commercials. And there's actually, I think, over the years you get it on commercial TV, they chop certain things out. But it is extremely well edited, except for a couple of places in the bank where you go, oh, they they didn't li line up the shots, you know, like it it jerks around a little bit. But where do you you cry when she talks and says, I love you, George Bailey, forever into his you, bad you ear. Cry on that part. Even yeah. now I'm getting a chill when she whispers into his bad ear. I love you. I'll love you forever. I just went, I started, and then the commercial starts and I'm off. Like, I, you know. <laughs> okay, there's two other places that really got me this time. The one when the drunk druggist slaps him. Yep. And he's, and he's crying. That little actor's good. The guy who I plays did, I the George. I never saw the blood, the blood dripping from his ear. Oh, yeah, the blood drips from his ear. Yeah. That's, my, that's my ear. That's yeah. my bad ear. Yeah. And he, I, I lost it there. And then the, the greatest scene in the movie is when uh, he's gone over to, George has gone over to Mary's house and the mother doesn't want George, Mary to have anything with George. And they're talking to his friend on the phone. He almost leaves and his friend and that the two of them are face to face and they just kind of, he just kind of melts down. You know, I don't want any plastics. And uh, that is a brilliant, the, the, their faces uh, in that scene are amazing. You know, right. the, the also when when um, when he meets the younger brother at the rail station 
and he finds out that the younger brother is getting married and has a job, how his face just kind of gradually melts from being really happy. And then he has to put on, then right. he, then he kind of resolves to make the best out of it. I always cried at the end, but those, those, uh, those other th uh, three places were, uh, I think I was, I, I, um, I was joking with my wife and I'm crying now. And I don't think she was, <laughs> but here's <laughs> anyway, the thing maybe you have to, just a guy's thing. Here's the thing you have to understand about it's a wonderful life. It was a metaverse. It's an alternative reality. It didn't exist. It's exactly what Zuckerberg is trying to do with Meta. You put on your Oculus glasses and you reimagine what this country was. What you're looking at, the, the, I, the resistance that I had to rewatching It's a Wonderful Life is... It never existed. It's an idealized utopia of what this country's it's aspirational at best. It's what we could. Be, right. But it right. never. Existed. Yeah, it is. There are no. First of all, it's all white people. Uh, no, the maid, the maid. Oh, well, OK. And, <laughs> there uh, you go. <laughs> uh, so it reminded me of when I took my kids to Disneyland for the first time. I hated Disney, and rightfully so. Horrible, union-busting, red-baiting. You know, not a good guy. Really bad. Yeah. Really bad guy, Walt Disney, in terms of labor relations. Yeah. And, uh, but once you have kids, Disney is a good babysitter. And you begin to, it weakens you. And you go, well, he's a mixed bag. My kids, you know, 101 <laughs> Dalmatians. And the first time I walked down Main Street, USA with my kids, I got a lump in my throat. And it's it's Missouri. You know, it's Missouri in, I don't know, 1870. And I, and then I go, oh, hang on for one second. This never existed. No, this isn't what the country used to be. This is one of Walt Disney's fevered dreams of. Yeah, of, but those are those are, are isn't all fiction like that pretty much. Yeah, but it what that's how you get idealized. Manda. You get make America great again. You get people believing. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. They get nostalgic right. for something that didn't exist. It's, it's reactionary. Reactionary that never politics. existed. Yeah. yeah. Reactionary politics is striving for the greatness we once had. It didn't exist. That's how Hitler, I mean, Hitler was a reactionary. Yeah. Bring, make Germany great again. It was never great. So, yeah, but It's a Wonderful Life is, uh, it's a great movie. It, was a, it wasn't uh, successful for years. No. Matter no. of fact, they screwed up on the copyright and it went into public domain, I right. think. Right. Somebody, somebody, somebody bought it back. Well, back. But I, I liked uh, your your conversation with Liam when you were talking about. Uh, he was talking about uh, <laughs> having the stink on him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I think that that's that's interesting. I, I, in in my line of work in in jazz, since it's so collaborative, I think in comedy. 
for stand-up in particular, it's still kind of you're alone. Everyone's a lone wolf, mm-hmm. and so there is that competition. Uh, and a lot of success depends on being really lucky. That happens in in music also. But in music, people know if you musicians know if you're good or not. They know what you can do, you know. And there's and and they'll tell you, you know, like um, they'll recognize it even. It's, you know, the even famous people, if they get to hear you, you know, they're maybe they're guests at a club. They're they're very supportive. You know, it isn't it's not as competitive, I don't think. Well, music is mathematical. You can measure whether or not something's actually good on paper. You can hear a musician and know that he's or she's technically sound and hitting the right notes. You can, right. You can. Yeah. Comedy is a bit more ephemeral, and it really, you know, it, it's he's funny because it's funny to hear a fat person talk this way, or it's funny because he's black but he has a British accent. He sounds funny, you know. It's that kind of stuff where people go, "Well, yeah. he's not really saying anything Plus funny," you- but. It, but I guess a black guy with a British accent is funny, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, you know, part of it is you a stand-up needs an audience. I don't need an audience. A jazz person can play by themselves and work on their thing and uh, uh, kind of assess whether it's good or not, you know, and, and uh, get the feedback. But you have to hear the laughs, I think. You know, in a way, it's not it's, me, not you. <laughs> you don't need the laughs. It, it screws up my timing. <laughs> the laughs yeah. get in the way. I literally have said Sadie. to audiences, don't laugh. I don't care what you think. It's yeah, I heard just, you say that once. I don't you're know. Getting you, you really way. believe that? Huh? <laughs> no, you you want the laugh. Of course you wouldn't I be do. doing this if it wasn't for the laugh. Yes, I like to make people laugh. Hey, somebody last week, I think it was, um, it wasn't Peter, it was David Cobb, was talking about uh, the the um, the nation being on the brink of another civil war. And there was an article in, uh, I, I printed it out, it's in the other room, but uh, some, something like 43%, the, you know, Zogby, the polar Zogby, mm-hmm. you've heard of the Zogby of course, poll, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. He polled 43% of America polled thinks there might be a civil war in the uh, and, and only 14% said there's there's uh, no uh, threat of that. But the big problem then it goes on to say this can't happen here. And one of the reasons is we don't have a geographical thing. But I thought it'd be a funny th- premise for a. Um, uh, I think a TV series or a that there, a civil war breaks out. But since you don't have the North and the South, you have like, uh, first of all, college towns would become very blue and people would move out of them. And there would be this maybe this uh, this uh, 30 day like find your ground, you know, 30, 30 day find your ground. And of course. The people on the left would would take over Whole Foods and and those kind of things. And then people on the right would take over Walmart, you know, and then every Starbucks would be neutral territory. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everybody, what do you think? Yeah, possibilities. I, I, I don't see a civil. War. Remember the expression: "What if they gave a war? Uh, they had a war, nobody no showed one came." Up. Remember that? Yeah, I think yeah, that would course. be the civil war in the United States. We're too lazy to get off our fat asses and fight for anything. <laughs> Only one percent of this country is in the military. We're not going to. People aren't going to. You know, it's just not going. Anyway, famous last words, right? Yeah, well, you know, uh, I thought uh, John Ross was asking you to imagine the wackiest. That was pretty good today. I uh, I caught that. Well, how bad do you think things can get? You live in Texas, so when I think yeah. of when I think of a far right takeover of America, where anybody can carry a gun, where it's anti-vaxxers, anti-mandates, anti-abortion. You're in country, as they say. You're in another country. It's Texas. And yet the greatest leftists, the greatest progressives also live in Texas. So how how bad can it really get? I mean, Texas is still livable, right? Yeah, you know, it's 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 an interesting thing to think of uh, the the urban and rural dichotomy. You know, um, I think that you know you guys were talking about how people are more vocal. I, I this thing of people getting you know disruptive on airlines, and I've just seen. I saw a couple of things from a. Uh, my sister-in-law about a scene she witnessed in a CVS, you know, where somebody was dressing down a, a black person, you know, and and, <laughs> and and then the last thing she said was, I'm never coming back to this store. And the, all the people in the line said, great. You know, they all applauded. Don't come back, you know. Right. But I think people are. The school board, there's a big article in the New York Times about uh, the school board in, um, where was that? It didn't really matter about the the locale, but it was a this business of masks. And then it, it went on, this was on, I think on Saturday's paper. It went on to say this, that this argument about masks that got so crazy in, in uh, city councils and things really wasn't about masks at all. It was people yelling, you know, we've been we've been shouted down for 20 years and we're not going to take it. You know, I think that that's a frightening thing. But uh, I mean, there is an hey, argument. I'm, there is an argument to be made. I'm not making it that if you ignore okay. this nonsense, it'll go away. I was watching Jordan Klepper. I think that's his name. He does these really great segments for The Daily Show where he talks to Trump supporters and just spits the logic back in their face in a very gentle way. It's pretty amazing to watch. And as I'm watching it, I think they don't, these people stand for one thing, owning us, just making us angry. That's all the vast majority of them want to do is just say things to confuse us and make us feel owned. And I think if you ignore them, if you ignore them, uh, famous last words. 
sure people said that during Nazi Germany. Just ignore these clowns. I mean, Hitler was considered a clown. Everybody he surrounded himself was identical to the people that uh, Trump surrounded himself with. People with yeah, drug addiction, wife beaters. I mean, every a lot of wife beaters, a lot of uh, you know sexual deviants, people with files on them, criminal records. You know, that's who Trump and Hitler surrounded themselves with because they're easily manipulated. What do you got behind you there? Well, I went on Payday Report, you know, I, I promised you I would kind of keep it. By the way, Mike's got COVID and not doing well. He has some um, underlying conditions. He has like he has and, asthma. Uh, he has bad asthma. Yeah. And he's got COVID and he said and I'm I'm not doing well. And he was asking for donations. I I'd have donated a little bit here and there. But this is his interactive map. Each one of those dots is a strike. Can you believe that? Yeah. Can you pin me? Yeah, we see you. Okay. I don't know. I'm not very big. Okay, there. That's I'm a little bigger. Those are all the strikes. Um, see, the Labor Department doesn't record. I know. Strikes I know. that uh, are waged against companies that have fewer than like a, a thousand employees. So the Labor Department. This is. You can click on each one of these and it'll tell you a little bit about what's going on. Some of them are work stoppages. Uh, some of them are a lot of them are health health workers. I yeah. look very dramatic in my lighting tonight, don't I? Yeah. I come Thank, in let that, me just take care club. of something here. Uh, I don't know this guy. His name is Mike Elk. He runs paydayreport.com. And he needs, I thought you had him on once. I asked him to be on a long time ago. Okay. I saw how hard he was working and I thought he doesn't have time for me and why you know why put him through that but I I ask you now to uh, go to paydayreport.com and donate to paydayreport.com Mike Elk is a great I don't know him I donate to him he needs money he is broke He's a labor reporter and he's uh, quite ill. Uh, he has lung issues, previous pneumonia, and we need him. So go to paydayreport.com and give Mike Elk money. He is one of, if not the best labor reporter in America. Mike Elk. Here's what he did. This is how great a man he is. He was working for Politico, which just got sold for a billion dollars. He helped try to unionize Politico. They messed around with him and he got an NLRB settlement. And like Ralph Nader getting his settlement from General Motors in the 60s, he didn't keep it for himself. Mike Elk used the money to set up payday report where he travels around the country covering labor issues. Nobody covers labor better than Mike Elk. He needs your help. He is one of the, he's a selfless reporter. Never met the guy. Yeah. I'm just telling Me you, payday, paydayreport.com. 
he's too serious a reporter and he's too busy for me to kind of pressure him to come on the show. Uh, so. I've been thinking about Bessemer now that's back in the news, yeah. you know, they're going to have a new vote. Um, and uh, I was working on a song for Bessemer and my computer over here, the computer there, I'm having the same trouble that you're having. It just, something is eating all the hard drive. The CPU. I'll, I'll clear the CPU, whatever. I don't know. The hard drive is messed up. So I've got a terabyte, but uh, it keeps maxing out and I'll dump stuff and I'll copy stuff to a hard drive and Do then I an come Apple? back the next morning and I've got like one gig of room, you know. Do so you sometimes I tried to redo a, a, a system, re install the system and that didn't work. So I don't know when I'm, I have, may have to get a new computer. But anyway, Do you um, have an Apple? down in Bessemer. Yeah, it's an Apple. Yeah, down that, in Bessemer, I, you know, they have two deaths me. down there. You heard about that, right? No. Well, this guy, uh, this happened on November 28th and 29th. Um, one guy had a stroke. On, he went to HR and said, I'd left, I have to go home. I'm not feeling good. And they said, well, you don't have any, enough time to take sick leave. So if you go home, you don't have a job. So he stayed, had a heart attack and died. And it took, they said it took, they have like a, uh emt you know they have emergency medical team on the in the thing and it took him like 20 minutes to get to him and he just died when was this? another guy that was november 28th because there have been some november stories about amazon screwing their workers on sick leave miscalculating what's owed to them on vacation and sick leave that a lot of eggs well, Amazon this, this guy really got the bad end he got yeah. the bad end of the stick on that yeah. the other guy was just all of a sudden they noticed that he where's Joe you know and, and evidently there was trailers they were loading up and he had gone into a trailer it took him 20 minutes to find him and he he died but you know um, they can't use their cell phones and that's why those six people died in Indiana right um, that could have been saved had they had or and and they couldn't notify they couldn't reach out to their loved ones and they knew that they, you know those tornadoes now they know they're that one that big one in birmingham alabama years ago i went down there and we, our charity did some we were, took some instruments down there after it happened but um we uh they knew all day long that was coming you know and people had plenty of time to find you know it, it was just this big storm cell that was coming at him but this this will this last one was even worse i think in terms of if it's size but amity i i i have i'm working on it on a bessemer song and uh bessemer I'm mucho? Not ready like bessemer mucho bessemer mucho no it might be something like this actually can you hear this <laughs> Wrong harp on. <laughs> My heart's down in Bessemer, Bessemer, Alabama. Standing with my brothers and my sisters 
to show Mr. Bezos that we give a damn a down in Bessemer. People dying in a warehouse floor and in the Nana too. You know what's weird? When I play, I, it starts to go on my end. Do you hear that on your end? No, it sounds great, but I have a similar problem on another uh, show that I do using Zoom. There's, there's something. Yeah, but that sounded great. I'll work on it. It might be it actually I might actually use something more like uh, more thoughtful, like uh, like. Uh, uh, Down in Bessemer, Bessemer, Alabama. Gonna show Mr. Bezos that we give a damn about our brothers and our sisters dying on the warehouse floor. If they don't have a union. What else is it for? My heart's down in Bessemer. Bessemer, Alabama. Maybe I'll do something like that. I love that. As Harvey J.K. says, if you're not talking union, you're talking shit. Yeah, and that's why I brought that, that map up, because I think... Uh, you know, Alan said, yeah, there's a little more in that discussion last week with those two guys who I love. You know, there was kind of, well, the unions aren't doing nothing. Well, they're all over. Little unions are doing stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, Starbucks in Buffalo. Kellogg's, 1,700 workers. Yeah. Great. Caterpillar, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and Christian. Smalls. I was going to write a Kellogg song, but they resolved there. I was because I think Alan was starting a boycott of Kellogg's. There was. PDA of, uh, you know, Progressive Democrats of America, of which I'm a member, um, sent a thing around saying, uh, you know, boycott Kellogg's. So but I think they went ahead and settled. So that's good news. Hey, I sent you uh, a golden oldie. Yes, I see it. You want to play it? Sure. Let's play it. OK. And, uh, you How know, I did write some, somebody... some lyrics for for uh, this has a this has a Liam McEnany because he was talking about the stink mm -hmm. you know I, actually that song was supposed to go for like this I got the stink on me I'm Liam McEnany I got some funky old stink cause my career's in the tank I got the stink on me that could be his theme song and it'd be very short yeah it would be fun <laughs> to bring him back unfortunately he would just <laughs> shit on you that, no that, no that's all right he, he he it's it's all good nature i know it's, it's he's he's so funny he's I a funny know. guy i wish him all the best i know he's got a lot of a lot of he's, he's a busy man going to school isn't that's that good. great it's good stuff to do isn't that great it's fantastic it's fantastic. Yeah, I really, yeah. 
uh, yeah, except his his conversation about uh, going to USC. Uh, by the way, we have played "Who's Afraid of Catherine." I love that song. Uh, our booker has like not reached out to her as I keep requesting. But what are you going to do? Um, so what you're going to play is uh, something died in my garage, which is goes along oh, with the stink, that. the stink thing that uh, yeah. Liam was talking about. Uh, let me just make sure. I, I want to ask. Uh, I saw on the YouTube channel that somebody said it sounds like we're underwater. So let me ask the people who are watching us right now. Really? It, is that true? Does it sound like we're underwater? Let's just see. I'm I'm nervous that how does it sound in the Zoom room? Oh, someone said yes. The sound is funky. Really, a Sounds little better on Zoom. It, hmm. Not what... enough underwater. Someone says. Oh, <laughs> someone you. else says. Saul says glug glug. Uh, yes, a little. Let me just see something. Says not I as good on, on YouTube. The YouTube channel that somebody said it sounds like we're underwater nah, that's the best we can do they're, they're trying to maybe there's a little reverb on it not on my end though well only feldo sounds underwater it's oh okay too loud blah, 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 blah. well let me before i play the song let me just play something else just to make sure that, hang on, uh, how's this? That sounds good on my end. How did it sound to you? Now you're muted. How did that sound in... That sounded great on my end. I muted because okay. since you were playing my song. And they're saying, okay, I, I think we're okay. Good on Zoom? Okay, thank you, Rodrigo. All right. Yeah, we're good. Okay. Hey, I want to explain something to people. Yeah. I, I A good friend says, hey, that song you does, something died in my garage. You, you, you pronounce garage with one syllable. And I said, that is the correct way we do it in Kansas. Garage. I was talking to a friend on the phone from Kansas uh, Christmas Day, and I said, hey, by the way, how do you say garage? Say it. And he said it the same way. We also say wash with an R. Wash rag. Gonna the wash rag. wash rag. I like that. Yeah, I'm going to grab a wash rag and, and uh, go to my garage. What's the capital garage. of What's the capital of the United States? Washington. Washington. Okay. Yes. That makes sense. So, uh, an, a golden oldie. From Professor okay. <laughs> Mike Steinel. Something died in my garage. Yes, indeed. Something died in my garage. I don't know what it could be. It's a mystery to me It might be a possum It might be a raccoon It might be my crazy neighbor Who plays the bassoon 
something died in my crotch. That's right. I alerted my entourage.
Mike Steinel, Professor Mike Steinel is a jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator, member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 to 2019, author of three highly acclaimed books on jazz theory, Elemental Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary, and Running the Changes. His latest release is Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet, featuring Rosanna Eckert. You can get it on Origin Records. For more information, go to MikeSteinel.com. Uh, that was unbelievable. I have a, a minor correction. You have okay. to unmute yourself. So I I am unmuted. I, I don't mean to correct you, but you say that the smell, the stench, was coming from a comedian. Is that correct? <laughs> That's the point. A, a dead uh, comedian. A dried up homeless comic. Who died. <laughs> yes. And my correction is that I can stink up your garage and create the create yes create the stench of decomposition without dying i that's just my natural odor but that that's amazing that's just amazing. i uh, I'll, I'll i'll note that in the yeah. next version of that when it's yeah. edited uh that's just great public if I, consumption if i could do that i would never leave the home oh god I, I, if i could play the way you play I would just play. I want to get out and play with people. And I still, I, I still like an audience, you know. Um, we got some things coming up. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, everything's yeah, know. up in the air with this stuff, you know. This is our World War. This is our generation's yeah. World War Two. except uh, we've domesticated the enemy. It's ourselves. Instead of going yeah. off to Germany and Japan, we've... Uh, We've saved travel time and we're fighting amongst ourselves. But this is, uh, I've never seen the country <clears throat> this uh, openly pessimistic before. That's one thing about America is we're stupidly optimistic. That's our one saving grace is we, you know, we always see the, yeah. We don't see it anymore. This is a rough holiday for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. I mean, last year was bad enough, but this was a, you know, this was a rough one. But anyway, New Year's coming right up, David. We're going to be here Thursday. Office hours on uh, New Year's Eve. And we're going to do the countdown every hour on the hour because it's <laughs> international. When we start at 8 p.m. Eastern, it will already be the new year in the United Kingdom where like Lane and where Ricky are and and uh, Grace Jackson. So I'll just start by going 10, 9, 8, 7, and we will uh, we'll just keep counting down the new year. The minute yeah. office hours starts. Are you going to join us? I'll, I'll, I'll uh, jump in there. When I, I was I got, a kid, I don't have a gig. So when I was a kid growing up, I believe it was Channel 4, WNBC used to play The Horn mm -hmm. Must Blow at Midnight, starring Jack Benny. It's kind of like It's a Wonderful Life. Did you ever see The Horn Must Blow at Midnight? Every New Year's, they would play I, it. I'm going to rent that. 
that sounds sounds familiar, but I don't. That's a good one. We'll watch that on New Year's Eve, maybe. And he plays a, a, a trumpet player in a a radio orchestra, and yeah, an angel. I've never seen that. And an angel is sent down to oh, save right, him. Right. But I believe it predates. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. It used to be. They used to run it every New Year's Eve. I think after the Tonight Show. It was a tradition that that stopped. Uh, maybe we'll play it. Maybe I will play The Horn Must Blow at Midnight. I'm a big Jack it. Benny fan. Yeah. I think Jack Benny... He was very good. The best. In terms of radio, there was nobody better than Jack Benny. He still holds up. He really yeah. does. Jack Benny... Yeah. What I loved about Jack Benny is he doesn't ask you to like him. He's <laughs> yeah. He's repre he's a reprehensible <laughs> human being. He is That was his thing, yeah. Right. And Barry Crimmins, the late Barry Crimmins said to me, "You need to watch Jack Benny more." He says you you can learn a lot from Jack Benny. And I watched I got into Jack Benny uh, because of Barry. I really got. I was into Jack Benny, but Barry said that you're almost doing what Jack did watch him and I went oh my god he's a reprehensible character there's nothing nothing good about him and yet he's beloved early on he was kind of a cad he was a cad that's the you know like when he was a young man he was a, a cad a flirt and and uh kind of devious right I'm old enough that I remember before we had a TV and, and on Monday nights we would, uh, my mom, we would in the kitchen, we'd stay in the kitchen and we'd listen to Jack Benny on the radio at seven o'clock, I think, or six thirty. I can't remember. And then after that came Gunsmoke. So, I, you know, boy, I'm really old. The, Either that or we were really poor. It was, it was only 92 was when we first got a TV. Just kidding. I don't remember when it was. It was in the 50s. I'm 70, so it was. I think we had a TV by the time I was six or seven, but I quite I remember quite well, like pre-TV days, you know. Yeah, it was an interesting time. Well, Mary, happy New Year! If I don't see you, my people then. don't celebrate the New Year. Your people don't. No. Which people is that? <laughs> Manic depressives. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I love you. Thank you so much. Oh, uh, the, the, uh, the best joke of the last uh, month is uh, the uh, fear of Jews. The, <laughs> oh, no. Um, Ethan uh, said, you know what they call it? You guys were talking about phobias, and you did homophobia, and you did. Uh, he says, yeah, you know, uh, fear of Jews is uh, there's a there's a the correct name for that is heebie-jeebies. <laughs> right. That was great. How He is just. He's, he's just, a very funny man. He's just great. Thank okay, you, sir. Man. Thank you, See Professor. See you next week. Bye-bye. Uh, wow. So lucky. Let's go to Rodrigo. We'll finish up the night as we usually do with Rodrigo. Hello. How was Christmas in Mexico? Uh, a little cold, but it was fine. It was cold? A little. <clears throat> And we saw you uh, at office hours, Christmas Eve. Who did you play in The Godfather? Fredo. 
Yes. The week before you were the soup Nazi and at office hours, we did a reading of The Godfather and you were Fredo. You know who I loved was uh, Professor Ann Lee as Sonny. That was uh, amazing. And, and Dan Frankenberger did a very convincing veto. I found that very nourishing to uh, read The Godfather script with our, our regulars. It was great. Uh, I forget who it was, but Myla was good. Myla pl played a lot of different characters. Uh, I think what I'm going to do is devote like 20 minutes uh, of my time on office hours to reading The Godfather. I, there are a couple of scenes I want to see people read out loud. I learn a lot about the I, like. I saw things that I've... I've seen The Godfather 500 times, but there were some things that it took a table read of the script for me to understand a couple of things. And it's just good to read the screenplay. What's on your mind, sir? I think but I want to share that someone called me a fake leftist this weekend. Who? So that was fun. A fake lefty? <laughs> Because they share the um, the gray zone. I don't know if you heard of them. Were worked work together with someone whose entire business model is big progressive uh, or leftist group and lie about which the, the shit libs, right? Billionaires. Shit libs. The gray zone goes after shit libs, right? As they, as their shit leaves and people who Jimmy Dore hates, right? Who are and there are a lot of them. So anyway, uh, the Grayson is working together with someone who like for and they quote unquote uh, discovered that. Abigail from Philosophy Tube, who came out a few months ago, is taking money from the British royalty, which is hilarious because not that long, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, she made a 30-minute these royalties superfluous even if you can be you know you're breaking up uh, it, sorry it, yeah can we continue this on Thursday's live stream sure yeah you're you're breaking up yes thank you thank I'm you sorry. Thank you, Fredo. Good night. Good night, Fredo. Uh, that's Rodrigo. I see it. Professor John, your hand is raised. Do you, I don't know if you're still wanting to say something. Oh, sorry about that, David. I had that raised since uh, I spoke very much earlier in the evening. Ah, okay. 
We'll see you for office hours, I hope. Yes, indeed. And I hope we'll uh, have uh, new people coming as well. Uh Uh-oh, there's an argument brewing. Hang on. Andy Brown. Oh, is this going to get ugly? I thought we could get out of here with that. I thought we could. Can you believe that Professor John didn't put his hand down? We got to do something about this guy. (laughs) Oh, come on. This is. Andy Andy wants revenge. Yeah. It's absurd. Andy and I disagree with Professor John. We Andy and I have an enemies list that <laughs> he curates once a day. Yep. There are only 300,000 names. It's a small list. It's a small list. Certainly it's a there healthy, are th- healthy list of, of people who will be identified and rounded up and placed in a re-education camp. Uh, Professor John unfortunately is one of them no (laughs) well he is now after the hand raising escapade what the hell i I know i i don't want to i I don't want to create more tension than there is warren do you want to get in on this warren g yeah i better be number one on that list Keep it up, buddy. Keep it Warren, up. Warren's very competitive. Right. Extremely competitive. You guys have no clue. <laughs> What's on your mind tonight, Warren? Uh, that thing about Hillary, it was crazy. The thing that like a lot of people hated about her was the cattle future um, bribe. The, the what? Remember, remember that? Which what, what bribe? Which one? There's so many. Uh, the cattle futures trading thing where she traded a, um, a cattle future. Oh, cattle futures. Yes, in Arkansas. And she made $100,000. Right. Right. And they covered her loss. If she basically was- it was it was it was there was two there was two sides to the to the to the trade and she got the winning side. Right. So, yes, yeah, that that's just that gets a lot of people riled up seems quaint now compared to oh yeah what's going absolutely. on absolutely it's it's quaint compared to the 300 million dollar contracts that they get in Kazakhstan and all all the all the caucus states through the global the the CG uh the Clinton global initiative so it's just it's it's crazy how yeah. how how ins- corrupt that organization is freaking philanthropy I never thought I'd be for term limits, but uh, I am now. Although I know the lobbyists end up writing the bills in Sacramento because of term limits, but uh, I don't know. Maybe term limits for lobbyists as well. Well, just stronger laws, like... It, our laws were horribly written like they're really not adequate enough in my in my opinion well if i were elected president we wouldn't need any new laws we just have to enforce the ones that are already on the book and we have to scare these people we need to start locking them up we need to have a 
a criminal, uh, a, a justice department that goes after white collar crime and locks them up, makes mistakes. You know, we always make mistakes locking up African-Americans. Uh, you know, no discretion with white collar criminals. Start locking them up and uh, until they have, until they're terrified. The politicians, the lobbyists, you can, I've said this a thousand times, you can indict and arrest a ham sandwich. Let's start locking these people up. You need a proactive attorney general. Yeah, Garland is not doing his job, in my opinion. Yep. Uh, what, yeah. what's, what, what does Silicon Valley say? Uh, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. That's the way I want our Justice Department to treat white collar criminals. Sorry, we, we sorry you had to spend five years in prison, Jeff Bezos. Sorry, you were innocent. Oops, we goofed. Well, that's the thing about Bezos. Like, and like, I highly recommend Chuck Collins's book, all about the global wealth hoarding industry. It's it's a global industry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. What's what's it's it called? Just um, Chuck Collins is the is the is the Oscar Mayer heir. Uh, he he he's a um, heterodox economist out of, out of Boston. Oh, um, he has he has an institute up there someplace, and he's really good. All right, um, I'm not sure it. what the book the book's name is, but Chuck Collins is definitely the the guy that shows what's well all the stuff is about like the 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 investigative journalists the 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 um, pandora papers that mm -hmm. just came out they use his book as as a starting point so okay but they're also really good all right so does he drive for, does he drive the oscar meyer wiener wiener mobile yeah i think so. i think so I here's think a he trivia question who used to drive the oscar meyer wiener mobile which speaker of the house Used to, <laughs> used to drive the Oscar Mayer Wiener Mobile. You don't remember? Newt. He was a Republican. Yeah, Newt. No. No, not Newt. Huh. Okay. Any Anybody want to guess? Anybody want to guess? John said Hassert. No, he used to drive a kid named oscar <laughs> meyer to his wiener <laughs> i don't know what that meant people forget that, that was dennis, a good attempt yeah dennis, that's late dennis haster's a child molester uh seriously child molester dennis haster former republican speaker of the house it was paul ryan <laughs> paul ryan used to drive the oscar meyer wiener mobile I thought it was Theodore Sedgwick. Who's that? He was the sixth speaker of the house. How don't you know this, David? The sixth speaker of the house was Theodore Sedgwick? Yeah, Sed Sedgwick. Edie's. It might have been like a wiener mole horse or something. I don't know. Right. I'm not a comedian. <laughs> Either am I. I'm a little funnier. All right. We're going to wrap it up here. Let me... Uh, let me thank, let me mute everybody. Thank you all for showing up today in the Zoom room. 
If you would like to sit in the virtual studio audience and meet better people, go to my website, sign up, and don't forget to uh, sign up for office hours. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Payday Report, Mike Elk. Send him money. We need Mike Elk back in action. Go to Payday Report and give money to Mike Elk. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on every platform. We have a YouTube channel, which is growing. I think we have more than 6,000 subscribers. So subscribe to us uh, on YouTube. That's one of the best ways to share your favorite segments on this show is through YouTube because we do a timestamp. Like if you want to share the Harvey JK segment, it, you just click on the timestamp and then hit share. I want to thank all our guests. Let me see if I can remember who they are. We started at 5, 6, 30. Pete Dominic. Don't forget to listen to Stand Up with Pete Dominic. Great podcast. And then at 7, we had Howie Klein, followed by John Ross, followed by Dr. Harriet Fraud, then Mark Breslin, then I'm going to go with Peter B. Collins, then Professor Marianne Cummings, and then Professor Mike Steinel. I think I covered everyone. I think I did. That's our show. We are doing our last show of the year on Thursday. Please come in. Please come to the, the recording. Go to my website to join us. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong, stay strong, and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.